Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and friends beyond the binary, it's time for the podcaster who's creating a highway to the sleepy zone. And I'll keep you uh, floating into the, 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 the dreamy zone. And I'm not as out of things to rhyme. Why? Because it's time for me to start sleep with me. The podcast that puts you to sleep. Uh, hey, are you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble getting to sleep, trouble staying asleep? Well, welcome. This is Sleep With Me, the podcast that's here to put you to sleep. We do with a bedtime story. All you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights and press play. I'm going to do the rest. And what I'm going to do is create a safe place where you can set aside whatever's keeping you awake, whether it's uh, thoughts running through your head, feelings running through your heart or wherever your gut, uh, sensations running through your body, noises running through your window or through your partner's nostrils. Uh, it could be that, it could be, you know, changes in light, whatever's keeping you awake. I'd like to take your mind off of that. I'd like to distract you. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my voice across the deep, dark night. I'm going to use, I'm going to send my voice across the deep, dark night. So sorry, I had to say that twice. So nice, I said it twice. I'm going to use lulling, soothing, creaky, dulcet tones, many, many meanders, and twists and, well, not twists and turns, bends. Then go, take two steps back, one step to the right, one step back again to the left, and then I'll spin around, and then I'll, in order to go one step forward. Kind of like most, kind of like Mother May I. If you, if you ever played Mother May I with yourself, and oh boy, please no snickering when I say things like that. Okay, let me just sit up for the new. If you're new here, welcome. Let me tell you a couple of things. This podcast doesn't work for everybody. Uh, for the people it does work for, it does take a few tries. Uh, but you're under no pressure, one, to like this podcast or me. I'm just here to try to help you distract you and put you to sleep. Uh, you're under no pressure to fall asleep. Though. That's the kind of like, I'll tell you about that in a second. But you're also under, under no pressure to listen. Very quickly, if you're new, you'll realize, oh, wait, this is a man who plays Mother May I by himself. He does call it Matter May I, and he uses an accent when he plays it. Alone, at his age, you know, at his age, which is above twelve, I think people stop playing Mother May I, unless you're a babysitter. Any babysitters listening, you know, work it into your toolbox. It's a good thing to have in your toolbox. And yes, you can make it more dynamic for the modern age. Parent May I, guardian May I, teacher May I. You could even use it like a or Mother Earth May I. Uh, you know, make up your own character. Nanny Prudence, I don't know, that, that's just, that may be what I call myself. Uh, oh, that's not during, that's during a whole nother, anyway, also alone, do I do that alone too? But, so if you're new here, I didn't even mean to do that, but obviously I showed I'm not qualified for anything you'd need to listen to closely. And please don't stand outside my windows if you hear me starting, if you hear me starting any sentences with Nanny Prudence. You know, walk away. Don't even walk slowly. Just turn around and get out of there. Or plug your ears and hum. Or any. So anyway, new listeners. So if you're new here, here's the structure of the show. Just so you know. Oh, by the way, I think when this comes out, I don't have this all put together yet. But it may be Goonies Week. So and this may be the first episode of Goonies Week. So welcome to Goonies Week on Sleep with Me podcast. And all that means is we'll have three Goonies inspired. Uh, um, 
episodes. Uh, but so if you're new here, here's the structure of the shows, uh, just so you know, and then you can say, well, maybe this isn't for me. I hope it is because I really would love to help you fall asleep. But five minutes of business at the top, that's what allows us to make these shows, uh, pays bills, pays a little bit of the labor that goes into them. Then we're in about, we're about five minutes into a 12 minute intro. It kind of sets the tone like, uh, it kind of disorients anybody that's here, and uh, I try to make a metaphor about what the podcast is about. I thought I was going to make it about something. I mean, I guess somehow it's, I've gotten into a game of Mother May I or describing this, so I'll have to describe that for the second half of the intro. But the intro is, yeah, it's long-winded. It's been described as that, and... Uh, it's a kind of a, it's a microcosm. Thank you. Holy cow. My, my, I think my vocabulary has grown by four or five words over these 500 episodes. Holy microcosm. Uh, that wasn't a, that was a misuse of microcosm because I was so excited. I just might never mind. I almost said it. I did say I almost microcosmed. And that doesn't even mean anything, but it's funny, you know, but it is funny. I mean, it's, it's Okay, so uh, where was I? If you're new here, uh, so the intro will go on. You can fall asleep during the intro. A lot of people do. Not everybody does. Then we'll do uh, tonight's uh, Goonies Week Tale of the Tape, which uh, I'll kind of explain later, but it basically means my memory's terrible. I'm the worst paraphraser on the planet. But I tend to remember things like de- de- minor details and, gr- gr- and I'm able to try to describe them. And like, like, for example, the movie The Goonies from the 1980s. All of us know, like, you could, I could probably spend 15 minutes describing what Chunk was wearing. Lawrence, uh, you know, red jacket, plaid, plaid pants, plaid pants. I think I had that same pair of plaid pants like 10 years before the movie. I don't know if I ever saw uh, Lawrence's waistband, but I'm pretty sure it was elastic. So uh, if you're new here, uh, here's the thing. You don't need to listen. Like you can you, you can start listening. And if you, you say, geez, well, this is distracting. It's taking my mind off stuff. It kind of, It's not funny, but it's a little bit uh, it's different in a semi-amusing way. I'd say, oh, boy, I'm win- I've won you over, haven't I? Uh, mother, may I take two steps forward? You may. Okay, but can I take four steps back to try to, to describe something to the audience? Okay, mother's not speaking. Uh, okay, so you you don't have to listen, but you can kind of listen and as you drift off. But, but you're also under pressure to fall asleep. I'll be here for about an hour, and I'll be doing my best to, to, to take the— well, I'll just be being myself. I, I'll be doing my best to be myself in—, in in absentia, that just popped in my head. It has no, it doesn't fit there, but it kind of does because I have like most people's brains have like a go-to, you know, you say, hey, narrative brain, or what's the next twist? And my brain is saying, hmm, processing, you know, my brain buffers, it processes, it has wheels that spin in both directions, clockwise and counterclockwise. And my brain has more, you know, has a 405 error codes, 501s, 505s, whatever you need. And then I say, well, let me just go back to Chunk's jacket. It was a red jacket, a windbreaker, correct, again. And so that's like, uh, hmm, that's the person that makes the podcast. 
And I guess I was saying it's a little bit like a game of Mother May I, like the way I make the show. Because sometimes it takes, you know, say, well, we're going to need four hops on this one. Can everybody do four hops? And that's not so much to, to, to talk down to anybody or anything. It's it's, it's, it's kind of te- whatever is keeping you awake, whether it's uh, thoughts, brain bots, I call them, overthinking, anxiety, or anything else. Like I like to just, you know, get, get the mood up in the slowest way. Say, well, let's take four. So to, can you take those four hops in slow motion? Oh, it, okay. Sorry. One of brain bots said it's, it's a participatory game. Oh, participatory. Thank you. Thank you. Correction brain. Okay. There's a, there's a brain bot raising its hand. What's your name? Randy the brain bot. Oh yeah. You, you could call me matter. Matter. May you take four slow motion hops? Wow. That you may, you may, all of you may. I don't know. Uh, actually I'm getting red light, green light and mother may I mixed up. Sorry. I started this game. What is the purpose of Mother May I? Because red light, green light, I, I understand. Oh, it's just oh, it's just a way for babysitters to waste time. Kind of like a sleep podcaster uh, trying to take your mind off stuff. Okay, you brain bot on, on the side with that uh, pink stripe. What's your name? Ol- Ol- Holga. Holga. Yes, what was you? May you take uh, three corkscrew spins? No. But you may take uh, 400 pirouettes in, uh, like, uh, as slow as you can. One pirouette. That's how you exactly two pirouettes. Thank you, Holga. And everyone else, you may take those 400 pirouettes. Uh, so th- I guess that's it. The, like, the difference, we just figured that out. So the teachable moment here on the podcast, one, you know, if you're— uh, Okay, I guess you, this isn't pro, pro, like I don't have pro pro tips. I have pro am tips because mo, like mostly I'm amateur at everything. But here's a pro am tip: if you're a babysitter or you need to entertain kids, you know all adults of all ages listen to this podcast, and some children do. Uh, but you know you could whatever age you are, you could encounter yourself with your when alone with these children. And I don't know if you read anything on the internet, but these kids are highly distractible. So uh, if you want, if you need, you find, well, I got to like, I got to bridge your time gap here with non-electronic interference. Here's what you do. Here's your toolbox. And okay, kids, you're not allowed to listen to this because like, I don't want you catching on. It's not that you can't listen. I guess you're going to listen anyway. So if your grandmother or your aunt or your uncle or your babysitter tries this, please assist them. So you'll start out, you'll do some mother may I, or mater may I. I prefer mater may I. We could, you could do a little, is it, isn't Mollier or somebody, isn't there a composer? Why don't we do it that way? You know, name it after a composer. Uh, Bartok may I. And then you say, then the kid, the kids would say that. And then you'd explain to them who, who Bartok was, which I would need my phone for that. So, I think Barktok was big on uh, dissonance, which I'm surprised I like him. Uh, you know, that's my anyway. Um, and then the kids will say, you know, may I take four steps? And you say, no, but you may take six small steps. And at some point, you know, you you, you want to try to go as long as you can till you ideally you detect their disinterest first. So you do have to be in the moment for this one. Then what you'll do is you'll switch to uh, red light, green light, because I guess Mother May I, from what I've been able to determine in this intro for a sleep podcast, is that Mother May I 
is non-competitive, which is great for uh, for a little while. Then you'll go to red light, green light, which is there is you can you know then you can get the kids' competitive juices up, and maybe there maybe you have an advantage because they they might be in the still uh, Molly or May I uh, mode. Also, any music teachers, feel free to repurpose this stuff, and you could have them, you know, hum tunes from, uh, you know, symphony, symphonies or things, or symphonies. So uh, you can do that, and then, you know, you, then you say, well, if you sit quietly and don't move, I'll take you for ice cream later uh, if you need to. Which I think those two, two those are just toolbox. You know, I don't, I don't sell solutions. I... Uh, I sell pro-am tip. I give away pro-am tips uh, from my, well, I don't have a toolbox. Oh, thanks. So some some part of my brain just called me. I said, thanks. Thanks for calling me. Thanks. I'm not even going to repeat it on the podcast. Oh, you're going to stand there till I, you called me a loot. Reversed. There you go. Please exit the podcast studio. Okay. So I'm glad you're here. Uh, that was, that was an interesting intro. I never thought I would uh, spend 12 minutes talking about Mater Mayai. And, uh, you know, whatever my other personal stuff I accidentally revealed on here. Uh, so if you're new here, the podcast is different. You know, not everybody likes it. It doesn't work for everybody. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. I, I don't uh, want to put any pressure on you to like it. Uh, and, you know, some people, like, just because it doesn't work for you, it does work for a lot of people. Uh, and there's some people, they try twice and then they, it works great for them. And if you're having trouble sleeping, I really hope it works for you because I've been there. In the deep, dark night. And I, I would posit, you know, even if you're still awake, that I probably took your mind off whatever you were thinking about earlier. And the main message, you know, I've I've had a lot of sleepless nights. As a matter of fact, last night I would do like, uh, so I don't want to get into it. But uh, uh, that's why I always say I'm glad you're here. And not only do I hope, not only do I work really hard on these episodes, I strive and I yearn to help you fall asleep, and I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming by, and hopefully good night. Or, you know, but I'll be here. So if you can't sleep, I'll be here to keep you company. So let me take your proverbial hand and try to carry you across that threshold from wake to sleep. Thanks. All right, hey, everybody. So uh, you might be asking a little, uh, let's do a little check-in here. Because uh, it's Sunday night, and you might be asking, where in the ha- where in the name of Jean Luc's T is my episode of TNG? And so, just a heads up, to, like I think we're going to take a three week break. This will be week one uh, from TNG, just so I can get caught up on my initial watches of the show, and to avoid my burnout or audience burnout. I think I learned from uh, doing the Breaking Bad ones. Uh, that while consistency is important, there, there's also something to my stubbornness and that maybe taking brief, short breaks. Uh, so they'll probably take a break here, three weeks, and we'll go back to TNG, maybe to the start of uh, Breaking Bad, se- I mean, to the uh, GOT season. Uh, not positive on the scheduling. So don't worry, TNG will be back. I'll be right back. And uh, just a little break. And this is a theme break to dur- during a themed week. This week might be the only themed week. This is Goonies week here on Sleep With Me. Tonight we're kicking off Goonies week. And I think these next three Sunday episodes will be tail of the tape episodes, which means like uh, if if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you know my my mind is uh, like Swiss cheese, like that that you've left outside. 
And then mice have also, you know, the, 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 it's got more, more holes than Swiss cheese. Definitely. Is it, well, never mind. Let's not, let me not go on a tangent about Swiss cheese. I should save it for the open scoots. But so, um, so the, the next three weeks we're going to talk about the, the seminal summer of whatever night, whatever year it was, I don't remember. And what tell the tape episodes are is like, uh, how do I remember the movie? And tonight we'll be doing Goonies. Uh, and it was part of that seminal summer of 1985, 4, 6, 86 probably, 85. And I've talked about it on the show, maybe not recently, but that was when I was like, uh, I had a paper route. So I was flush with movie cash and I would reach the age where my parents... Uh, trusted my best friend and I both to go to the movies, and I think sometimes my bro- like my brother Carl and my sister Sheila could join us. And this was the summer that uh, Goonies, uh, a James Bond movie, A View to a Farm, and Back to the Future all came out they, during that period. I believe again, I'm not a hist- I'm, I'm, you know, I put people in his his not even hysterics. The other one. I don't know. Somebody said that to me once. They think they wrote it in a negative histronics or something. Uh, but I don't, I don't, um, whatever. I, but so uh, that summer I saw those three movies each at least no, no, no less than five times. I, I'm pretty sure I saw Goonies. So I think it was $2 to see a matinee for a child. It may have been even less. So yeah, like I'm not exa- I'm no I'm no I'm not uh, super old, but uh, you know, I'm not super young either. And but uh, so I remember going to Goonies, and I've talked about this. It's also the summer I still played with toys. Uh, I mean, I like but that's not news. Anybody who listens to this podcast, but I mean, I think that was the age when most children my age stopped playing with toys, but I, I did not. And so I still played with G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Fisher, whatever toys I could construct a narrative around. And usually that narrative would involve reenacting the movie that I had seen. And so I was reenacting a lot of this James Bond movie, A View to a Farm, which we'll cover next week maybe. But in uh, at some point during playing it, I can remember I had a snowmobile and it was jumping and I remember holding it in the air and it had the G.I. Joe uh, snow dude, whatever his name was, you know, a bl- blizzard back or something. And he, like I said, holy cow, somebody makes these movies that I've been watching this summer. And that's the first time, I mean, I knew, you know, that it just like dawned on me uh, that people professionally, storytelling was a profession. And then those dreams were crushed by mostly by myself and partially by a sister. Well, I don't want to name her. You know, but we return to the, you know, we're back now, you know, whatever, it's 35, I don't even know how many years have passed. We're back. We're back telling stories. So that's, that's, but we better get into Goonies, you know, so we can, like, I don't even know if I could tell it in half time. And what a magical film. And now, huh, we may, if only I knew how it opened. I'm pretty sure the opening scene is the Fratelli's. Is a chase like I think it's like two or three scenes. Like one, we're following. Like I think it's a montage, maybe sent to, set to music. 
I don't know what the last time I saw Goonies, even on TV. It's been a while. But so I think the opening is like a montage set to music with, uh, like, uh, the Fratellis being chased in their car. And then Chunk, like, I remember Chunk goes, like, sees some of it and eats pizza and, like, loses his pizza in a soda against a window. I think Mouth is probably going over to Mikey's house. For some reason, there's a housekeeper. I don't, I never understood that, like, uh, character very well. But uh, she was, she, Mikey's mom's also hiring them. And so Mikey, and at some point, Data and Mouth go over to Mikey's house to hang. And Mikey's mom, you know, is like, you guys got to take things seriously. And the main crux of the situation is that they're losing, like, the area where I think they're all renters. So really, talk about relatable for me. You know, they're not landed gentry. No offense if you're landed gentry. That's great. But you know they're, they're renters, I believe, and that they're uh, they've like the develop the uh, golf course development company that Troy's dad owns. I think I don't know. Interesting. This plays right into modern day, like uh, is annex that to expand the golf course or something. So the, then they call the area the Goondocks, and it seems like a working class neighborhood. And I don't know if I have no idea the setting. I think I always say it's in Augusta, Maine, but I just could be making that up. And so everybody's a little down, and at some point Chunk comes over, and he has to do the truffle shuffle. We see different data. Data does like a James. Data loves James Bond, so I like to data choose data. I think data lives next door, because uh, he comes by Skyway to see Mikey, like like acting out his James Bond fantasies. He's kind of like part Q and part James Bond. Data. And then Mouth comes over, and then at some point Brand shows up, or Brand. And again, this is not comedy. I don't know if his name is Brand or Brant. I think it's Brand, though. I always assumed it ended in a D, like Brand name. But, it, like, I've never met anyone else named Brand or Brant. I think there's probably—I know some Brents out there. But it's not important. Let's just agree to call him Brand for the rest of the episode. Or I'll try not to say his name too much to, like, for anybody. It's like, you know, especially if Josh Brolin's played by the great Josh Brolin. So at some point, the, the you know, the mom says, don't mess around. Brand's in charge. He says, don't mess around. And then the boys, like Mikey, there's there's not a call to adventure. We'll not, let's not break down the story. But Mikey, let me see if I, what I can remember. At some point, they go upstairs to look through the dad's stuff. I think nowadays, this, like I think the dad has pilfered things from his workplace. He works at the like Augusta Museum or the Historical Society. He's keeping some stuff in his attic. And this was this was the eighties. It was a looser time, you know. People like. Uh, I don't know. I don't think his dad was up to anything. He just it was just a like a convenient place for his son to start his adventure. So they go upstairs and they're not supposed to mess anything up. But of course, uh, chunks clumsy. Data's a little bit clumsy. Mouths like triggers clumsiness. Mikey has asthma, and I think they're just up there searching, maybe for answers. I don't know if Mikey already suspected that there was a treasure map, but then they find the treasure map. Uh, you think Tongue sticks his, uh, 
mouth's always making like slightly double entendre jokes. So he sticks his tongue through a painting, I think, which causes Chunk to fall, which causes a painting to fall, which reveals the map, One-Eyed Willie's treasure map. And they also find the doubloom, which they'll use. And then they say, this is probably nothing. This part's hazy for me. And at some point, Mikey still takes the lead. He says, I think this is a treasure map, and I think we can figure it out. Let's go do it. And it felt like a summer break. So, to get, I mean, after a little while of debating, and I mean, this plays, I mean, this is why these movies are so good, like Stranger Things or whatever, because this plays to this uh, uh, distinct fantasy I guess we still have as adults because Stranger Things really appealed to it. But uh, of uh, the real call to adventure, I remember being so titillated by this uh, and seeing, why can't, why can't this pull me out of my dull life? And uh, why can't my, and it's like, oh, it's a, it's a, that's what movies do for you. Really? So they head off on the adventure yeah, they, in order to get away, I think because they think they're supposed to pack up or something. Mikey's supposed to do something. They have to trick Bran, Bran or whatever, and uh, they trick him and then they run. And then he knows he's going to be in trouble. Also, he's wearing shorts on the outside of sweatpants, and so let's just get that out there. Uh, I think I don't know. I guess through the whole movie, and so then he has to take a little girl's bike because they flattened the bike tires of his brand new tires, which was not nice that he had worked so hard for. So he borrows a little girl's bike, and then he chases them. But on his way, he runs into Frank Whaley, is the actor. Troy, I guess, is his name. And Andy and Martha Plimpton's character, whose name I don't know. I just know her as Martha Plimpton. So those three, so then they kind of like, uh, Frank Whaley or Troy kind of, uh, tries to like, uh, emasculate Bran, which is a mistake. Cause holy cow. I mean, it's a freaking Josh Brolin, even at age, whatever, 16, he was very, very, uh, what's that word? Uh, like brawny. I mean, one of the few people that could probably pull off sweatpants with shorts on the outside. My, other than my father, that was the one thing I said, like I said, well, it makes him less cool in my book because my dad does that and he's been doing it for like eight years. But, you know, Maine's a different place. So uh, then Bran, but then Bran realized, like then the uh, Andy and Martha realized that Bran's like much cooler than this uh, rich cat. So at some point they cross paths with the other kids. I don't know how that happened. I think, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know how that happened. And then they, like Mikey uses the doubloom and then Brand, they all say, Hey, let's join this adventure. It's not that simple, but you know, for me it is. And so then they all go together and they find this, this building out on the coast that's aligned with these rocks. And Mikey's like, that's where. I think there's a riddle in there. I wish, you know, my brother Kenneth, he's really got one of those steel trap minds. He would, he would know all, he'd say, well, where the water goes low, you sink in the sand and the treasure's found by digging with your hand or something. But so they decide to go into this, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, this inn, I don't know if it was like a closed down restaurant or an inn. It happens to be the place that the Fratellis are using as a hideout. 
and I don't know the exact events at the, how like the the, the um how they stack the events here. But what happens is they say, well, they think this is the right place. We just got to get low enough. At some point, Chunk recognizes that it's the getaway car. He sees a Fratelli's car. But he's kind of like the um, Shaggy from Scooby-Doo, like always warning, oh, no, you know, like they, everyone tunes him out. So then they go into the inn. Uh, I don't know if it's before Ma Fratelli or after. That's one of the places they get mixed up. But, it, like, in different parts in, in this inn or this restaurant, first they get, like, a false adventure because they, uh, I guess this is later. Huh, what it was so... At some point, they go in, and Ma Fratelli's there, and she says, what do you want? And then they say, water. Uh, we were going to, you know, we just saw that. We, and so then she gives them all water, or maybe just Mikey. Then Mikey goes and sneaks and goes to the bathroom, just barely spots Sloth, but then he goes back upstairs. He realizes that there's, like, a basement. I guess maybe it was getting towards the winter, like this was, like, a summer restaurant. Um, uh, but then... Uh, at some point, maybe Ma Fratelli leaves for a second because then, and then they sneak back in and they go in the basement. They accidentally find a counterfeiting machine. At first, they thought it was printing money, but then it was ended up as counterfeit. Then they find the surprise in the ice cream, or maybe chunk it. Then like uh, the Fratellis come and they realize the kids are in there or something. And then they leave Chunk actually goes in the ice cream freezer, try some ice cream. And then everybody else go like, they knock something, they knock a water thing over. And they realize hidden in the uh, fireplace is like a, a path to adventure. Uh, then Chunk, so Chunk gets left behind. And then like, because they know the Fratellis are there, it's, it's something along those lines. So then they say, Chunk, go get help. So then Chunk says, okay, I'll go get it. I'll go, I'll go tell on the Fratellis. So then they enter, they cross the threshold, I guess. And Chunk goes and tries to get help. But of course, the people he stops, he can help are the Fratellis. And so he's back with the Fratellis, which is some real good comedy. Uh, And I'll just play, we'll just follow that like a thing there. So Chunk goes with the Fratellis, uh, don't know all the, like, there's Ma Fratelli, and then there's the Fratelli guys, uh, whose names I don't know. And I probably should know the actors' names, but I don't off the top of my head. Uh, one actor really, like, in the um, aughts, had, he was in The Sopranos, he was in uh, the first Matrix. And then the other actor, he's always very strong in everything he's in, he's, but uh, more of a character actor. And then Ma Fratelli, I think she was in that, she was in uh, uh, Throw Mama from a Train and uh, Stop Me, like in a movie with Stop or My Mom Will Spray You with Her Water Gun, I think. Um, so she was kind of like playing a little bit of an archetype, we'll say, in a kind way. And so they get Chunk, and then they quiz Chunk, and that's like a very, uh, where Chunk spills his beans. Uh, so then Chunk spills his beans, but he also, like, gives Mikey a warning. And then we're, like, so, and then Chunk meets up with Sloth, and they think that's kind of, that's a, the Chunk, Lawrence, uh, Lawrence Chunk uh, summary. 
Now, oh boy, this uh, the the main portion of the story here with this, so that so who so who enters into the like like uh, they enter into the unknown is uh, Mikey and Bran. Maybe it's a Bran. I never thought of that till just now. Like the kid from GOT. Uh, who knows? And the mouth and Data and Andy and Martha, and so they enter and. I think they, is it right away they encounter a series of tests? I, I, I'm not sure, but there's like a couple different tricks and uh, they have to kind of outwit these, like uh, Data kind of realizes that then Data leaves, or maybe Data's leaving things behind to warn them if, if Fratelli's follow. Yeah, then they find out, then they find Chester Copperpot. And that's like their first time where everybody realizes the gravity of the situation. They say, uh, like, wow, Chester Copperpot, uh, that there's like, that One-Eyed Willie's not going to make it easy for them to find One-Eyed Willie's treasure. Because uh, they realize kind of Chester Copperpot was in search of the same thing. And he decided to stop, barely, part, barely not even, I don't even think he made it a quarter of the way. And he found a nice, like, big thing, and he said, well, let me lie here and uh, rest until I decide to visit a farm, which he did. And so they make it past that part, and then I have no idea. Like, I think it's like going back and forth between a chunk story and their story. So you have to apologize. I think I'm trying to think what other hey, – honestly, my mind is blank, like, in this part uh, – like, there's also a part where Mikey and Andy kiss, but I think that's later. That is later, so we'll get to that later. Uh, but uh, let's see. So I think, it, like, uh, I have no idea what happens. So I think they go past the rocks, and I think at another point they have to choose which way they're going to go. And one of those, they, they have torches, uh, which I think maybe they got those from Chester Copperpots. And I really hope my brain catches them. I said, what other things did they, uh, like, other than the the rocks at this part, I really can't think of what else they did. But I think some other stuff really tired them out. Uh, you think maybe knowing the Fratellis were coming, I think they encountered, uh, you know, uh, like like fuzzy friends, like flying flying fuzzy friends, like uh, underground birds, and that that kind of made them be like, huh, I don't like that. I don't know if there was any like, uh, I don't know. I guess in my mind is blank. Tail of the tape. But then at some point they reach. Uh, I think this is the midpoint of the movie. I mean, you stop me if I'm wrong, but I'm by myself, so I don't think that'll happen. But I think right at the midpoint ish. They reach the wishing well, and they see it from afar, and it's sparkling, and there's it's lit from above, and there's water and pools of clean water, and they think, "Wow, we've made it! It wasn't as hard as we expected. You know, we 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 did it." And they jump in, and everyone's happy. So maybe Andy kissed Mikey by accident here, but I don't know, and. Uh, uh, at some point, Martha, Plimpton, and uh, Mouth start to get along because uh, he could be kind of uh, mean. Yeah, but quickly they start gathering up the gold stuff, the rich stuff, and then they realize uh, 
they never got this joke, and I, I guess they still haven't got it. But at some point, uh, Mouth says, uh, how come Martin Sheen's on this dime? And, and uh, someone says, Martin Sheen, that's uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower or something. I don't know. Did Martin Sheen play Dwight D. Eisenhower? Who's on the dime? One. Two. Uh, what am I talking about? But three, something like that happens, and they realize that it's it's only a count for, it's not a real gold, the balloons, or the balloons, whatever, however you say that, uh, that it's uh, that it's a whatever you call it, wishing well, because uh, then someone throw like then they hear voices, and then someone throws in a quarter, but it's really Troy wishing that he could uh, kiss Andy. And then they realize that they're down there and they say, hey, we can get you out. Uh, and this is like your chance like, uh, uh, to give up. Everybody's wet and they're cold and they're tired and they haven't eaten. And they realize this adventure has stakes. And what are the stakes? Like you get rich, un- the unknown. There's no certainty. But there is certainty that they could leave at this point, that Troy could get them out. And they're also, they realize there's an antagonist and that it, maybe it's time to give up. And most people give up. And then Mikey makes his big speech, uh, down here, it's our time. I don't remember much else about his speech other than that part, but it's a good one. And he stands there and he inspires everyone. He says, you know, what, what do we come here for? We came here for adventure and to save the goondocks and we can't give up and... You know, what, what do we have to lose? And they said, well, lot, even if we have a lot to lose, we have a lot more. To, you know, he inspires everyone. And they they hear his, like, his speech, and he's their leader. And so they continue on. And maybe there's a lull next. Maybe that's when the kissing happens, but I'm not sure. Uh, but So I think there's a pause in there, but I, I don't quite remember uh, what happens next exactly? Again, this is the tale of the tape. So you know the tale, <laughs> the ta- the tape, the tape was magnetic. It got uh, exposed to you know charges. So then, uh, I guess we enter the next phase of their exploration. And from what I can remember, which isn't you know that that's not that not a ton. Like I remember. At some point, they re-encounter the Fratellis, uh, and then they have to go over this log. Uh, across, they have to cross this river, cross a log on the river. The Fratellis are right behind them. I don't know if, the, if this is the point that Chunk and Sloth rejoin them. Maybe not. Maybe that's later. Like, at some point, Chunk and Sloth become friends and then pursue their friends. But it, maybe that's like, maybe they just go by themselves. That's a good question. I have no idea what happened. So, but at some point here, like, they're crossing this log, and the Fratellis are real close, and they say, you know, we got you, kids. And then the kids, they run across the log. Then Dady uses uh, slick shoes, which is like uh, another James Bond car thing where you squirt oil out of the back of your car. He squirts it out of the back of his sneakers. And that slows the Fratellis down because the two guys can't get across the log and they get injured and Ma Fratelli gets mad. 
And the next test they encounter, I believe, is the, uh, like this, um, piano test. Uh, it's like this organ. And they realize that the, uh, the, they have to play the notes from the back of the map to get through, but the map's partially messed up. And Andy's the only one that took piano lessons. And if you play the wrong note, like a part of the ground, like part of the ground falls away, which actually is good. Like I never understood that because it like kind of gets rid of the way the Fratellis are following them. Uh, but there's a good joke in there because you say, well, I don't know is that it's blankety blank or B flat. And somebody says, if it's, if you're wrong, we'll all be flat. And I really liked that joke. Uh, and it, it becomes a teamwork, like Andy's the lead because she's the one that took the piano lessons and she's the one trying to solve it. But they're all trying to encourage her because, of course, she has doubts. Uh, because what if she's wrong? You know, that, that uh, and the set, I mean, the sets and all this were really, really cool. Like, uh, for a kid, it was just so cool. Like, stuff I'd never seen before at this quad, like, where it didn't, like, uh, I don't know where everything just fit together and all my beliefs were suspended or all my disbeliefs or whatever. So then they get, they solve that puzzle, but just barely. And actually I think they even like data has to save. I don't know if, how many people like data uses like a, like a slinky with a, like fake teeth to save himself and maybe a couple other people. Is there also a fake out where they think somebody else is gone and then they're all sad? I don't know. You don't know if that that happens. But they solve that and a door open, like a big door opens. They go through that door. And then at some point they get on a water slide, which was cool, but never made, like, and I thought about the mapping. I said, okay, they're up high and they take the water slide down. But it was like clearly like a water slide with just a few decorations uh, added to it, and it looks so much fun. Like the watching the the actors and actresses go through the water slide, especially as a kid. But it for some reason just stuck out to me too. I was like, what? What's with the? That's a water slide. Uh, but it, like I said, would you? And then just thinking about One Eyed Willie's construction team. I was always like, how did how they pull that off? But whatever they did. So let's see. So when I so then they go down the water slide and then they end up in this great lagoon, and then they see a giant ship. And I think another point, like it's famously cut out of the movie. Uh, there's like a silly part with like uh like uh like what do you call that? Like a like fish friends where fish friends come, but that part was cut out of the movie. And I think you can see it on YouTube. I don't know if it's on the DVD. I don't even know if I have a way to play a DVD at home, but, uh, whatever, but not, not super important. Um, but so they see one eyed Willie's ship and then they get on one eyed Willie's ship and that's cool. But it's like Mikey, like the cool things are like Mikey is now like really coming of age and he's really their leader, and he gets to have a moment and and take it all in, and then they have a moment where they like they're really basking in like uh, how they beat One Eyed Willie, but also respectful. Like Mikey's like, okay, we're only going to take what we need. We're not going to steal all One Eyed Willie's stuff. And one key thing here is the marble bag. Like at some point. 
I don't know who it is. Uh, I don't even know what character it is. Uh, I guess it's Mikey, like has a marble bag of marbles and they trade the marbles for gems. But everyone's like taking gold. I mean, it's just a, like a treasure ship full of tri- pirate, pirate booty, I guess. And everyone's very happy. And that's it. Like it's victory. But of course, it wouldn't be a movie without one last like a turn. So everyone's happy. I don't know again. I guess at this point, Chunk and uh, uh, Sloth still haven't caught up quite yet. And there's also a little tiny subplot that like Earl, like Chunk liked, or uh, Sloth liked watching Earl Flynn movies. And of course, they liked eating Baby Ruth. Or, or Lawrence had had a baby Ruth that he shared with Chunk. But so the Fratellis come and they, they kind of like, it's a, like a slow surprise. Like my Fratelli just says, ha, 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 you know. And then they take all the gold back from the kids and the kids are defeated. And then they make the kids walk the plank. And you say, geez, like, uh, this is like terrible. Like not only, hopefully the kids will just get to go home. But, uh. You know, like, and also Mikey, like, cautions his before, you know, he says, let's not be too greedy, which is an important part, I guess. And then Chunk and Sloth come in uh, Earl, Earl, Earl Flynn fashion, save the day and uh, save all their friends. Now they have to, I guess, every, you know, it's like you have to choose, like, do you want the rich stuff or do you want to get away? And they say, let's get away. Because uh, they still can't defeat the Fratellis. But then the Fratellis are too greedy, so they set off this uh, contraption. I guess in for, is this like in a, like, what are those called with the, oh, I don't, I can't think of the name of it, but like one of those things that, uh, you know, a very complicated machine that uh, decides to cave, like, to, like, open the cave that the ship is, is sitting in and activate the sailing ship to go sailing, uh, but also causing, like, a lot of, uh, like, stuff falling from the ceiling and stuff. Uh, so, like, uh, the, the kids got to get out of there, basically. And so everybody, like, makes a run for it. Uh, and then they, uh, like, they, then they can't find it, and then they finally, they, you need sloth strength to, to move this one rock. Like, they're about to get away, then this rock falls. And then uh, Chunk and Sloth have become very uh, uh, close. And, uh, like, it, but Sloth has, like, Sloth decides, well, I'll save these kids, but maybe I won't, like, uh, get away. And it's a very heartfelt moment because you can tell Lawrence and Sloth are connected at the heart. And that they love each other. And, you know, Lawrence even says, oh, you know, like, you could come live with me. I don't know. It's just a touching moment. And, you know, it's seemingly Sloth makes a sacrifice so the children can get away. Uh, then the children get away, and then they realize, bummer, like, uh, we got away, but, uh, you know, we didn't get any gold, so we kind of failed. But we realized, you know, the importance of friendship and teamwork and love. So that's pretty sweet. So we could carry, you know, we're just kids, so we got a whole life to live. So we got that going for us. And then they encounter, like, that they've been gone for a while. And so, and I don't think we, like, uh, there's a lot of product placement in this movie. Not that that's a criticism, but I think there's a, 
they either have pizza or KFC waiting for them. And I always said, whatever, whatever fast food they had, we didn't have in Syracuse at the time. And I remember, you know, not being able to reenact every scene of uh, Goonies was hard. Not being able to, I don't know if it was pizza or, uh, or fried chicken, but, uh, or something else. Oh, maybe it was Dunkin' Donuts. I think it was probably Dunkin' Donuts. But so then the parents have been looking for their kids, and so everyone's reunited, and it's like a very heartfelt moment, and we see all the kids' parents and how they're a reflection of one another. You know, that's kind of like a, a very, very dated, a little bit 80s. Uh, well, you know, not too bad. And then uh, we see that Mikey's kind of become a man, and symbolically, I don't think he needs his... Uh, inhaler anymore and i think he even kisses andy again maybe i don't know maybe that's projecting uh but you know there's multiple levels of heroism everybody's a hero and all the kind like small conflicts like between martha stewart and or martha plimpton and mouth that have been resolved and they like each other and I think Data realizes that he's more than, a, like, he's the greatest invention, I think, is what his parents say or whatever. You know, he's more than his, uh, like, he's just fine. He doesn't need a bunch of flashy, uh, cube-like invented objects. And then Chunk realize, like, realizes that he loves Sloth, and they're reunited, and then the Fratellis are get uh, in trouble uh, and then also, to, like, to, to, like the police realize that Lawrence, you know, it, it, sometimes he tells the truth. And not everything is a tall tale. And also, the like, uh, the thing with the developer, the developer shows up at that moment to, like, foreclose on all the property. So maybe it was, I, I don't know, it was a foreclosure situation. Maybe he bought all the mortgages. I, I don't know. Or maybe the dad owned all that property, Mikey's dad, whatever. Like, uh, Mikey's dad has to sign away. Like, they picked that moment to sign away. So it's like a, like a, no, this must have really been tough deciding, but it really adds to the motion because uh, it's kind of unexpected to say, okay, they're going to, the end of the movie is they lose their housing and he's signing it away. But then at the same time, this housekeeper that they'd hired at the beginning, she's going through Mikey's jacket and she finds these rubies. And she says, don't sign, you know, no sign. And uh, she says, I found these rubies. And everyone tells the developer where to take it. You know, they say, take it to the White House all the way to the top. I mean, they first hit the road. And then the developer says, well, I'll show you. You know, because they even, like, write on his, like, nice coat with a pen. And then the next thing we see is, like, the, the pirate ship going out to sea. And, you know, everyone says, oh, I guess that's when they say, oh, you're not a liar, Lawrence. It really was a pirate ship. And, I mean, as, even as a kid, I said, well, who owns the, the, the rich? Like, can't they just go get that ship? Where's the ship going to go? Why did one eye Willie make the ship uh, go back into uh, shipping mode? And then, two, once they bring the ship back, who gets the money? Like, I think I said that. Like, do they really have the rights to the rubies? Because uh, Mikey had them on him, you know. What is that? I guess possession is nine-tenths of the law, they say. 
so those were always questions I had. And this was like a time like in the 80s where this idea of treasure hunting, like I don't know if when last time that became hot it was, but I remember there was like an NBC show with like uh, maybe someone related to Jacques Cousteau. Maybe Jacques Cousteau was on it. Uh, and, uh, like, so everyone, like, this idea of uh, treasure hunting was cool. And then the, the, this adventure. And if you've seen, like, Stranger Things, you've never seen Goonies, like, go ahead and see it. And then, the only, like, I'm, I was always waiting for the next Goonies. And I think Super 8 might have been the closest thing. And there could have been things I missed in between Stranger Things and Goonies. And they're definitely different, a lot different tonally. Uh, but on a, like, whatever spirit level, they're very, uh, very close. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't know if Goonies was PG. I don't know what you'd rate uh, Stranger Things. But I think one thing that works is, like, the casting and the acting. And that's where the heart, that's where, like, that's where Stranger Things, I think, uh, in Goonies, I guess I'm, I'm like it's too bathed in nostalgia, but like where, wow, the performances you get out of youth make or like really, the uh, project really hangs on that. You can have all that great stuff, but if you don't have kids, they can come off naturally and have some sort of innate joy in adventure they're able to transmit to the audience, uh, you know, that we can project onto them as characters. Like you get like this, so I don't know how they pulled that off with Stranger Things or with Goonies, where you're just like able to. You're not like you're not just why you know you're really going along for the ride, and both of them have bikes, but people on bikes, so that's important. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to like like it, but but like there's like two bad sets of bad news bears movies, and I think there's just like a hard thing when you have professional child actors. Like, and then you can tell they're acting, especially when they're trying to act like they have sass. And again, this gets confused with the nostalgia and memory, but my memory of the original Bad News Barrier movie with uh, Walter Matthau was that it was unbelievable. And I think it was even old when I was a kid, but I would watch it probably on WPIX. And uh, then at some point I did see the newer one, and it just kind of felt like too... It just was like, uh, it felt like ac- like it was acting. And it's not like a criticism. It's just an example of how high the bar, and it was, again, like, and I know this has been over-talked by all of us, but uh, just how mind-blowing, it, like uh, the Duff Brothers and everyone involved in that production of Stranger Things. Holy cow. And, you know, it does, it's also, I feel, feel for them because you think about uh, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson in, like, True Detective. And then, like, the, the, like, like I, didn't even, I didn't have HBO when season two came out, but I know it was uh, not, not the same. And you really got to feel for everybody because you say, Jesus, it's just a lightning in a bottle or not. And... Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't even know what I'm talking about sometimes. But I mainly, I'm just super impressed, and also just lucky that I had the opportunity to like be like a. I don't know. And I guess if anybody's listening still, I'd love to hear. You know, if you're older than me or you're younger than me, you know, what was your Goonies like? What was that adventure movie or adventure TV show that drew you? 
along like a string, it, like uh, pulled on all, pulled on your mind and your heart and your gut, uh, took you along for the ride. I don't know. It's a special thing. It's a special thing. These, uh, these, these are achievements, and I guess they're recognized, and they're recognized by uh, everybody should get paid well that's on there, and you should get praised. And I don't know. Uh, and I guess I maybe need to revisit Super 8 because I remember one time I saw it. And, I mean, I remember there was talk around it like, oh, maybe this will be the next Goonies. And it was also uh, Spielberg was involved in both productions. And he is one of my heroes. When I was a kid, that's who I wanted to be. So I don't know. Uh, so that's it. Uh, thanks for uh, coming along for the ride, uh, uh, Andy. You goonie. That's me, Andy. Uh, you're goonie checking out. Good night. All right, everybody. So it's time for another Tale of the Tape uh, episode. While we take a little break from uh, this, uh, what do we call it? Star Trek The Next Generation. I wanted to do three movies that had a major impact in my life. And this one that we're going to talk about tonight is the one... The movie itself didn't have the biggest impact on my life, but the mo- the movie did. Well, no, no, the, the the content of the movie did not have the impact, but the movie itself did have the biggest impact, probably in my life, of almost anything. Like uh, uh, when you just talk about one thing, like reading books, obviously had the biggest impact, but that was a c- c- combination of things. And reading Hocus Pocus by Vonnegut. When I was in high school, it kind of changed a lot of things for me. Uh, but this movie, it wasn't so much about the art of the film. And uh, like, so we'll get into the movie. Well, the mo- name of the movie is, uh, oddly enough, I changed the name of the movie because this is a sleep podcast. Uh, but it's the James Bond movie, A View to a Kitten, it's called. A View to a Kit, a Kitten. And uh, it's uh, it's a Roger Moore James Bond movie. It came out in the late 80s or the mid, like 85, 84, 85, 86. I'm not sure which of those. And I'm not sure if this was the first James Bond movie I saw, but it was definitely the first one I saw in the theater. And I saw it multiple times in the theater. So here, here's what I guess we'll talk about tonight. Like I'll talk a little bit more about my experience with A View to a Kitten, this movie. And then I'll talk about, you know, probably like uh, talk about, uh, let's see, James Bond movies and that. And then we'll talk about the kind of plot that I remember. And this is a tale of the tape episode. We've just started doing these when I was trying to remember the plots of movies that I barely like that. I even like this one. I've probably seen this movie 30 times. And I said, huh, what, what was it like? I remember something. So it's interesting. Tale of the tape uh, my mental tape that runs in my mind about the movie. Uh, so here's the circumstances as I remember them. I don't know if this is fact or, or memory, uh, but I think this movie came out the same year as Goonies and Back to the Future, but I'm not positive on that. When I remember seeing this movie at the same theater, I saw Back to the Future and Goonies, a movie theater uh, that was just in a shopping center plaza. Like, this was back before. There was multiplexes. The malls had movie theaters, but the, these smaller cinemas still existed in these non... Like, now smaller cinemas like exist in urban centers, uh, you know, downtowns, the cities, and art districts. Uh, this was just some one on a commercial street with, like, uh, there was a drugstore, supermarket, uh, 
I think it was next to the dry cleaner, to be honest with you. And it was a two or three screen theater. And it was really where my youth, like my first, like, uh, other than a couple movie experiences I had, like as an individual without going with my family, uh, and so I saw this movie, A View to a Kitten, uh, here, and I remember just thinking again, I, I knew it wasn't, uh, I mean, I had some awareness that it wasn't on the same level story-wise and content-wise as Goonies or Back to the Future, but it still was just a wonderful thing that swept me away. And then, as I said, later on, like, as I was seeing the movie over and over again, I was playing with my G.I. Joes. And again, I was too old. I was probably in sixth grade or between fifth and sixth grade, maybe. And I was playing with G.I. Joes. And I remember I was in the, like, on the front, in the front of my house outside. You know, it's kind of recreating and rewriting a snow scene from the movie. Uh, with a snowmobile and G.I. Joe, and, and I was wishing I had the G.I. Joe skis, the G.I. Joe that came with the skis, so I could recreate even more. Uh, but so, like, and that was the moment I realized people make these movies. Other than Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis, I said, w- w- there's people making these movies. And unfortunately, at the time, I didn't give Richard Donner any credit or uh, Broccoli's or Ian Fleming or whoever else was involved in the James Bond films. But uh, I, I just remember thinking, holy cow, there's people that worked on this movie. I can't believe it. That's what I want to do one day. And like I've said in the podcast before, like who would have known the circuitous route I took to get to telling stories? Uh, but it, like I think if I told the kid that, that I was playing with the G.I. Joes, like, well, you get to play G.I. Joes in a different way, in a lulling, soothing way. You think that useful, and then say, and you're trying to figure, and you'd be trying to figure out a way to do it for a job. Uh, I think that youthful part of me, like, would be very happy with with the circumstances of the podcast. Uh, so, like, so, so I get to see the movie. I was seeing it with my friend Bo, probably some of my other friends like Pat and Kyle, and we we're using our savings from our paper routes to go see this movie. And then my friend Bo uh, also purchased the soundtrack to this movie. And man, what a, like, a, there was the instrumental part of the soundtrack. And then that would connect us to Goonies because Data liked to play the James Bond theme or the 007 theme on his boombox. But man, I can remember playing this. There was a Duran Duran song that was the title song. That you know, all these Bond movies and have the these uh, title sequences that have these kind of surreal, like just cool montages along with the song. And this title song was made by Duran Duran, and I really can't believe it wasn't a bigger hit because it was it was an awesome song. Like, do yourself a favor, look up Duran Duran, A View to a, a Kitten but just changed it to, to the real title of the movie. And uh, let's see. And I just remember, like, it was, just, it was if you like Duran Duran, it was just a really good song. It had all those, uh, it's going through my head. It, like, it, it had, like, soaring Duran Duran melodies and hitting all the notes. Just the stuff you like about Duran Duran, for the, you know, two, Duran Duran, two or three Duran Duran songs, I know. I'm not sure I can name another one without embarrassing myself and saying, well, it's not Duran Duran. That's, uh, you know, Dixie's been whatever. I say, okay, well, I know Duran Duran. I hope Duran Duran made this. And I remember Duran Duran kind of had a second, like maybe five or six years after this, 
like the early 90s, they had a little comeback. They had two other mild hits that I enjoyed, but they weren't like the 80s Duran Duran sound. So it had a great song, great soundtrack, and, you know, good to play play G.I. Joe too when you're too old or imagine, you know, go and pretend you're a spy. And that was another thing Bo and I did when we were, I guess, fifth and sixth grade. So if your kids are still playing, like we would play spy in um, – I even remember, like, climbing on roofs of uh, things and, like, pretending I was a spy. And I guess this is sixth—I don't know how old you are in sixth grade, but that's what I was doing in sixth grade, pretending I was Roger Moore. Or sometimes I was pretending I was Data uh, from Goonies, pretending he was Roger Moore or James Bond. And I know Roger Moore is not exactly considered the pinnacle of uh, of James Bond's, but for me at the time, he he was the only James Bond I knew, which would cause me problems like later in life. And I think this may have been Roger Moore's last uh, run as James Bond. And if if unless I'm mistaken, it was a long time for, between A View to a Kitten and then uh, Timothy Dalton was the next Bond, I think. And I don't think it was till like ninety one or ninety two uh, that he, he he had his first movie out. So this is a little bit of a gap. So for me, like seeing James Bond on the big screen, and again, I hadn't. I don't think I'd seen any uh, Sean Connery James Bond movies yet, or the gentleman George Lazenby. I think was uh, was there anybody else other than Connery, Lazenby, and then Moore. And then it was Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan and now Daniel Craig. And I think they've all, like, done a pretty good job. And I don't want to get into a discussion about James Bond movies because that would really take us off track because we're just talking about this one. So let's see. the uh, So we saw it in Roger Moore. I think that's it. I think we should just get into the content if I can remember. And maybe I'm buying time. So, just in case anybody hasn't seen a James Bond movie, now this one, interestingly enough, it took place at, the, I think it was still the height of the Cold War. I mean, maybe not. I mean, facts aren't my strong suit, but there was really a very little Cold War action. And this was like a, for the most part, a domestic movie, though it did typically take place in other cities. Uh, the the big action at the end took place in the Bay Area and, and very predictive of the future because it was a bit like it ended up it was about Silicon Valley in the end. And I don't know if that's another reason I ended out ended up out here. It's, it's totally possible that by seeing uh, that and then seeing uh, stuff about uh, uh, San Francisco, in my uh, like book, like that I fell in love with the Bay Area at this age and it changed. You know, I said, well, I got to live there. I did say that. I just had an obsession with Alcatraz and then the Transamerican Pyramid. I don't know why, but I said, well, I like, I like those things, and I'd like to be close to them. So let's see, a view to a kitten. It's really going to be a lot of editing this episode if you're listening. A poor editor, because they keep, every time I say a view to a kitten, before that I say the actual movie title. And it's a bit of an extreme title for a movie that's pretty uh, not not super action-packed. And I think the the movie poster had the Golden Gate Bridge on it. And the reason being is, like, the, the movie ends on the Golden Gate Bridge, or almost ends, you know, like it has a little epilogue or whatever. But I think the action comes, maybe it doesn't come to a close. I'm pretty sure it does, though, on the Golden Gate Bridge. 
So it started Roger Moore's 007. Uh, M and Q, no idea. I mean, I think Q was still played by the person who played Q, whose name escapes me. And M, I don't have any idea who played M. I cannot picture M in my head. Like, I don't know. Judy Dench is is a great M, so I'm I'm happy with that. And Q, uh, I almost had his name, but now I can't. I still can't think of it. His name keeps popping in and out of my head. Uh, as many people know, Bond, especially at this time, was like loathed Bond girls. So I think it was Tanya Roberts was the, the actress that played the Bond girl, but I'm not I'm not 100% positive on that. Also, marketing. What's interesting is the marketing. I think this was right around the time. I don't know if Sharper Image had been around uh, before this, but Bo, who I said was my friend, his dad got the Sharper Image catalog. And they had huge tie-ins with this movie. And I can remember looking at the sharper image at Bo's house and one, waiting to say, one day I'll be rich and I can buy, you know, movie replicas of the uh, uh, movie repl- replicas of the movie. What do you call them? Uh, I don't know. The, the things you use in a movie. I can't think of what they're called. Uh, but those things, so like like uh, what, what all the things, that, all the little gadgets and stuff. And that's when Sharper Image, this was before Sky Mall, when Sharper Image was your, your go-to thing for uh, cutting-edge technology. Don't know if that's the case, and I, I, don't, I don't know. And if you want to be smooth like Bond, you would, you know, you'd spend all your money at the Sharper Image uh, catalog. So Roger Moore, Tanya Roberts, and then the uh, the uh, antagonists. Oh boy! Now the, I mean, I, I I am surprised at this like the level of uh, uh, two two great antagonists in this movie, and Christopher Walken and Grace Jones. And you want to talk about a one-two punch uh, of like. Uh, like that makes like that's why the like I still look back at it and I say what a what an awesome what cho- awesome choices. Yeah, so we had and they were like uh, so Chris we'll get into the, who they were but Christopher Walken was the uh, antagonist leader and Grace Jones was like uh, like I don't know what they call that like what what are the other characters called. Like, not the right-hand person, but their, like, their action person. Like, Grace Jones was the badass, and she's, you know, that's pretty simple. I mean, when you think about Grace Jones, you say that total badass. And let's see, there was also a couple other, like, sidekicks, a male and a female. Pretty sure the male was uh, the same actor who was in one of the Beverly Hills Cop movies, but I'm not sure. And the other female lead antagonist, uh, I just remember her from the horse part of the movie. So the movie, like the James Bond movie, there's usually a pretty set uh, structure, uh, though I don't like it always opens with a set action piece. Then the James Bond theme, uh, the, the, the title song. And then the plot of the movie. So kind of like a little teaser, like unrelated action at the beginning. And this one, if, as far as I remember, it opens in the mountains. And it's pretty cool because, like, it's all in white and everybody has the, like, so, like, since I was big into G.I. Joe, 
like playing G.I. Joe's, it was always cool, to, like when people would have their snow gear, because you'd be like, that's so cool that they have all white so they can blend in with the snow. Uh, no one bothered, you know, say, well, they're animals that live in the snow, they, this, that's their net. And I said, okay, great. Well, this is more about the action. I don't really remember a whole lot about it, other than that, uh, like, what usually happens is James Bond, in this case, Roger Moore, is trying to get down a mountain and, and, and like, either, uh, like, with something or trying to catch up with someone headed down a mountain uh, to get him to, like, to get something back. And, you know, there's people, like, okay, so I think this was, like, I don't know when snowboarding started, but I do think this happened in the movie, but I'm not positive on this. Uh, one problem is that there wasn't that long before Roger Moore was in another, like, movie, Al- Alpine James Bond movie, where he was protecting an ice skater. And I think that was a tie-in to one of the uh, Winter Olympics. I don't know if it was the 84 Olympics or the 82, but 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 so it's a little bit tough to pick out. But I do remember one detail is that, like, Roger Moore, like a, like a snowmobile, he was chasing, being chased by a snowmobile. And this was back when skiing was a main thing, and he was using his ski poles, and he was skiing, and then, and then he did something to stop the snowmobile, but the snowmobile kind of uh, like went to pieces. So then he got one of the front uh, sleds of the snowmobile, made it into a snowboard, and headed down the rest of the mountain. And I always thought that was cool, like uh, he was snowboarding. Essentially, I guess he was a sled, snowmobile sled boarding. But he'd headed down the mountain, and I don't really remember anything other than that. And I don't know if this was one where he uncovered a plot, like he got to the bottom, and he caught the person, and they said, well, why is this person to have plans of the geological surveys of the Silicon Valley of California, or something like that? But, like, it it didn't make a whole lot of sense, Uh, but anyway, he... uh, he, 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 I don't know, he skied and, and snowboarded and there was a lot of action and it was cool. And jumping and, you know, stuff like pop, popping and all that stuff. So that was the opening. And then there was the Duran Duran uh, song, which again, beautiful, beautiful song. I, do, I don't understand why that's not even replayed on 80s stations. Really great 80s song. Not a hit, but you'll recognize it. And if you like, I don't know what Duran Duran does with their voices. What do you call that? Like, uh, it's not singing. They don't sing high, but they sing like this emotional burst. Uh, do do like I don't want to get into music. Um, but so that was cool. And then and I don't really remember like the the details. I think because this is like around the same time. Uh, maybe before. No, maybe this is well before George Michael. Yeah, because George Michael said, let's talk about sex. I think that was in 87 or 88. And that movie, that video for that song reminded me of, uh, maybe because it had like a black light and glow paint on. It just reminded me of a view to a, a view to a, it just reminded me of a view to a kitten's uh, a title, title, uh, whatever you call it, the beginning of the James Bond movie. Now, what happens after the title of the James Bond movie? Like, normally that's where uh, James gets set, sent to investigate. Like, something's amiss in Her Majesty's Royal Service or whatever. 
Yeah, but no one quite knows what's happening. Something insidious is going on. So in this case, from what I remember, is that James was sent to Paris because some, you know, in the, this was confusing, I guess, to a kid, like some ambassador or some high-profile French official or American official that was on some sort, you know, they were supposed to be watching over, and maybe he was supposed to meet... I don't remember if he was supposed to meet James for dinner or I guess, yeah, like some, so maybe there was an informant and they said, James, you got to go to this restaurant. And, and what was confusing was the restaurant was in the Eiffel Tower, I think. And not only that, it was not just a restaurant. It was a restaurant with performances and not just any performances, but the restaurant, um, was like had this like they do this a lot in Prague. I don't like a. I think they call it Blacklight Theater in Prague. I don't know a hundred percent if this was the case, but I what I'm picturing is like a, it was a butterfly puppet show with great like very good music and like so it would appear if you're watching it that butterflies are floating on the stage and they're floating to music. I don't know if there was any actors. But there was puppeteers disguised so you wouldn't know they were there. Kind of like you see, like, when you think about the Lion King musical or any of those, uh, like, uh, newer Disney uh, stage musicals. Like, those are a little, uh, you, you know what I mean, where they're meant to blend in, the, the puppeteers. And so if my memory serves me, like, James is, like, meeting James Bond. I'm talking about Bond, James Bond is meeting with this gentleman and like they're having lunch. It was definitely lunch because the restaurant was lighted. And at some point we see Grace Jones and she sneaks in and not only is she total badass, but she's also a puppeteer. So I don't know if she was a puppeteer under disguise or if she uh, replaced a puppeteer, you know, when they didn't, they didn't approve of that. But she gets dressed clad all in black, a bit like a ninja, which in the 80s was the height of ninjas, too. And not only does she start the puppet show, but she starts doing it to an extreme level. And then she uses one of the uh, one of the butterfly puppets to uh, um, uh, deliver a sleeping aid uh, to the informant, James, the informant James Bond's talking to. And James Bond doesn't figure it out until it's already done. So then he chases after her. And, like, they run up the Eiffel Tower. And there's, like, a lot of action. Maybe there's some hench people, hench persons. Is that how we refer to them now? Hench persons. And he's trying to get to the top of the Eiffel Tower. And he's like, well, I totally got her. And he's like, he doesn't realize that this is Grace Jones, TBA. So he chases her to the top of the Eiffel Tower. Again, I'm sure there was other action like jumping and elevatoring. And the problem is it gets a little mixed up with Superman 2 or Superman 3. I think that was Superman 2. When there's trouble at the Eiffel Tower and then Superman, uh, that's when Superman sends it into outer space, the elevator, uh, which frees those three up in outer space. I can't remember. They, they know the character is, is, is Zod. I think Ember Zod. Maybe that's from Ghostbusters, but it doesn't matter. So he's chasing Grace Jones to the top of the tower and trying to figure out what she's up to. And then at some point, she parachutes uh, off of there. 
and James can't do anything about it. And I think her parachute was even, I don't remember, it was something funny, and she gets away. And I, I would want to say that there's a boat chase sequence, but maybe there isn't one in this movie. Though in most James Bond movies, there's also, in France particularly, or in the River Thames, or another, you know, Bosphorus, whatever. You know, the Rhine, you, you give me the Danube, you, you give me a, you, you give me a grand European river. And it, it also in Louisiana and the Mississippi, I think there was even one. I don't know if there's one on the East River, but usually you give me a grand urban river and I'll give you a James Bond boat chase or something like it. Also police academy in Miami, I think there was one. And that was pretty, for my, if my memory serves, that was a pretty good one, too, even though it, was, it also had comedy. So, in a, probably around the same time. But so, Grace Jones gets away, and now James Bond, go, you know, at some point he checks back in. On a boat, boat chase or no boat chase, uh, James Bond's on the case, and he has one clue, but I just don't know what clue it was. But the clue, he meet, so he meets with uh, Q and M and the rest of the like uh, his administrative squad or whatever you want to call it. And then they say they're looking into this, uh, I don't know if, I think James Bond's undercover name is Sinjin Smith in this movie. It is. And let's see, what, what else do I need to know? So at some point he re- they realize, okay, we're on to this guy. Of course, I can't even think of his name. Maybe I'll remember it. it oh, yeah, because the whole co- corporation was named after him, like Oscorp, but it wasn't Oscorp. That's from Spider-Man. I think it was a Z. I think his name starts with a Z, so maybe we will figure it out. But they realize that this guy, played by Christopher Walken, like is he's up to something. And he's also big into horses and horse racing. And they they think they even suspect, maybe they don't suspect. Because I want to say that James gets a, one of the things he gets is a like a, what is that called? A thing a, a horse rider would use. But I don't really remember much about their meeting. But he goes, and this I think takes place in the English countryside. And this is some American played by Christopher Walken. So he's playing himself. And I guess that's all I really remember is that uh, he's playing himself and Grace Jones works for him. I think they suspect, I don't know at one point they suspect this, but that he's like engineered. He's an engineered human maybe. And he's got some albino features, I think. I'm not sure about that. Like, But also he's uh, he's out there. Uh, but he's also very intelligent, very, you know, he's got all those uber uber qualities. Also super rich. Uh, I almost said his name. It, it almost popped in my head. I'm pretty sure it does start with a Z, so we'll probably remember it. Zarkon, not Zarkon. That's uh, Flash Gordon, I think, or Zarkov. So let's see. where. So so he, he goes to this English horse farm, undercover as Sinjin Smith. Why I remember that of all the things, I have no idea. And, of course, even as a lad, even as a young child with, who was good at suspending his disbelief, I could always, was always troubled when James would go undercover. I mean, in, in reality, it was always with a wink and a nod anyway because everyone knew it was James Bond. But that always would pull me out of the story a little bit. I'd say, come on, give me a break. Everyone knows who James Bond is. He's 007. 
shaking not stirred. You know, someone orders a drink and they say shaking not stirred. You know, get the hell out of there. You know, don't even say say sorry. I refuse service. We we have the right to refuse service. I don't serve anyone that orders martini, vodka martini shaken not stirred, uh, dry. You know, unless you like, you know, your lovers on the dangerous side, which I, you know, I don't like. I don't, especially like James Bond. It's not my thing. And even if you do, you'd say, okay, well, could we do the love making and then I'll do the uh, the shaking and the stirring? You know, I don't. Why don't we get that over with and then I'll do the drink making? But so he goes out to this English horse farm or English whatever you call it, like stables. This is his like, and they get a view. And who who Felix Leiter is one of James Bond's sidekicks. But another thing is, I don't know if it's another agent. I think it was another British agent. Is has to accompany James as his uh, what do you call that? The drive is his limo driver. And so that was kind of funny because it was a, a good comedic actor. I can't think of his name, but he's definitely he was definitely in a lot of big, big things. So he's not super pleased about being James's, you know, James's uh, like butler. So James goes out to this thing, and everyone's uh, here's the things I remember. Everyone's tapping everybody. So James is tap like James finds bugs in his room. So then he plays a recording because uh, Christopher Walken has uh, all the rooms bugged. Also, everybody's bidding on horses, and they're trying to control the bidding on horses. Uh, Christopher Walken, like this horse scene, like, uh, I don't know if it's like 10, 15 minute scene. I, I, I really loved it. I don't know why. I think one Christopher Walken really shines here, uh, cause he's, he's just great. At some point, James, James and, uh, Grace Jones work out together. And I mean, and I mean that in every sense of the word. First, they do a little martial arts training. I think it, like Christopher Walken and Grace Jones are doing the martial arts training. Now I think about it. And then maybe, I don't know if James and Grace Jones just get straight to the uh, grappling, but they do some serious grappling. You know, there's a double cross, like there's a, like who who's James is pretending to be a rich art dealer. I think Sinjin Smith is like an art dealer. And also, Christopher Walken's character is kind of revealed to be a little bit petty, like that he they go on a like some sort of competitive horse riding thing, and he's bending the rules to make himself. He's like a very close parallel to Christopher Walken's character is Joff uh, from Game of Thrones. I think maybe I made this point in one of the Game of Thrones episodes. I mean, Christopher Walken, because Christopher Walken, because of his voice and his personality, he's like a slightly more likable because he's a bit of a like a hammy buffoon where Joff, when he, Joff's like a, like, so when Christopher Walken's character is crying for out for attention, it's easier to watch than when Joff's doing it. But other than that, maybe maybe he's got a little Ramsey Bolton in him, but but not the uh, nasty side. Christopher Walken's character, I guess, maybe he does a little bit. But so James reveals that uh, James finds out he's got like a super lab that he's making, uh, like cheating at horse racing, and so we get like a secret lab that's in a horse stall. That was that was cool. Uh, we could see like old moneyed Europe or something like that. James Bond undercover, Grace Jones under the covers with James Bond. 
Then there's a horse race, and I, I think, uh, oh, yeah, they said they cheated on the horse races by, like, having some kind of remote control. And I don't know if this was at the height of, like, horse racing in the U.S. Or why? Because it did feel like, a, like a, I enjoyed it because of Christopher Walken and Grace Jones and Roger Moore. Also, at some point in here, James Bond teams up with Tanya Roberts. I don't know if this is the point where he finds her investigating uh, but at some point he does, and then at some point James's cover's blown because his limo driver takes a, takes a big long nap uh, pr- pretty much for the rest of the movie, and that kind of makes James mad because James he was an older you know friend of James's and a father figure type, and so James has got to get out of there. I don't really remember the details of that. It, like he's just like maybe he used the. Uh, Ejector seat probably was a car chase that I don't remember. Maybe with the limo and, and Tanya Roberts, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe there's a point with Grace Jones questioning her loyalty to Christopher Walken. I'm trying to think what else. Uh, that was like the biggest scene. That, that was what stuck with me the most. It was the most enjoyable. Uh, then at some point we also see that Christopher Walken's got himself a blimp and... He uh, is proposing to, like, the mafia. He's got all the mafia members uh, on the blimp, uh, all the heads of all the families. So now you can see where it's the kid. You say, okay, maybe they're reaching a little bit here. and, and Or maybe my memory is re- reaching. But he shows him the plan. He's going to take over. I think he wants to control 100% of the silicon in Silicon Valley, like uh, microchips and all that. And to think how right Christopher Walking's character was, it's, it's, I almost had it. I almost had the name of it, Z-something. But so he's in a blimp with the mafia. One mafia, he says, this is how much money I need, and then we'll control all of Silicon Valley. We're going to make it into a big lake. So that was the plan with Silicon Valley. Um, I don't remember much else about like uh, that. It, like he gets rid of one mafia guy. He says, "Hey, do, t- t- take a ride on this slide I have in this uh, this blimp." But he shows them the map. Maybe James was hiding out or Tanya Roberts, and that's how like so the exposition we see through James's eyes. I mean, that would make sense instead of a cutaway scene with just the antagonist. I can kind of remember that, like, but it gives me mixed up with uh, Die Hard, like James hiding under a table. But maybe that happened. I don't know how he would have got out of there. And then the movie moves to San Francisco. Might, might, other stuff may have happened there, but then the movie moves to San Francisco, and there's kind of three main things that I can remember about uh, the parts in San Francisco. One, there's a, ch- a chase uh, through the streets of San Francisco, probably Grace Jones. And uh, James, like James Bond and Grace Jones, chasing one another. Tanya Roberts. So at some point, James Bond's on a what are those called? A ladder truck from the fire department. He's in the front or he's in the back. Tanya, like they're dry. He's driving. She's driving because uh, they have the ones. And then there's a lot of action, you know, with the uh, the ladder. Like so, maybe they snuck in somewhere, and then the the like the fire department came, and they had to take the fire truck to chase uh, Grace Jones. I mean, that would make the most sense. But I mean, I'm not trying to throw anybody in the bus, but I did not enjoy the chase scenes because they were very, very fake. Or there was something else about them that that just stuck out to me. Whatever it was, I just remember thinking, eh, I don't like these chase scenes. 
And I think there was some attempts in humor and, and stuff. And I just did like, I don't know what I, it wasn't James Mondy for me. And then they uncover the next thing in the plot, which is like this way to flood Silicon Valley and make it into a lake. Oh, because he's also like mining. So they go down to his mine, Christopher Watkins mine. And of course they get caught. Uh, Tanya Roberts and James Bond. And this is right when, uh, whatever his name is, is, uh, like Christopher Walken's character is going to like flood Silicon Valley and he's going to go watch it from his blimp. So this is the big climax in the movie. And he's using the fault lines to, to do that. And with his drilling and James Bond says, of course, outrage. She said, Jesus, this is going to affect a lot of people. It's just not the economy. And you're just doing this to be, to enrich yourself. It's wrong. And he, he uses very strong language like that. But Christopher Walken just laughs. And then Christopher Walken says, listen, Grace Jones, you got to stop this James Bond or something. But then the last minute, Grace Jones realizes that James, like, that, that, that it's wrong and maybe, I don't know, maybe James was just like, like, just got the light in her. And then she realizes she wants to save the day. She wants to be a heroine because she's Grace Jones, you know, total badass. So then I don't know if it was like, like maybe after a battle, like, like with James Bond, like a back and forth, but there's something. And she realizes that she could make the sacrifice to save everybody in Silicon Valley. You know, thank goodness she did, because without it, I wouldn't have a podcast. So it's pretty great. Uh, solid state all the way. We owe you, Grace Jones. My heart is as solid as the state. Like, I don't know what to say. But she, so she makes the sacrifice and she it's very I remember that scene. She had a lot of emotion on her face. And I said, well, this Grace Jones is awesome. So then James has to stop, uh, or I don't know if he just has to catch Christopher Walken at this point, but they go up in the blimp. I think somehow he like climbs the rope to the blimp and then he climbs on the roof of the blimp and then he's trying to get in the blimp and Tanya, Tanya, maybe Tanya Roberts is in the blimp. So he wants to rescue her. That would make more sense. But also shows a, a terrible employer this guy is because he just leaves Grace Jones so then they fly to San Francisco, and then James and Christopher Walken have a showdown. And I guess the blimp gets caught. Like, at some point, they end up having a showdown on, the like, uh, the towers of the Golden Gate Bridge. I don't know if, like, the uh, the blimp got caught or what. But it's, like, a back and forth with, uh, you know, like, but, again, I don't think, like, the main things I remember about this movie enjoying were the horse scenes. And I'm not, like, a big horse person. I just liked uh, something about that. And then, you know, Grace Jones' sacrifice. Uh, that's, I hope I'm getting the right person. But I, I don't really remember much about this scene other than I said, geez, I'd like to walk up, and you know, I'd like to go up on the towers of the Golden Gate Bridge. But at some point, it's up there, the blimp's up there, and then they're going back and forth. But then James tricks Christopher Walken, maybe using, like, his last gadget. I mean, that's usually another thing. So then Christopher Walken thinks he's getting away in his blimp, but it ends up his blimp, you know, runs out of gas, we'll say. And then there's victory, and then there's probably a, a coupling scene with James and Tanya Roberts. And then the movie comes, you know, the movie comes to a close. So, yeah, I guess, like, looking back at it, I don't, I don't know. I'd like to rewatch it. I mean, you can't really go wrong with Christopher Walken. 
or Grace Jones. I'd like to, I guess, rewatch it to see if any of that happened in that order. Like to see if that restaurant was really in the uh, Eiffel Tower. Do they have an Eiffel Tower restaurant like that? Like lots of natural light and butterfly, you know, black light butterfly performers. Because that would be sweet. I mean, that would be something fun to do. And what else? I, like, uh, I wish I could remember Christopher Watkins' and the company's name. But it was like Z Corp or something like that. And to think he wanted to corner the market on uh, microchips, like that's pretty pretty uh, wild. It was a long time ago. But yeah, I kind of think that's it for the tale of the tape. I just remember watching that movie a lot, eating score bars. That was another thing. Uh, he said, one day I'll be rich enough to buy eight pack of score bars and go to a James Bond movie and eat them all. And I guess that was my first James Bond movie. And then I probably watched it. Then I, at some point, maybe when I got it, when Blockbuster, then I would watch a lot of James Bond movies. And then some would be on TV. But I think most of them I watched with my friends on VHS tapes. Uh, like, And then it took me a while to see them all. I mean, not until like my 20s did I see some of them, like uh, all of the, what do you call them, uh, Sean Connery ones. You may ask, what is my favorite James Bond or James Bond movie? It's a good question. I remember, I remember really being excited about the first uh, Timothy Dalton movie just because it had been so long. And that was one where he dealt with a drug cartel. And I think he had two love interests in that movie. And I remember like uh, being like, I remember seeing that in the movie theater and being really hyped for it and kind of being let down. And to be honest, that's sometimes like James Bond is one of those movies that are just so close to nostalgia that it's tough to totally ever deliver. I mean, I think it, Tim, or uh, what's his name? Roger Craig does a great job, like, as a James Bond. I really enjoy the movies. But again, it's like, like it's it's a tough to make movies like that. Like, let's just be honest. So, like, in, and then to have everybody's youthfulness tied to them. Uh, trying to think of other ones that stick out to me. That's, I mean, out of all the James Bond movies, this is the one that sticks out to me the most. And then the next one would be the first or second, maybe that's the second Timothy Dalton movie, because he had one where he's dealing with Russians and he went through a pipeline. But maybe that was the second one and he drives on the lake. And then, you know, we we had waited so long for Pierce Brosnan to be James Bond. I don't know if it was anticlimactic. The one thing, was it Timothy Dalton where he had more of, like, people were like, well, Bond's got his swagger back. Uh, he's a little bit tougher. And so I, so I but I don't know if, if that was it. Because remember, he, Felix Leiter, he had gotten married. And that's when the cartel dealt with Felix Leiter. And James was very mad about that. But I don't know. It's, it's, it's good to escape for a while, and I'm glad you escaped with me tonight with View to a Kitten with uh, Roger Moore, Grace Jones, Christopher Walken, and Tanya Roberts. Thanks, everybody. All right, so it's time for another one of these uh, Tale of the Tape episodes. I'm really tentative about this one. Um, so j- just so you know, I'm going to be like extra vulnerable. At least internally, and and maybe like the vulnerability is because uh, I really wanted to cheat on this one. That's what I'm, I'll be honest with you. Like I really want, like I, as I like started to scan my memory banks, there wasn't much in there, uh, and I said there should be a lot more in my memory banks about this movie. 
analyze, you know, my brain does that all the time. It says, does not com- compute, uh, you know, file not found. It was a lot of that, file not found. And I said, well, how come I can remember so little details about this movie that had a huge impact on my childhood? It was one of the most beloved movies of all time. Uh, but I can't remember even, <laughs> I can remember, it can only remember the set pieces, you know, these, uh, and then I said, then, then I did have a debate. This was about 10 days over the past 10 days. I said, well, maybe I should just look it up in Wikipedia. Maybe I should watch it. And he said, because it's going to be really embarrassing if I don't like, I don't even know where, how the movie starts. And I said to myself, Scoots, you could, you could do that, but like, uh, or you could parachute, you know, you could parachute, uh, and just let the listeners, and then I said, actually, this is a podcast to put people to sleep. And they said, no offense, Cisco, you're great. You're no Paul Shear. There's only one Paul Shear, and Paul Shear does his job. And he's in, you know, and you do your job. And both jobs, you know, they're, 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 they're important in different ways. And then I said, okay, well, and he said, yeah, but I, and I said, we can, you can do it. So without further ado, tonight, tonight we're going to be talking about Back to the Future. And obviously it's a, you know, it's the seminal 80s movie. I'm not even sure what's seminal, you know, very important. It didn't launch the career of Michael J. Fox, but it changed his career tra- trajectory, I guess you could say, because he was a beloved a TV actor, I think, at the time the movie came out on uh, Family Ties. Uh, but it was a huge, as I, the, these three movies that were doing Goonies, A View to a Kitten and Back to the Future had a huge, this summer they came out, whatever summer it was, 1980, I think it was 86, I think it was 85 though. I don't know if it was, the, I want to say it, it would make more sense if it was the summer between fifth and sixth grade. But it could have been the summer after sixth grade, between sixth grade and middle school. But uh, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm just being honest, I don't have any idea. But so this was a movie that uh, I can, t- like, uh, I can remember a lot of things. Much like A View to a Kitten, it had an amazing soundtrack, uh, a few Huey Lewis tracks on there. I don't know if they were Huey Lewis and the news or just Huey Lewis, uh, like, I think they're probably, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm not sure, but it, there was the big tracks, there was Back to back in Time and Power of Love, uh, and then there was also great instrumentals. Uh, I don't know if John Williams did those, but uh, whoever did them, or whomever, I, I think is probably the correct thing. But I, so I remember listening to that uh, with my friend Bo. Again, I didn't have the uh, soundtrack, but my friend Bo did, and uh, he he played. We played it a lot as we would ride bikes and whatever else we did. It like adventures and you know pretend. And I was again like, geez, why can't I be like like? Will high school be just like Back to the Future? And I think I went into it expecting that. I mean, I've talked about how TV and movies, like, its impact on me. I, I was honestly convinced between grammar school and then middle school that it was my grammar school that was the problem, not me. And then I said, okay, when I get to middle school, it's going to be just like Back to the Future and Degrassi and Silver Spoons, Who's the Boss, Growing Pains. It's going to be just like that. And I'm going to be that character, like, uh, the trickster hero 
And I wish a part of me would just sit down and be like, do, do, like, I guess you can't do that. This is what you have to learn by living life is they, well, you're not really, no, you know, that's great. You know, but Star Wars movies, like they need, please don't say I'm C-3PO. Star Wars movies, they do need a C-3PO. You, you know, and not everybody can be on Solo. Please don't say, please don't tell me 3CPO. And can't it just be Luke or something? And it's, it's, sorry, I'm just making it so, so, you know, not every high school can have. I'm a C-3PO in high school, and it'll be fine. You'll be fine. And it'd be way better if you embrace your your threes to the Cs to the Ps to the O. But actually, I got to correct you because I don't have any grasp of any language. It's not even the English language, so I can't be C-3PO. Well, no, you're just more like the essence of sleep. Okay, great. But so it did create a version of high school. Uh, there wasn't that many high school scenes in there, and I never decided. I, don't, I think I tried to learn the bass when I was a senior in high school, and I didn't I didn't learn the bass. Uh, but, like, and I told my siblings when they were young, I said, please learn an instrument, please, you know, so I can live vicariously through you. And, you know, they, they just like, I don't think my voice is worth much. You know, when you see the light, you say, okay, well, and it's exactly, don't, you don't want, don't be a three CPUs. You know, you want, don't, don't end up like me. I'm like a, I'm just like three PO. I don't even have the C because I can't, you know, I don't have the, uh, whatever his job was, uh, protocols and stuff. I guess that's the P. But so, like, I did have, like, an um, unrealistic version, like, that, that Back to the Future planted in my mind. And this was the first summer, as I've been saying with this progression, that I could go to the movies. And I definitely, I can remember after seeing Goonies, you know, that had changed. Like, uh, I said, I can't believe how good the movies can be. Like, how totally swept away it can, it can do, what it can do to you. And especially the romance of the movie theater. And the, the the total experience, but uh, like, I just couldn't believe that that experience of Goonies could ever be topped. And and it was, um, like I said, a view to a kitten was enjoyable. It wasn't um, life altering like Goonies was. And I can remember whether it was like ET, what was that show, ET Tonight or whatever, or something. One of those shows that's on like between getting home from school and dinner. Like they say, like, and maybe it was even, or maybe it was right before my dad comes home, maybe it was like, but they'd said, oh, do you see, if you thought Goonies was good, you know, St- Steven Spielberg's got something to show you. Cause there's a movie coming out next month called, ba- that, that's going to be, and I said, no, that's not possible that a movie could be better than Goonies. They said, I'm sorry, like I entertain E.T. tonight or whatever, you're fools. And, 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 and like, I didn't, I don't think I hardened my heart against it. You know, that, that's something that does happen a lot. You know, you hear people and, uh, you know, they go into movies with a, like an agenda not to like it. And it sometimes the movie can blow them away. But I was suspicious. I said, I don't see. And, and I said, well, it's a different, it's a, it, I, I do, I don't even think I knew what it was about when I, the first time I saw it, other than, you know, like, uh, there was the poster, which was the DeLorean with Marty McFly. And they think Doc Brown was off uh, off in the background of the poster. And there was the uh, uh, flaming tracks and probably the mall or something behind them. But I definitely was suspicious. I said, I don't think this could be as good as Goonies. But then uh, 
uh, the time came, and this would be my timeline. I could be totally off. Like I would guess if I had, if I was put to the test, that Goonies came out in like uh, May, and um, what do you call it? What what else? Came- then A View to a Kitten probably came out like beginning in the summer. Like so, I don't know if a Memorial. What is it? Is it Memorial Day starts the summer or Labor Day ends the summer? Right. So I don't know if Goonies came out near or around Memorial Day. Then View to a Kitten came out like right as as soon as the summer hit, you know. So maybe like June. And then if I had to guess, I'd say mid-June to July was when Back to the Future came out. But those are only guesses. But I know there was a gap of, of a month or two between Goonies and Back to the Future. And like, as I said, my memory banks don't hold like a lot of uh, thing about like, we'll try to go through the plot. And I think that'll be embarrassing for me and especially embarrassing because I have siblings and friends that have like these really accurate memories. Uh, But my mom, you know, my memory doesn't work quite that way, but that's fine. You know, we're all humans and uh, we all have, you know, our our positive and uh, not so positive features. Uh, but so back to the future. So I, at Lake, I can remember that by the time they got to the shopping mall, uh, at Lake, I, I was fully, I was beyond disbelief. I was beyond suspension of belief or disbelief. Like, uh, and Goonies, it, it wasn't like it, it didn't need to pale in comparison. It was like, this is something just as magnificent in a different way. I mean, a little bit like, uh, I don't know if they're both PG movies. I, I don't I don't have any idea about that, but like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Back to the Future, again, I, I think, I, I don't know when I, last time I saw either one. I'll be watching Goonies soon, and maybe I'll watch Back to the Future. I've probably seen Goonies more recently. I don't think I've seen either one in a long, long time. But, uh, yeah, I have no idea. Even on by accident on TV, I, I saw, I did watch them a Back to the Future 2, uh, like on a New Year's marathon or something. But I remember being in that theater, and by the time the scene at the mall came, I, I couldn't believe, like, like, I was gone. I was, in, I was there, and, and, uh, and then I craved having that experience again and again, and actually going to see it multiple times did not, uh, I mean, I don't know if I, how many times I saw that one, maybe five, maybe 10, maybe 20. I have no clue. I think during this summer, maybe between Review to a Kitten and Go- uh, Back to the Future, they upped the price to 225 for a child's matinee ticket or 250 So I do remember that being a little bit of an issue. Like, uh, like that, that, that was like, that was a lot for me, you know, it's 10% inflation or 15 or something. But so, like, so those are the things that I want to make clear. So how does Back to the Future start out? That's what, that's a question I'll probably be asking myself until everybody, until this episode comes out or I see it again. Because that one, I I don't really remember. I mean, I remember the scene at the mall, but like, so, so maybe we could work our way backwards from the mall. Uh, where Marty shows up the mall, like so. Um, at some point, Marty must go to Doc Brown's house, and I think that, like, so I, I don't know if we had met Doc Brown at all. So, like, at some point, maybe Marty goes to Doc Brown's house to get something, and there's a note to bring your video camera and meet meet me at the Hillsdale Mall. I think that's the name. And I said, she said, I wish I could go to that mall. Looks like the coolest mall in the world, even though it's closed and it was nighttime. 
But I think at some point Marty goes over to Doc Brown's house um, to, I don't know why, like, I'm trying to think how close they live to one another. Oh, maybe, oh wait, he goes to practice his, is that what he does? Is that where he practices the guitar and the guitar? Let's say that. So he goes back there and I guess that maybe that is a scene to practice playing a guitar because Doc has this giant speaker with a super powerful amp. And that's another cool scene where Marty, like, you know, Marty's just super cool. I mean, especially to a young male. Like, he plays guitar, he skateboards, he's got, like, good clothes that I, I don't even know where you'd purchase them. Like, Jean Jack, I don't even know if he had a Jean Jack, but let's in and pins, and he had good hair, sunglasses, a girlfriend, all those things, all those things I would, uh, I would, I would, I would have expected when I got to high school. And I'm, I mean, this might seem silly and sad, but it's true. They'd be like, oh, wow, like suddenly you have style and suddenly, but, it, you know, it's also fiction. I didn't quite realize that, uh, but, you know, we, we, you live and you, you live, you live and you suspend disbelief. That's what, that's what the dreams are made of, right? <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so let's keep working back. This is kind of actually helping. So at some point, Marty, so Marty goes to Doc Brown's house to play the guitar he blows out the speaker, gets shot across the garage or Doc's, like, workshop. Also, that's when we learn about Doc's inventions, because I think there's, like, a dog feeding invention, and we meet Doc's dog, Einstein. I'm guessing the dog's name's Einstein. And maybe we get a couple more clues about what Doc's up to. I think we see the... Uh, the the uh, uranium or whatever doc i think marty accidentally drops something and, and sees that or maybe we as the audience just see that so so we get a hint of who, who doc is and that marty has to meet him later and then i think between the mall like between the beginning of the movie and the mall mall scene there's probably three more locations marty's house the high school and the town uh, uh, the city. So let's see if we could get there. I would guess that he went from Doc's house to, to the his parents' house to the mall. So if we're working backwards, let's look. Well, let's. Well, yeah, I don't want to miss that scene. So, so, so I guess after Doc's, he probably goes to his parents' house, his his house, and we meet Marty's mother and his sister and his brother. And I think in the first movie, his mother's played by Leah Thompson. And uh, and then his brother and his sister are uh, I, I don't know the actor or the actress's names, uh, but you know it's like a lot of jokes are set up in this scene. So we learn about uh, Uncle Joey because he's getting out of jail. His mom's baking a cake. Uh, we learn that uh, I don't know, like uh, I think maybe like his brother and his sister. I don't know if they poo-poo on Marty's ideas, and then, uh, like, uh, I don't know if Marty has an issue because he doesn't have a car. Maybe there's some complaining around that. I think probably there is, though they could be another movie. They're talking about the big dance, I think, is one subject, and Marty's girlfriend. And then we meet Marty's dad, George McFly, uh, played by Crispin Glover. 
and, and, and I, if you listen to the podcast a lot, you'll know that I had McFly issues. When this, it, it was years after the movie, or a few years after the movie, I was in high school. And at some point, I decided to get go like get greasy with my hair, and I had, so I had kind of like a George McFly style haircut, and it wasn't intentionally to be cool. I guess it was like a part of my fur acceptance. So I had like a buzz cut, but like long hair, and I used a lot of grease, and I also had the same build as George McFly. And I mean, me and George George McFly have a lot of similarities, and you know, I was way more. I guess, yeah, who would I rather be, C-3PO or George McFly? Probably George McFly, uh, because at least, like, uh, no offense to C-3PO fans, but uh, at least George McFly is relatable, and, you know, like, C-3PO, so so I don't want to go on any anti-3PO things. It's not that I dislike C-3PO, I just don't want to be C-3PO, I'd rather be George McFly. I'm sorry, C-3PO. And I was, and then for a little while, this one kid, I think he was a year or two younger than me. I know his older brother's name. I can't think of his first name, eh, you know, and I'm not doing that on purpose, but that kind of feels good. I don't, I can't think of his name. Uh, I can think of his brother's name. He's got two brothers. Anyway, but he started calling me McFly. And he was the kind of kid, he was kind of like uh he bullied me a little bit, even though he's a year younger than me. Uh, but I think it was like one of those like friendship bully things. Like, I think he really wanted to be my friend. I never picked up on that. And I said, dude, like, uh, and he had two older brothers that were older than me. So he was probably, you know, he, it, it wasn't that big a deal. And, you know, I, and I wasn't the nicest kid either. So, so it was like, it was one of those cycle things. But he started calling me McFly and he tried to get people or he'd point out that I looked like McFly. And this was probably when the movie was out on VHS. Like, this was years after the movie had come out. And then at some point, this one of my classmates, Alicia, uh, sat me down. And, like, she said, listen. And I think it may be uh, Megan, too. Uh, and Alicia said to me, listen, you got to stop greasing your hair. It looks like, like she wasn't saying it in a mean way. She was saying it like in a... Like, uh, and again, I couldn't, I, I think I could barely separate that. I think she tried to sit me down like two or three times. She said, don't use the, just stop greasing your hair. And at first she, I think she went like soft cell and I took it as like an embarrassment. And then I, you know, got stubborn. And then one time she just sat me down. She said, you got to stop it. It just doesn't look, it, it makes you, you should, and then it makes it, it's embarrassing. You're embarrassing yourself almost. I think she even spun it nicer. She, like, she, she was very clear. She was trying to keep clear boundaries that she wasn't attracted to me, but that she was doing it as a friend, which is, I guess, a very delicate thing, especially with someone that's uh, personalities like George McFly. But she said, listen, you, you, like basically she, and then I did, I finally listened. And then it took me another four or five years to realize that my hair was a hopeless situation. But, uh, uh, but so, so, um, Let's see, where, so where, where are my points? So she tried to help me, and then I finally stopped greasing my hair. But uh, I was known as George McFly. But so in the movie Back to the Future, George McFly comes home, and yeah, Marty needs a car for the big dance. That was it, because maybe he was going to use his sister's car, and his sister's car like uh, got, got an accident. So then he needs his dad's car, who his dad had promised him the car for the dance. 
And then his, he says, Dad, I still get the car for the dance set. And I said, oh, no, Marty, I got to go. And then Biff shows up and, like, is uh, a clear, clear Biff Tannen. And uh, that's played by Tom Wilson. And someone sent me some uh, video on Twitter of Tom Wilson doing stand-up music. It was very funny. I think that's who plays Biff Tannen. And so then... um Let's see, where's where my point? So then Biff like, is like, you got to do it, McFly. He's bullying Marty's dad in front of him, emasculating him in front of his mother and his children. And it upsets Marty greatly because he says, well, geez, I don't want like it. Like it. He goes, you know, I'm the kind of man that stands up for myself. Uh, dad, you, I'm not going to be like you. And Marty said, you know, he says, Dad, you got to stand up, you know, and then, it, you know, he says, well, I can't, you know, whatever. Like, uh, he said, what, how, how did you even, like, get Mom to marry you when you're such a pushover? And one of Biff's burns on McFly is like, don't be so gullible, McFly, which I, and that's another thing I share. I'm a super, especially as a kid, but even sometimes as an adult, like, I'm super gullible. And I think, you know, I had a bit of, yeah, I wanted to be a Marty, but I was much more of a Mc, George McFly. But McFly, he always called him McFly Biv. So that's the scene at Marty's house. And then I think Marty leaves in a huff uh, to go to the mall to meet, uh, to dock. So that's when the adventure begins. And I think the scenes before that are, Mar you know, we see the clock tower in the de main downtown area. And Marty, that's when we learn Marty's like a skateboarder and he rides in the back of cars, which, uh, you know, you can only do that in movies, I think. Or, you know, I can't do it at all. Even if I was in a movie, I wouldn't be able to do this. It's not, not my thing. I don't have, like, I tried to learn, I tried to be a skateboarder, but uh, it didn't, you know, I just, uh, I'm not, like, you know, when you, uh, anybody that skateboards, you know, one of the things, because my, my, a couple of my friends did, and then I would like, like, I couldn't even do the thing where you get moving. Like, uh, I would like kick the tail up and then I'd just move the board left and right and left and right. And I wouldn't go anywhere. So I think I, the only thing I could do is like flip the board over and land on it. But that was like when I'm not on the board, not like an alley or whatever you could, whatever you call it, kick flip. But so, and then the first scene was a high school scene. And I think the things we learn in the high school scene are, one, the principal doesn't like Marty, and Marty's a trickster. We learn that. Marty's going to be in the battle of the bands. Marty needs a car. Marty's got a beautiful girlfriend, and they're kind of in love, but it'd be nice if he had a car, you know, for uh, for, for obvious and not to, for transportation reasons. And so I, I think, I mean, I mean, I'm not positive where the movie opens, I can't, but I would guess it was like Marty skateboarding. If I had to guess, it was, but, uh, huh, I don't know. I mean, if, if there like, if it, if it started in such a mundane way or with the battle of the bands or with Mark, but, but I mean, that's the sequences I remember. So some sort of opening that I don't remember. Oh, wait, was there like an opening scene? Maybe he goes to Doc Brown's house first. Cause maybe the opening is like all the clocks and things at Doc Brown's house. That, now my memory's coming back to me. And seeing alarms go off and then the dog food and realizing that Doc hasn't been home for a while. And then maybe Marty comes in with the mail. So maybe that's the first scene. Then the high school scene. Then Marty skateboarding. Then Marty's house. Then the shopping mall.
And this is where the movie really starts, uh, like at this mall. So Marty's at the mall. He meets with Doc. He says they both have, I guess it, it starts in the middle of the action, like a, a good scene would. And they're both in, uh, Marty's in, they're both in uh, like a radiation suits. So at least Marty is, I think Doc's in a lab coat. And we learn, you know, that, that, that Doc's going to, this is a time machine and Doc's going to go back to, back in time. I think, or maybe he's going to go into the future. I can't remember exactly. I think he's showing Marty how it works. So he's like, oh, I could go to 1988, 19, or maybe it was, it was a year for Back to the Future 2, 2014, 2000, I don't know. Well, he's like, look at all these years, and then it, it showed the time, and he talked about the flex capacitor and how it worked. And he said, he said yeah, when you, and Marty was doing a little videotaping, and then whoever Doc got the fission materials from shows up, and they're not happy with Doc. So Doc gets in trouble with them. He says, you got to get out of here, Marty. And we learn also 1.1 gigawatts, at, at a, and you got to go 88 miles an hour, and that it takes a ton of energy to do that. And so Marty goes 88 miles an hour, whatever the last thing programmed in, which would have been like the day, whatever, like uh, this day in like whatever, 19, I don't even know the dates, 1960, I think it was in the 50s maybe, who knows, oh boy. It had been like, that was like 86, so maybe 30 years before it would have been 56 or something. But so Marty goes back in time, uh, back to the same town he lived in, which I think is Hillsdale, but I'm not positive on that. And he doesn't know it right away, I don't think. And he crashes into a barn, and then he comes out of the barn, and he's dressed like still he has his uh, total radiation suit on. So a kid sees him and runs away. Uh, and the DeLorean, which is another big thing, has the doors that open like wings. And so Marty comes out, and the kid runs away. And then Marty has to run away from the kid and his dad because they think he's an alien. And it was kind of throw throwback to these kind of stories because I think he had like a like a like a comic book, a pulp fiction, sci-fi, like weird stories kind of comic uh, with a picture just like what Marty looked like on the cover. So then Marty gets away, but then he runs out of gas. Then he hides in the car, I think, and the, the or sleeps in the car because I felt like that happened at night. And then the next thing I remember, and again, I think he th like hid the car behind a like a sign for his new like that a new development was coming to town. I guess yeah, maybe the new development he ended up living in. Maybe he drove out to his house; it was gone. And then he hides the car. Then he decides to go find Doc Brown. I'm not exactly sure. And something like that. And then he goes in. Maybe Doc Brown lived by his mom's house. He's, he's some reason he's in town. I don't know why I can't remember why he would be in town. Oh, okay. No, he goes to downtown. And then he sees his dad and Biff. He goes to like, there's, so there's a comedy sequence where Marty goes to the diner or the soda place, and then we see, like, oh, wait, this is a new world that he's in, and the guy working at the diner will one day be mayor, and, you know, ordering a soda is more complicated or whatever.
and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then we see Marty's dad being bullied by Biff, and Marty stands up. I think Marty stands up to Biff, and Marty's dad runs away. And then Marty, Biff and his goons chase after Marty. And then Marty has a skateboard, so he becomes, like, everyone's like, holy. No, no, he makes a skateboard. He takes a kid's scooter, makes it into a skateboard, and then skateboards away. And there's a cool action sequence where he's dodging Biff and his crew. And he's still trying to find his dad. Then he realizes his dad's peeping Tom, spying on his mom. His dad, Marty says, Dad, what are you doing? And then uh, Marty's grandfather bumps him, bumps into him. And then the next thing you know, Marty's waking up in a room and his mom is like uh, trying to help him. And then she calls him Calvin Klein because he's only in his underwear. And it's like a confusing scene because she's having this Florence Nightingale syndrome. And let's see, so like a... So she's, she's kind of falling in love with him. And then Marty is like, I got to get out of there. But I think he still has to eat dinner with the family. So he's eating dinner with his mom and his grandparents. And like, and she, his mom's still like kind of obsessed with him and very forward. And, you know, it's funny that this level of subversiveness, like, uh, first, like, uh, like, uh, hmm. Like, the 80s were a tough time. You know, they, they were very, uh, like, the, there was this strong vanilla streak going in the 80s. So I'm surprised, like, uh, like, I really love when you can be subversive in these kind of subtle ways, and it's still a PG movie. You know, because Marty's mom was very forward, very attractive, and uh, so it's a very confusing situation. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I love that. And maybe I found it titillating. I mean, it'll be, you know, is it like, like because of Leah Thompson, you know, it, but it, whatever. Um, okay, I'd have said too much already. Um, I, I don't mean it in that. Anyway, let's just keep moving. It's uh, a podcast. Uh, put you to sleep. Uh, so uh, then Marty's like, all right, I got to get out of here. I got to go see my uncle, Doc Brown, or something. Uh, Marty shows up at Doc Brown's house. Doc's in the middle of an invention, so he recruits Marty. You know, in, uh, to to in, what a what a wonderful turn, Christopher Lloyd. I hope that's the actor's name. Not doing myself any justice here. It, it, just Doc Brown, like an iconic uh, movie figure from the eighties. So he does an experiment on Marty about like uh, like kind of like telepathic stuff. Then Marty tries to explain to him his situation, and then that there's like a lot of comedy and exposition in there, and like Marty's like, "Well, I got to get back," and then they talk about that, and then like then the consequences are revealed because Doc says, "Well, geez, you haven't talked to anybody because you could really uh, there's this paradox with time travel," and he says, "What do you mean?" He says, "Well, do you, you know," and then he says, "Well, actually, I did," and then. Uh, we start to realize that there's a clicking, t- the ticking clock, and not just a clock to get Marty back in time. I think they figure all this out like uh, pretty quickly. Uh, but that uh, Marty ran, you know, his father and his mother were supposed to meet, and Marty interrupted that. So now they'll never meet, and that'll undo Marty's brother, sister, and his existence uh, because his parents will never get married and have their, their children. 
So Doc says, geez, you got to fix this and I'll figure out how to get this car going. I think that's what I think they divide the duties there. And then, then a big thing was like the clock tower was struck by lightning. I think that was maybe the whole thing, like why he went back. The day the clock tower got struck by lightning was the last time it stopped working and they were trying to get it good to go back going in the present day. And so then they say, oh, well, if we just if we can figure out a way to do that, um, then that'll give us the energy, the 1.1 gigawatts we need to get you uh, back to the future. And that's when, you know, Dak Brown says, and we got to get you back to the future. And he says, in such a, just, what a movie. So then we have the, the second act of the movie, more or less, uh, started at some point. I mean, I think it starts when Marty realizes that he's, uh, the clock's ticking. And that if he doesn't get his father and his mother back together, you know, he, he won't exist. So then that, like, there's a series of complications. Marty has to enroll, go to school. Uh, to you know, to keep an eye on his mother and his father. His mother's in love with him. Uh, Biff's out, you know, doesn't like Marty. Then Marty can't help but be himself, which causes more complications that I probably don't remember. And George McFly really doesn't want to change or be helped. Like Marty's like, listen, man, you know, like uh, I, I got to help you. Uh, I don't, I don't. I, I, these are, these are the areas that get foggy. The same principles there, and he doesn't like Marty then either. And okay, is he? Does he go by Calvin Klein there? Uh, but basically, most of that part of the movie is spent like evading Biff. Evading, you know, uh, having an Oedipalian moment with his mother and trying to to to, to, to spur uh, uh, George McFly on and, and figure out, geez, how am I going to create this? What am I going to do to create, to recreate this happenstance that I interrupted where my parents met one another? And in reality, really what Marty's trying to do is like give his father what he some self-esteem, I guess, and, and to be like, geez, you deserve to be treated with respect and like to have some like a positive masculinity uh, or whatever you want to call it, like uh, and, and not to be pushed around by people like Biff. And also, uh, oh, another thing, I think one of Marty's issues is that he has too much of a temper and... Like, I think that is maybe one of his flaws. I don't know exactly, but I think, like, he's too much of a hothead. But I don't think he—I wonder if he ever resolves that in the movie. Uh, but so I'm trying to think of what major things happen. I, this, I guess this portion of the movie I don't really remember that well. I mean, I remember not—like, it, it all leads up to the dance, uh— and again, I guess the other thing is that and Marty not being able to help himself because maybe he also loves the limelight too. Because at some point he sets he, like we th- it's like the where we think he's got everything solved. Like he's dad, he gets his dad to take uh, Lorraine is that her name uh, to the dance, and all the mood is set and they're dancing slow, and everything looks like it's it's happening, and then. And then Marty can't help himself, and then I think he does his Johnny Be Good routine. Maybe that's then I don't, I don't I'm not exactly sure. And uh, he like does this big guitar solo, and that's very funny. But I think that throws everything off a little bit. That throws a wrench in the work, maybe because I, I think then he's like, uh, I think I don't know. Does that sound right? And then uh, 
Okay, like again, Biff still is not satisfied. He he's irate, and then at some point, Biff uh, like uh, uh, corners everybody, and it, uh, George McFly is forced into like standing up for himself. He, he's he warns Biff, and then he stands up uh, to Biff and defends Lorraine. And we see that uh, she sees something in, in in George McFly that she loves, and he already, he loves her. And Biff's defeated, and Marty's reunited his parent or united his parents or whatever. Uh, then the clock is still ticking, and then Marty like last minute. I think even then he like runs out of gas once, or there's one more thing that on his way to. Oh, I think. Uh, no, they, there's a storm, and then the, the cords become unplugged, and Dak Brown has to um, climb on the clock tower or something. And maybe Marty has to evade one more thing, but everything works to the exact second. And Marty, the lightning strikes the clock tower, goes the lightning, spoiler alert, it goes through 1.1 gigawatts, sends Marty back to the future. And then... Um, uh, what what happens? And then, like, so Marty hasn't been gone very long. He doesn't think. But then he goes back to his house. I don't know if he must return the car to Doc Brown's. I don't know what happens with the car. But the next thing we see is the scene at Marty's house. And we see that the, his his parents are and his siblings are the same, but they're also different. Like, all of a sudden, Marty, Marty's father has much more self-esteem. They're a little bit well, more well-off, like upwardly mobile. His mom, like, I think she was probably smoking and kind of tired and, and a little bit embittered in the beginning of the movie, and now she's happy and fulfilled. Uh, George is virile, and, and Biff is, like, subservient. And actually, like, so it's a de-Edipelian situation because now uh, his father is empowered as king of the household again somehow, maybe. I don't know. And then his brother and his sister, they're like nicer people or something. Or maybe his brother, in the beginning of the movie, his brother like is like uh, like kind of like Judge Reinhold's character in um, Fast Times. And then at the uh, end of the movie, he's like a lawyer. And his sister, I think she, maybe she's like, a, she's a real estate agent in the end of the movie, maybe. I think so, because that was when the, there was like Century 2. Like, I think this is just like what I'm imagining. And then uh, you say, wow, and you're already like, there's just these three punches, like like four. So there's like the victory of reuniting his parents and of George finding his self-esteem. And maybe, I don't know if Marty finds some self-control, if that's part of it. Then you have the the, the sequence where with 1.1 gigawatts and that tension is broken then you have this post scene where you say, oh, wow, the future, you, you, you actually made the future better. Nice move. And then actually they learn like uh, they're so upwardly, upwardly mobile that Marty has his own car. I think that was like an issue. Yeah. I mean, that was like just like in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, like that was one of the great issues of the, the day was uh, not having your own vehicle. But so Marty has his own car. And then his girlfriend shows up, and he says, "Hey, you, you see, I think it like uh, this was like what I thought all like. I think she sits in his lap or something, and they kiss, and they say, I 'Can't wait to go to the dance with you, sweetie cakes.' And he says, 'I can't wait to go to the dance with you, sweetie cakes.' 
And I say, man, and then Dak rolls up, uh, like, just what a way to cap off the movie. And, like, Dak rolls up in the DeLorean, but it's, like, slightly changed. And then he says, you know, Marty, uh, if you, I need you. We got to go. We got to go uh, back to the future or something. I don't know. He says, there's trouble in the future, trouble in the past. No, trouble in the future. And he says, you need to come, too, because I think it was like trouble with their kids. Maybe I don't remember. And then we learn that it, like it has a food processor now that it can run on like garbage scraps. The, uh, the energy for the uh, time machine. And then, like, they get in, and then the last uh, special effects sequence, which everyone remembers, because it's like, uh, Doc, we don't have enough roads uh, to get up to 88 miles an hour. And then Doc Brown says, roads? Where we're going, we don't need any roads. And then the uh, uh, DeLorean launches into, like, its wheels fold down, and it hovers, and then it takes off like a spaceship. And that was like one of the first times where it was like, and I don't know if, I don't think they had it. Like, I don't, I mean, the movie was a huge, huge hit, just like Goonies was. I think that was it. Like Goonies had made so much money. And then the Entertainment Tonight's like, this movie's going to make even more money, which it did. And like, but to to like tease the sequel like it had before the movie. But, but I mean, talk about a tease, like, uh. It was like, holy crap, I need to see this movie. And then it was like, I just need to rewatch this Back to the Future again and again and again and again. So, I mean, that was definitely, what a movie. I mean, what casting. Again, like uh, with Goonies and Back to the Future, you just think about how well cast those movies were. Like, what a wonderful job they did. It's amazing. And then... uh I don't know. And I think it was uh, Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg were, uh, and me, I don't know who else was involved in it, but, uh, and then years after that, then like, uh, the, the sequel would come out and it was pretty low. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, again, like when a movie hits that hard and that good, it's really hard to, uh, top it. And I don't think the second back to future, I don't know, maybe I did, like, just where I was in my life or something. It just wasn't the same to me. It was good, uh, but it wasn't um, life-altering, like, the, 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 this summer of movies of Goonies, of View to a Kitten, and uh, Back to the Future, where, where I just, like, uh, changed my entire perspective. But I'm very thankful uh, that I had this summer of these three movies, and thanks for uh, coming along for the ride, everybody. All right, hey everybody, it's time for another Tale of the Tape episode, and these are, uh, as I said in the intro, kind of an occasional uh, type episode, and it, where I talk about uh, stuff I can barely remember, uh, like movies I, I've probably seen um, hundreds of times, and I try to remember them, and, and I didn't get it like, like uh, so tonight we'll be talking about Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and I haven't looked anything up, as tempted as I was, just like with Back to the Future, I didn't look anything up about Pee-wee's Big Adventure, so I don't know what year it came out. I would guess, uh, oh boy, I really have no idea, 84? But it could be 88. I, I don't really know what year. It was st- stars the great Paul Rubens. And I know, like, again, another one of uh, people probably we owe a large portion of the podcast to because he also had Pee-wee's Playhouse. And I think there was also like an HBO more adult Pee-wee's Playhouse, and then there was a kid's Pee-wee's Playhouse, and then there was a Pee-wee movie. I don't know the order of any of those. 
And then I know, like, more recently in the last 10 years, uh, there was a big, like, I think in L.A. and maybe even on Broadway, uh, Paul, Mr. Rubens, I, like, had done, like, some revival stuff of Pee Wee. I'm pretty sure uh, one of the great uh, podcast personalities, Paul Rust, like, uh, was writing a Pee Wee movie. And I, th- I think they came out. I don't know. Like, I'm blanking on other Pee Wee stuff, just like with Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And, uh, like, uh, another great, like, uh, Paul Russ is a really, really fu- funny person, uh, talented, super talented. And so I thought I told, and this is a, like a, like a fairly highly requested, uh, movie. And, and, and again, to just show how quickly I can get to requests, I think this was requested like a year ago by a few different people. And like, I guess I'm trying to buy time to let the VCR in my brain start up, uh, like I, so I don't really remember the first time I saw this movie, but I was already familiar with Pee-wee, I think. So maybe the Pee-wee's Playhouse would, had already been on TV. And I think this was heavily marketed because it, like I can remember like some of the gags in the movie that are, or maybe they just became memes. Uh, you know, like I'm trying to use the phone and uh, Pee-wee dancing to tequila. Like, I don't know if those were played on uh, endless loops or they just became memes, like where they were repeated in my brain and on the playgrounds of the world. And I'm not sure, I guess I, even as a kid, I, like I got it more on a non-intellectual level, like who was Pee-wee Herman? He was a man-child. And I think, like, especially to a kid, that is a perfectly acceptable way to adults, uh, and he was kind of a mature man-child in some sense because uh, he 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 was like very clean and like uh, like it seemed like he was in good shape and could take care of himself. It seemed to have some kind of income, as opposed to like you know slob you know some somebody that's a slob and they live with their parents or whatever like a comedic where it's played for like a comedic thing. Pee-wee was just like accepted like. Uh, I think, I don't know if Pee-wee had a job. I'm trying to, like, we'll, we'll find out if I can remember any of that. But this movie was really based on Pee-wee and Pee-wee's bike. Uh, oh, boy, I don't know if the bike had a name. But so the movie opens, I think, in the morning. Oh, let me talk about one other thing before I start talking about the movie, which is the music, uh, which I think is impossible to separate from the movie, at least in my mind, the music is playing right now. And I don't know who did it, but but it was a brilliant, not just soundtrack, I'm talking about the score combined with the soundtrack of this uh, music that had carnival elements and kind of um, like manic type elements combined with like a little bit of dissonance. Uh, But again, like enough that there was a running, these running musical themes, uh, that really just create, like, they were essential layer, at least of the movie, and I think of why it's endured in my mind and so many other people's minds for so long. I mean, I would dare say, like, like other than Paul Rubin's performance, uh, the music might have been, like, number two, and at least in my memory, it, it is number two. So as far as I remember, uh, the movie opens at Pee-wee's house, and Pee-wee's sleeping... And I'm surprised, or maybe a theme park did open up a Pee-wee's house, but, like, uh, Pee-wee's house was like a child's dream. Everything was automated, like, it, like it gave this hint of, uh, 
like uh, what are those things called? Uh, infernal machines? I don't know. I don't know if that's the right term. Like, uh, like the video game mousetrap. I think that there's another word for it. I don't think it'll come to me. You know, but where the bowling ball rolls and then the mouse rolls up the string, and so all of Pee Wee's breakfast. I think even getting dressed and getting his clothes was all automated, but in a, like an analog automation or mechanical automation, which was visually fun. And Pee Wee, like uh, one of the big things that's important to me in making things, uh, but I don't necessarily experience as much, but Pee Wee did, it was in help with the audiences. Pee Wee was delighted by things. And so even though this was his morning routine, he was delighted as, I don't know, his bed rolled up and made itself. I can't remember. I think there was toast and eggs involved and that this perfect breakfast arrived at the table. Unlike the TV show, I don't think there was any sentient um, objects in the in the Pee-wee's Big, Big Adventure took place on a normal Earth. I think all normal Earth rules applied in the movie. Uh, where on Pee-wee's Playhouse, there was a little bit more of uh, like a children's TV element where, cha- like, Cherry, uh, pull yourself up a chair. Let the fun begin. It's time to let down your hair. Something, something, something else. Pee-wee's Playhouse. Like, that was the theme song to the TV show. Which So this was this took place in the same Earth we live in, which was good because, it's, I mean, maybe a heightened version of it. But I don't think it was that heightened because, like, they showed how everything that Pee-wee's, like, how Pee-wee designed his home was a mystery to us. But it made perfect sense. Uh, and, of course, there was a great, I mean, for me at least, there was a great degree of jealousy and envy that Pee-wee lived in his his home uh, that was so cool. And I think Pee-wee probably had pajamas. I'm kind of picturing some regular-looking, like, uh, pajamas. But then Pee-wee got into the signature suit with the, uh, like, a gray, I don't know, is that gabardine? I don't think it is, but I don't know what the heck, anything. Like a light gray suit with a red bow tie and his signature haircut, which I don't know what you call that either, but, like, kind of like a buzz, like, with a little stuff up in the front, uh, Close cut with a spiky front. And again, this idea, at least in my mind, of like that things delight Pee-wee. And I guess is a lesson I didn't take. Like Pee-wee really does exist in the moment. Uh, and then Pee-wee was getting ready for the day. Then as far as I remember, Pee-wee went to unlock Pee-wee's bike, which of course, I, if the bike has a name, I don't remember it. And this was Pee-wee's pride and joy, the bike. And it was... Uh, like, uh, very protected by security. I don't really remember anything other than Pee-wee punching code uh, to get Pee-wee's bike out. And it was a beautiful, beautiful bike. Uh, it would be, even at the time of the movie, considered a retro bike. Uh, a lot of chrome. Looked like a very heavy bike. Nowadays, a bike like that would have an electrical drivetrain or something to help move it with its weight. Almost like a hot rod car, like with cool rocket lights and red elements, a little bit of chrome and some white elements. So just like a 1950s car, 
and shiny and uh, immaculate, I would say. Also, I'm kind of picturing a small white dog. So I don't know if Pee Wee had a dog or the, the, the I know pets come to play later in the movie. Uh, but, you know, the Pee-wee, like, I don't know, was there, I don't think there was a basket on the car. Oh, there are, like, uh, I guess I'm getting mixed up with the later parts of the movie. Uh, but so Pee-wee has breakfast, Pee-wee gets out Pee-wee's bike, and then Pee-wee goes to leave Pee-wee's home. And he's greeted by his neighbor, and I'm not sure of the actor's name, but very recognizable 80s actor who a lot of times played a, like a bully-like character, sometimes a sidekick, a good sidekick, uh, with a, like a non, what is that called? Like a, when this actor played a, like a, a positive character, he was kind of more of the skeptical character. Uh, really good at making those skeptical uh, or like uh, harsher bully faces, and, and also very. And this character is very rich. Don't remember the character's name. Maybe they'll come to me. But he said, "Hey, Pee Wee, I still want to buy your bike or something." And Pee Wee said, "You know, my bike's not for sale." And I said, "No, no, no. You don't understand. Like, I'll pay anything, any price for this bike." And Pee-wee said, you know, what's money? Like, this bike's invaluable to me. And I said, no, no, more than that. And Pee-wee said, this bike's priceless. And I said, well, what's your price? Uh, and Pee-wee said, you know, what, 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 what's the monetary value to a boy who loves his bike? Uh, and the guy said, well, don't, I'm going to get that bike someday. So, so we have this antagonism right away. And also a contrast right away with, the, like, the world of Pee-wee. Like, Pee-wee's home is cloistered in his own, like, kingdom, like, much like a superhero. And then Pee-wee sets off. And this is where I lose, uh, like, a consciousness here. So let's see if we could figure out, like, brainstorm what happens. Uh, Pee-wee leaves on Pee-wee's bike. Uh, he has an interaction with his neighbor. And then I really have no idea where Pee-wee went next. Uh, like, uh, there's a pet store that plays a role later in the movie. So I don't know if Pee-wee works at a pet store at the beginning of the movie. It's so weird that uh, I can remember everything, like, leading up to the like this this part. I mean, I remember Pee-wee riding off, uh, laughing as Pee-wee does, and... Uh, and then it's a total blank. Uh, it was an, like a, I can picture the end of the movie too, or some parts of the end of the movie. And uh, like, but uh, like, I don't really remember. Uh, I, 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 have, I have no recall of uh, of uh, like what, what what happens next. Uh, like, I wish I did. I'm really trying to write. Like, I, I can picture a diner, but I don't know if that's real or just because Pee Wee's bike has, like, a chrome and red like a diner would. And so so this is a pretty big gap. Because, so at some point, Pee-wee goes somewhere, locks Pee-wee's bike up. We see that, like, in, like, one of the side cabinets. Pee-wee's got all these chains and the bike's locked. It, it felt like a, like a back lot on a Hollywood studio or, like, a New York City brownstone street. I mean, there's a hint in my mind that maybe Pee-wee was going to see some sort of expert, uh, whether to get a bike part, like a new bell maybe, or uh, like a new kind of life for the bike, or something for Pee-wee's home. 
But uh, Pee-wee met with this expert and then went outside, and the bike was gone. And at first, Pee-wee said, well, there's no way, like, the bike could be gone. Uh, because it was like, uh, you know, and then it maybe started finding chain links. And then the, like, revelation let in that Pee-wee's bike was really gone. It was stolen. Like, maybe, I I don't know if Pee-wee's running to, like, pedestrians saying, have you seen my bike? Have you seen my bike? Have you seen my bike? Uh, But then the the gravity of everything hits hits Pee-wee. And if I, I mean, this, again, is just, like, a common Pee-wee thing, so I don't know if it's that. uh, I guess I'll have to switch between Mr. Herman or P.W., uh, but, uh, like he screams to the heavens with like a, the peewee level scream and he's clearly like very devastated that his bike is gone. And then I don't know what happens next. I mean, this is what, like, uh, I don't know if like, I, I don't think it's structurally, I'm not sure of the, like, is this a call to adventure? I guess so, but it's not like, it is the call to adventure. The journey begins. But I'm not exactly sure what would stir the journey. I would assume Pee-wee went to the authorities next, and uh, I'm sure he was convinced that his neighbor stole the bike. So I don't know what like it gave Pee-wee the uh, the gumption to hit the road after Pee-wee's bike. So here's an idea for fun. I'm gonna like pause it and like I'm gonna check it the first like the I'm gonna try to only look at the first act of the movie on Wikipedia or something and and uh, I'll be back into you won't even know I was gone. Okay, so I'm back because I'm really embarrassed now. The movie was directed by Tim Burton. Like I don't know how I missed that, and it was written by uh, uh, Paul Rubens, Phil Hartman, and Michael Varhol. Uh, so, and then Danny Elfman did the music and it came out in uh, 1985 in the summer. So I would like, uh, and it grows to 40 million developed into a cult film and Pee Wee's a neighbor was named Francis. Uh, oh, he works at a bike shop. Uh, Dottie has a crush on Pee Wee, but he does not reciprocate. So I don't really remember that, uh. Trying to picture that in my head, but I cannot picture that. Uh, and then Pee-wee's bike goes while he's shopping at the mall, which makes sense. Because uh, I felt like he was shopping. I know it doesn't say on Wikipedia what he was shopping for. And the police can't help Pee-wee, and he tells them that Francis probably took it. And uh, then, uh, like, uh, Pee-wee goes uh, to confront Francis and this I read, but I didn't remember either. I guess I do remember Francis playing in the bathtub now that that reminds me. But so uh, Francis was playing in the bathtub ships, and Francis is also, I guess, a man boy. And he, like, because he still takes baths and plays with things. And I, I don't know Francis's age. And I don't remember, I really don't remember Pee-wee showing up at Francis's house and demanding the bike back. But apparently, according to Wikipedia, that's what happened. And then Francis's father, who I cannot remember either, says, you know, no, no, Francis didn't take your bike, like, uh, or something. And then maybe it's Francis's father that puts up the reward for Pee-wee's bike. But then there's a $10,000 reward for Pee-wee's bike. Uh, but the bike is still missing. 
You can't believe I don't remember any of this stuff. Like, uh, which weird though, not to go on a tangent was I could, the other day I was trying to remember one of my own. I couldn't sleep, uh, surprise, surprise. And I was trying to remember where I bought this one bike that I had that got stolen, oddly enough. Uh, it wasn't locked. It was in my, like, uh, my apartment building's driveway, like where I mistakenly thought I could just leave it, but that was a mistake. And the nickname of that bike was Purple Rain, R-E-I-G-N, I think, because uh, it was purple and white, but I can barely picture it in my head. And I can't for the life of me figure out where I bought it. I, I think I talked about this in another intro, like if I got it on Craigslist or at a used bike store. So, like, I guess me and Pee Wee share some things. And actually, that was also like, like, a, like, a, now this was back when I was out there. So it was kind of my own fault because I probably got home late at night and I was in the bag. And then uh, I got up the next day for work. I wasn't feeling good. And I guess I was like uh, feeling so ungood that I decided to take the bus instead of riding my bike. And I was halfway to my bus stop and I saw a bike lock that looked exactly like mine, and I walked by it because uh, it was just hanging on my handlebars. It wasn't locked, unfortunately, obviously. And then I said, wait a second, that looked exactly like my bike lock. And I went back, and I tried the key in it, and it was my bike lock. And they said, I ran home, and they said, oh, my bike's gone, which was a big bummer. And then uh, then I had to go to work. Uh Actually, lost count. I've had three bikes stolen. I thought I only had had two, but I've had three stolen. Uh, but like, uh, most of them are my, you know, uh, whatever. Not important. This was uh, what happened to Pee. Let's talk about Pee Wee Scoots. But so at some point, um, like so, Pee Wee's bike's still missing. Just like my memories of uh, his bike. And then I did read. I had to read. I had to look up again. Because he said, how does this adventure even start? Like, why do, do, would Pee-wee go on the road when this, Francis is the main suspect? Uh, but the, the reason was that uh, Pee-wee went to meet with a psychic. Uh, and I don't remember this either. Like, uh, I mean, remember, like, like uh, the Pee-wee had a psychic on a TV show or something like that. Uh, or someone mystical. Uh, but this was different, I guess. Uh, but within the crystal ball, and it, like there was also the, there's like this scene in the Pee-wee's movie, Pee-wee movie, a little bit about uh, what is that called? Uh, gull- Pee-wee's gullibility. So I don't know if this psychic was taking advantage of Pee-wee or not, uh, or that they were just a bad psychic. But that they uh, like um. Like they said that his bike was taken to the basement of the Alamo. And I think like everyone like knew that there is no basement at the Alamo or maybe or why, why would it be at the basement of the Alamo? But so anyway, so it, um, Pee-wee sets out on Pee-wee's adventure, the big adventure to find Pee-wee's bike and... Like, uh, I guess to go to, like, to head towards the, uh, to somehow get to the Alamo. I don't know why Pee-wee heads out without any help, uh, this, but, but Pee-wee does. And, and so, um, I'm trying to think of what else, like, uh, I can remember, like, uh, leading up to the, um, the trials and the tribulations or whatever you want to call the, the, this part of the movie.
Yeah, but Pee Wee hits the road, and Pee Wee has like a few different run-ins, uh, and I don't know what order they take place in, and I also don't even remember all of the details of it. But like one of the like Pee Wee's hitchhiking, and first Pee Wee meets uh, Large Marge, uh, who's a truck driver and very friendly. And it's like a dark and rainy night, and Pee-wee's all wet and a little bit down. And so Pee-wee uh, gets in the truck with Marge, and they make some all talk. And then Marge tells some tall tales to Pee-wee about uh, her day's truck driving. And, you know, like things things she's seen. And, you know, there's like Pee-wee's kind of awkward, you know, so there's like a little bit of awkward nervousness and in that. And then uh, Marge says, well, like, I'm going to drop you off at this diner. And then Pee-wee goes into the diner and they say, geez, how'd you get here? And Pee-wee says, large Marge. And everyone says, large Marge, uh, she's just a legendary mythological character, uh, you know, they you could you could like a like a you know an icon iconic uh, and Pee-wee says well, no, I got a ride from her, and they say, oh no, that's impossible. That's like uh, that's mystical, man. And Pee-wee says, oh dear. Uh, then at another point, Pee-wee meets a French woman, uh, which uh, all I can remember about that is like the jokes Pee-wee does with uh, French. Uh, and I don't know, like, her name was not Babette. Uh, it started with an M. But I'm assuming they had some sort of adventure together, but I really don't remember it. Uh, like, I, I thought I remember this movie better than I did. Uh, so maybe I'll, like, I'll stop it, like, at 30 minutes, and then I'll do another 20 minutes after this of, uh, after I've watched a movie. Yeah, but, you know, this is pretty lulling and soothing, a person that can't, but just for the hardcore Pee-wee fans. Um, then Pee-wee meets a man clad in denim, a denim-clad man uh, who wears bra- metal bracelets. And he's trying to, you know, he's he's on the road trying to, to forget things uh, in his rearview mirror. So him and Pee-wee team up, and Pee-wee doesn't realize it at the time, but he says, well... This guy's just trying to get away, you know, get away from it. You know, like uh, sometimes you got to get away where everybody knows your name or whatever. And Pee-wee doesn't realize it. And then they run across uh, like a roadblock. And then Pee-wee has to dress like a woman uh, and pretend he's this man's wife. And he really like takes delight in that again. And you see things through Pee-wee's delightful eyes. And he's really hamming it up, and uh, it's titillating for everybody involved, I think. Uh, and so there's that enjoyment, like uh, like uh, through everyone's titillation, like Pee-wee seems to really be enjoying it, and some of the other characters do. And I'll just be honest, Pee-wee looked pretty good, like, like, uh, like, and so I think some of the other characters agree. I think it's just like when someone's overflowing with delight, it's uh, intoxicating. And so, uh, I don't know how that resolves. I think then they just go their separate ways. Uh, at some point, Pee-wee has a dream, and it's a layered dream about uh, clown friends and per- for performing with his bike. And then, like, that, they, they're, they're repairing his bike, and that Pee-wee doesn't like that dream at all.
And I think that underlies, maybe that's towards the beginning, his need to get to get to the adventure and find his bike. Yeah, then at some point, Pee Wee goes to a roadhouse and meets with, uh, like, the bikers, accidentally knocks their bikes over, yells at them he's trying to use their phone, and then he has to dance off uh, to win their... Uh, First, he borrows shoes from somebody, and then he does tequila on the bar with this special peewee dance, and he wins their affection. And then they give peewee a motorcycle, which peewee takes the motorcycle. That doesn't work out. Then somehow peewee finally gets, I don't know if he ran across any other characters, but he finally gets to Alamo, finds out there's no basement in the Alamo, is devastated. That is adventure. All is lost. That's the part of the story where all is lost. And then Pee Wee saves a, um, like, a, what do you call it? Pet store. Pee Wee saves a pet store. All the pets. And Pee Wee's a hero. And Pee Wee gets interviewed and they say, geez, like, uh, how'd you do it, man? Like, what, like, and he, he says, well, I was, uh, I just love pets. And then they say, well, what are you doing here? And he says, well, my bike got stolen. I'm missing it. Then they decide to make a movie about Pee-wee's adventure, his adventure to find his bike. I don't know if he finds his bike first or is it counter, like a copy of his bike, uh, but it becomes a movie based on like a, a hyper version of his adventure, including him, I think with, uh, I don't know if it's a French woman or someone else, like uh, Pee-wee, like, uh, like the bike has rockets and Pee-wee's a spy. And Pee-wee swinging on a vine on his bike and very heroic. Uh, then there's a big movie premiere where all the characters from the movie uh, come to see the movie premiere. And then I think Pee-wee has the bike and returns home. I don't know. So let's. Uh, this will be the two ta- ta- two tales of the tape. Cause, so I'll be back uh, and record another half of this uh, uh, probably tomorrow night after I'm going to watch Pee-wee's Big Adventure tonight. Hey, hey everybody, so it's Scoots here, and, uh, like, a, like, a, so I'm coming in at, like, uh, 24 hours later, I, I watched, uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and, uh, I, like, uh, I really was surprised at, uh, how much I missed on my recap, so I was, re- and I was really glad to rewatch it, I watched it with my daughter, so we had a nice shared experience there, watching, um, and just in case to set this up, just in case anybody's listening, I decided to put this at the top of the show. The like, because I don't know when I'm going to put this. I, I haven't decided. Uh, like, uh, I'll be talking about uh, later in the second half of the show when you're ideally if you're asleep. But if you're not asleep, I'll be here. You know, just like I always say, I'll be talking about what I could remember about Pee Wee's Big Adventure, a tale of the tape, and it was so poor, like my memory. Like, there were so many gaps, and, and I just felt this craving to kind of fill in uh, and see what I, I couldn't remember, because uh, I didn't feel like I was doing Pee Wee or Paul Rubens or Tim Burton or Danny Elfman or the listeners any justice. So I rewatched it last night. I didn't take notes, so this is still based on my impressions. So I think I'll talk about the movie for about 10, 15 minutes, and I'll talk about Pee-wee and and Paul Rubin's portrayal, or or, uh, I guess, well, maybe there'd be a third thing of, like, how similar is that to the podcast? Uh, uh, But so the movie, I did did miss a lot from the beginning, 
And it, it like, I, I guess I'm not surprised, uh, but, but at the same time, it, it, like the movie is a wonderful, uh, first act. I forgot all about Dottie, even though, uh, Dottie was super like, like kind of Pee-wee's kind of love interest. Uh, she was definitely interested in Pee-wee. He was kind of like, 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 uh. Like kind of like, well, you're a little like, uh, like over aggressive or something. He he wasn't super like he, he wasn't available, I guess. Uh, at least to Dottie, and uh, like, uh, but, but she she was I, I forget the actress's name, but uh, like uh, she was in a, like a couple of movies with uh, John Cusack, Cusack, Cusack or Cusack, right? Uh, but so like uh, so, Daddy, I forgot about I forgot about I, I remembered the bike shop. I forgot that Pee Wee visits a magic shop, which has a lot of gags. And I also forgot about like there's like you know we'll talk about this when we talk about Pee Wee, but like a lot of the physical comedy, uh, along with the personality driven comedy, also like the the level of kind of like a near clown mime like. Uh, like I talk about Mr. Bean, I, I never watched a ton of Mr. Bean. And of course, Pee Wee has dialogue, but, but at the same time, I could see kind of these, uh, and I've never read any interviews with Paul Rubens so kind of about uh, either his training or his inspirations, which I guess is, leaves me sorely lacking. I do know this movie was also inspired by the movie The Bicycle Thief, which, uh, I think I saw one time, but it was late at night after I drank a lot. So I'll have to rewatch that movie with a clear head uh, to kind of see. And that was a thing I totally blanked on. And I really didn't even remember it when I was watching it. But like it opens with a dream sequence of Pee Wee in a bike race. And that reminded me a lot of Fletch. I love the dream sequences in the movie Fletch. Maybe that could be another movie I might remember more of. So that was fun. And then, again, I was right about Pee-wee's delights. And even in the dream, he's delightful. Then he wakes up, and he's kind of greeting the day with this joy and playfulness. And then we see him cooking. We meet his dog. Uh, it starts with an S. It's not like a, it's like a, I forgot his dog's name already. Let's just say it's Spike, even though it's in that. And... Uh, and then Pee-wee, like, sets out with his day. He has a great relationship with his next-door neighbor, waters his lawn, we see his home. Uh, then he has a run-in about the bike, which kind of is a foreshadowing, like we talked about. Then he goes biking, and there's some fun montages, and then Pee-wee goes into town. And there's a lot of fun over-the-top moments, and then the Pee-wee's bike goes missing, and like his over kind of over the top reaction. And then there's this hilarious scene when Pee Wee's kind of trying to get everyone to help him. Really, really funny in, in the basement in front of a map of San Francisco. And I don't know where the movie's supposed to take place. If it's supposed to take place in San Francisco, but it does feel like a lot of the exterior, uh, like natural shots, like the bike race and some other stuff took place in the Northern California. It just uh, looked familiar. Like maybe Napa or Sonoma County or something, but so uh, let's see. So that that was a great scene. The basement scene with Pee Wee was really really funny and uh, how over the top, just r- almost like a Simpsons style humor. 
So maybe Pee Wee's like an archetype for that type of humor. I, I don't know, uh, but really fun. And then, uh, like, there's the first, all, like, his bike is lost, and then Pee Wee rejects all help, uh, like, first by being overly demanding. And then when Daddy directly wants to help him, he said, no, 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 I'm going to do this on my own. Uh, you don't get it. And I think something else happens uh, that I'm missing. And then Pee-wee, like, uh, talks to a psychic uh, who says it's in the basement of the Alamo. He's out in the rain. He's almost gone feral at that point. And then he get, hits the road. And I guess I don't want to spoil the movie for everybody by recapping it, but this was all stuff I didn't remember. Uh, then he hits the road, and there's some comedic stuff with him trying to get a ride. Then he has the run-in with the guy on the run, which is pleasant. And when he dresses up, uh, uh, there's some just just a lot of funny scenes. Also, I said, Jesus is based in the real world. There were some bending in the real world rules. Uh, so a little bit of uh, there is some cartoon help that Pee Wee gets every once in a while, but for the most part, it takes place in in our world with our rules. Uh, then Pee Wee runs into Large Marge. Uh, then he, he he didn't realize he had lost his wallet long before. I think the psychic still had his wallet. Then he meets Simone, who's American. I thought she was French, but she just loves France and her her, her France and her dream is to go to France. Uh, then we meet Andy, Simone's boyfriend, who's a jerk, and uh, that offers more physical comedy. Uh, then Pee Wee hops a train, and that was like a really a funny scene, just because like Pee Wee can wear on people's nerves. So then to see like uh, uh, the, his buddy on the train, like a happy tramp type character, singing to wear on Pee Wee's ner nerves, and just a way. Uh, they stretch the scene out. Uh, it's a really good good scene. And if you want to watch it with a kid, you guarantee they're going to crack up. You know, just make sure that they're laughing with the scene and not at it. Uh, or they know why you're laughing so hilariously. Because you just like it. So P then Pee Wee ends up, finds the Alamo. We get a he visits the Alamo. We see Jan Hooks uh, and Phil Hartman at different times. I think, when do we see Phil Hartman? who wrote the movie, as they said, or as I will say later. And it looks like it was written by Phil Hartman and then uh, Paul Rubens and then his maybe his writing partner for Pee-wee's Playhouse uh, and directed by Tim Burton, which makes a lot more sense seeing it. Uh, and I, like, I don't know how I forgot that. But then Pee-wee hits another low in San Antonio when he finds out there, like... Uh, He's, uh, but, but there is no basement in San Antonio, in the Alamo. There's a lot of Texas jokes, and there's even more physical humor, even after Pee-wee kind of hits uh, uh, this, like, a low. And then he finds his bike on TV, like uh, the, ki the ki older brother from Wonder Years, who is a kid actor, He's uh, receiving it, like, I don't know, some deal with some studio or something. So then Pee-wee knows, uh, oh, wait, oh, like, uh, okay, like, uh, like I could get to Hollywood. And he sneaks in the Warner Brothers a lot with Milton Berle. Uh, 
And again, the music, of course, is always good. His humor is good. Then we have a long montage of uh, Pee Wee finding the bike and then escaping with the bike. Uh, with, with tons of tons of fun humor in there, really, really, uh, really fun. Uh, and uh, I'd driven by right on my way to go on uh, uh, Liz and Howard's show. As, as staying positive, I, I took this. I took a side row. I, I drove by Warner Brothers Studio, and I was caught in traffic, so I was able to look down some of those. It was just a, like an a interesting tie-in. Also, my daughter calls it Warner Bros, uh, and not Warner Brothers, even though, like, if she insists that's a proper name, Warner Bros, which I love. I find that delightfully cute. Um, which, so, there's this great scene. I mean, like, a long, full of comedy, and good for kids and parents. Uh, also, at some point, Pee Wee has a bad dream about clowns. He also has a bad dream about dinosaurs that really aren't that bad, but like for little kids, maybe. But I don't think so. I think the only thing we'd like to avoid is a large Marge scene. My daughter had to close her eyes. Uh, so, those, like, other than that, it's a very, uh, totally family friendly, fun movie. Just, uh, you know, when your daughter looks at you with knowing eyes, when Pee Wee does stuff, that's the only thing that was awkward for me. It's like, geez, uh, uh, but it's it just fun seeing it through kids' eyes, trying to figure out uh, what's the deal. Oh, also, to jump back, I forgot like how fun the scenes were with Francis and Pee Wee when Pee Wee goes to Francis's house. Those were really fun and well done too. Like Pee Wee hops in the bathtub with Francis, and that was really funny. Um, but so back to the, so Pee Wee's at the Warner Brothers, Warner Bros, and security's trying to get him because he took the bike. Finally, he gets away. And then what happens? Uh, when does he become friends with the bikers too? I guess I'm mixed. I'm missing a couple things. I guess uh, huh, interesting question, Scoots. I think he runs into the bikers when he's trying. Oh yeah, before. After the Alamo, he does bull riding, which I just skipped over because it wasn't super important. That was one of the fun physical comedy scenes. And then I think he's just randomly walking on the street and he goes into this bar. Oh, he because he was trying to get a bus ticket because he doesn't have any money uh, to get back. He's given up. And uh, so he's calling Dottie. He had called Dottie once and he interrupted him. So he had to call Dottie. He was going to call Dottie again, I think. So he goes into this bar, and that's like one of the, the trailer scenes uh, when he's in this biker bar. And I just still don't quite understand the total mechanics of how he won them over with the tequila thing, but I will be studying my brother's wedding. I have a brother getting married in a couple of weeks, uh, and I will be studying those dance moves, uh, some of which come naturally to me. Maybe by the time this episode comes out, the wedding will have already gone off, but... Uh, I plan on doing uh, dancing to the t t tequila. Maybe every dance I'll be doing peewee level dancing. So, uh, he, so he dances and the bikers fall in love with him. And that's how he finds his bike on TV because he's resting after being with the bikers. So then, then there's a the Hollywood. See, even with it, this is still like tell the tape, even though I had to kind of, uh, research it. So then even then, uh, 
he uh so he's he, what happened where was a oh he, he gets away from security and then that's when he saves all the pets that we will we'll talk about or we already talked about that's when he has this heroic moment uh, but he also gets caught and then the but the director of the movie studio is like uh, hey peewee like uh like, we're going to make a movie about your story instead of, like, busting you for stealing the bike and trashing the studio. And then Pee-wee says, great. And then that, then there's the movie premiere scene. So I got a lot of this ending mixed up that uh, the, this montage at the studio is separate from the movie. So it's like a back-a-lot tour with Pee-wee running around. Then there's the movie premiere at the drive-in that Dottie had wanted to go to a date to. And Pee-wee revisits all the characters he met on his journey, giving them stuff from the concession stand and cracking jokes. And meanwhile, like, the movie's going on, and it's like a hyper-realized, like, a James Bond version of Pee-wee with uh, some, like, heartthrob-type actor. I don't know who it was because I'm not good with those names. And, uh, like like like, a heartbreaking love interest. And it's kind of a James Bond Cold War thing with the Pee-wee spike getting stolen by ninjas, I think, and Russians. But Pee-wee gives out all the candy, and then finally he gets to Dottie, and he gives her some candy. And then he, she says, he says, let's get out of here. She says, you don't want to see the movie? He says, I, I lived it, Dottie. Let's, let's hit the road. And then they ride across the front of the screen to the movie. And that's it. So it was like a... Interesting, and I, I guess like uh, maybe they struggled with when were they going to roll the credits, uh, just because that ending seemed a t- tiny bit abrupt, uh, but uh, made sense at the same time, and it was satisfying. It was it was a satisfying ending, even though it seemed abrupt, uh, and it made sense. Pee Wee returned to Pee Wee's world, and so then I just want to briefly talk about Paul. Like I didn't, I did forget. Uh, the intensity and the nuanced intensity of Pee-wee and how he's a little bit, like, unhinged in a good way. And that was, like, something that really works about it. And I think something that uh, was a reason he became, like, a, like such a pop cultural sensation. And kind of the difference that I talk about, like, there's a lot of this, uh, I mean, there always will be, I think, this... Uh, man child or man boy or adults they can't grow up uh hopefully it's becoming you know multi-gendered like uh people being stuck in, in infancy but maybe it is just like uh like privileged dudes but uh like this is a little bit different because most of that is like uh is like this entitlement to like uh oh well i'm never going to grow up because i'm immature and like the humor's kind of based on that. This one is like Pee-wee actually is like more subversive and has a lot more edge. And I think it fits right in that punk rock era. Like just like Pee-wee is way more punk rock than uh, like almost any other man. He's the most punk rock man child, I think, like in my opinion. Because just he he does have this serious like it's like a cloaked in sweetness and humor and you know the way he looks like mime like and in unassuming and also like uh like uh in not just in a, a subversive way in a way where he has to learn he, i mean it was amazing that he says uh 
the lesson he learned through his journey was humility. And it's a word that gets thrown around a lot in different circles and stuff. But, like, to, for a character to say, geez, that's what I learned was humility. And, and that's what, the, what I needed this journey for. I don't know. That was also impressive. But just how much humor turns on in, in Paul Rubin's face. Uh, I mean, how much of it relies on his ability to show that conflicted edge within Pee Wee. Uh, uh, I don't know, really, like, uh, brilliant, brilliant stuff. uh, And uh, really enjoyable to just watch. And and I guess guess the last question would be, uh, since I do know so little, like, I mean, I, I I know a lot about Pee Wee. And even my daughter was asking, because it says, you know, Pee Wee played starring Pee Wee Herman, or playing Pee Wee Herman as himself or something. And as someone that, like, like has this, uh, like, with the podcast, it's not a, I'm not acting when I record the podcast, uh, but, it, like, it's this hyper-realized version of myself, uh, but it's more like a method becoming thing. Like it's not method acting. It's like, I, I always say this is like a, like a zone. I'm getting into the zone, but it's more like I'm becoming Scooter. I'm here with you to keep you company in the deep dark night. And in the moment I'm recording this, so like I, my hands are held together right now because it's the truth. Like, uh, this is what I am here. Your, your presence to, 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 to take your mind off of stuff. Like I say on the show, so I just wonder if Paul Rubens and it can relate to that of like, uh, it maybe he can like this confusing because it can, can be a little bit confusing and it can be confusing for people in your life or people that meet you. I mean, I think the podcast is a luxury because it's a audio thing. So I don't have like a whole, like a, like a, like peewee's a, like a whole visual. I, I don't know. I think there's a probably vocabulary word for it, but, uh, but man, like what a gem! And I ha- I haven't seen in the new movie there, so there was a Netflix movie last year, and I did watch the trailer. And I don't, I didn't look to see if it's a movie that I know Paul Rust was writing like five or six years ago. I heard him on uh, Pilar's show that had uh, Matt Belknap from Never Not Funny used to produce uh, on the page. I'm pretty sure that's where I heard Paul Russ get interviewed. And this was, maybe this was even like six or seven years ago, but uh, uh, talking about working on a Pee Wee movie. But uh, I don't know. So I'll have to look into that. And I guess I'll have to look into this, like, uh, or maybe we could open it up if you're, if you're listening and you're a big uh, Paul Rubens Pee Wee fan. You know, point me towards uh, Pee Wee, or is there any uh, DVD extras? Uh, where he's talking about it, or was he ever, did he ever talk about the tension of that, of like, well, I don't want to go into, like, a, like, I have to keep things separate. I mean, and, and, you know, and there was, like, a, it was clear that that wasn't always easy uh, for him. And, but I'm not really interested in that part. I'm more interested in, like, uh, I don't know, just such a special and unique, but, but influenced by all these, like, uh, like I said, the mimes and clowns and the great, uh, like, you know, things I'm a fan of, like Laurel and Hardy. Like, uh, I don't know. I, it was just the right time for me to see uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful to uh, these artists like Paul Rubens and, and Tim Burton 
and frickin' Phil Hartman, another genius. Uh, so, like, uh, really lucky too to have a podcast where I can take a journey down that road and revisit it uh, and keep you company or put you to sleep, uh, you know, while I do. So I'm glad you're here. And, uh, you know, just picture Pee Wee's bike riding down the road. He, he had a little tiger, uh, like a communicator or whatever, like not a CB, but like a thing where he could talk, uh, a megaphone type thing. And Pee Wee's just riding down the road. And this may lead into the first half of the show I recorded. This may lead off into the thank yous and the good nights. But, uh, you know, we all ride with Pee Wee. Uh, and it is a big adventure, and, and humility is a powerful lesson to learn. Uh, good night. All right, so we're doing another Tale of the Tape episode. This will be like a 50% Tale of the Tape, I think, and then 50% um, like uh, maybe some facts and stuff, uh, some lists I looked up related to this movie. And this is a movie that came out in 1984, so I did not see it in the movie theater. I was not uh, of age to see movies in the movie theater at all, especially this. I don't know what it was rated. Uh, and it was released, it was a strange thing for a movie. It's released under a few different titles, depending where, even like, it, and some people say, well, Scoots, this might be just memory. You're misremembering. Yeah, but the two titles I remember, the most famous one that I identify with is it was a 1984 movie called Dustbusters with an ass. Uh, and I think there was like, they said, well, this isn't a branding thing. I don't know if the, the product came after it, but that was just a dust buster, uh, which I talked about. There was also another copyrighted name. So this is probably why I didn't catch it. It was called Casper Catchers. And uh, the, the, there may have been a third title that I'm not remembering clearly, but the one I remember the most is Dustbusters. And it was it had a famous title song, Dustbusters, by Ray Parker Jr., uh, which was a, a hit, which we'll look into that later. Uh, and uh, so, so also associated, had a cool, no, okay, so what's a dustbuster? Well, this is like a movie that almost invented it, or it was like a, something considered fringe. It's a comedy, 1984 comedy. Oh, and this is a tale of the tape episode, this part. So I'll try to remember the movie plot and talk about my personal experience with it. And then I'll, yeah, then we'll get into some facts, uh, so, uh, let's see. So I remember the movie cause it was very well marketed. I don't remember if it was a summer or winter movie, though I'm guessing it was a summer movie and I'm pretty sure it was a gigantic hit and it swept, it swept the nation with, uh, you know, the people singing the song dust busters. I was probably first exposed to it through the, the music video for the song dust busters uh, and then there was another kind of pop song towards the end of the movie, uh, which I'm not remembering now. And I don't know if that pop song was in other movies. Uh, so this was a, this is a movie, and it starts off. It's the tale of uh, uh, three friends who become dust, but who invent. Uh, and I'm saying that, and you know, it's a fictional movie. Invent the concept of dust busting, and not like in a. You'll, it'll make all sense. You see, well, this isn't that a cleaner? No, no, no. We're talking about something much more 
but but first let's get to kind of, so it's a I guess it's a high concept comedy, uh, but it's, it features a uh, Ray Egan, who uh, in the third person, uh, Ray Stance Egan, and uh, Mike. No, I don't know Bill Murray, but I don't know Bill Murray's character off the top of my head. I'll think of it. Vankman, Peter Vankman. Thank you, Brain. That was my index finger that I was squeezing that out of. I'm not kidding. I said, not hard. I say, well, let me put a little pressure on my index finger. My middle finger, uh, Ray, Stance, uh, and my uh, ring finger says Egon. And then later, uh, they would have another character who, uh, who joins them. But it starts off with the three of them. Initially, I believe the first character we get introduced to is Bill Murray's character, who well, maybe I should talk about my personal relationship with the movie first. Uh, but the movie starts off with, who is it, Ray Stance? I forgot his name already. Peter Venkman. I think that's who it starts off with. But So I don't. I didn't see this movie in the theater. Maybe I saw it in 1986 or 80, probably in 86. Whenever it came out on, um, uh, uh, what do you call that, uh, What's that thing called? HBO. I may have seen the sequel in the movie theater, but even that, I can't be sure. I probably did. And uh, um, and it was just remade, I think, a few years ago now, 86. Uh, there was a remake of Dustbusters. Uh, but, but, so what, one day we'll talk about that. But this is like a tale of the tape to try to get me back into what do I remember so I remember seeing it and being delighted. It's a delightful movie. And, uh, yeah, so I guess that's my basic. I, I'm sure I saw it in HBO. That would have been the only way I would have seen it. And as we'll see, 1984 was like a very good year uh, for popular things, at least in my opinion. I guess because I was too young to consume a lot of this stuff. Uh, it was stuff that I thought was cool. Uh, okay, so Dustbusters, it starts off with, uh, uh, what's his name again? Peter Venkman, I believe. And he's not exactly the most sympathetic hero. And especially through today's lens, you'd say he's kind of a, uh, a, 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 like a jerk, I'd say. Uh, but he's like giving, he's working in some sort of uh, uh, college or university. And he's he's testing out uh, his concepts of uh, sentient dust motes and sympathetic vibrations and stuff. So he's giving these two college students, one of whom would be in a 19, I believe she would be in a 1984 uh, film, The Karate Kid. Yeah, but not important right now. But um, you think, it, but so... He's giving these two students these tests about, uh, like, parasympathetic, I think, parasympathetic uh, vibrations, parapsychology, I think, is one of his degrees. And he's also kind of just like, you say, well, I'm not sure about this uh, uh, Peter Venkman. He's kind of like a, a bit of a, I don't know, you say, hmm, I'm not so sure about him. Uh, then at some point, uh, Ray Stance, oh, he's played by uh, Bill Murray. And it, he is like a bit of a wiseacre, wisecracker, a trickster hero, I would say. And then Ray Stance comes in, and uh, Ray is, uh, 
he kind of plays his character two different ways. For the most part, Ray's kind of like a bit uh, not as uh, on the ball as Peter Venkman, like a bit ch- childish, a bit like Scoots. Uh, but every once in a while, you kind of get insight to a deeper, at least in a comedy uh, side of him. And he's played by Dan Aykroyd. And he comes in, and I think he says uh, big news. He says something like big news. I got big news. Uh, either they got a grant or uh, they got a, uh, oh, no, I think they got to go to the library. I think this, is this that early? They say, he says, we got to go down to the library. Egan's got got us a uh, sentient dust mode. So then even if you did, so if you went into the movie and you didn't know the title, it might even have been more enjoyable or if you didn't know anything about it, because you'd say, wait a second, there's sentient dust modes. Uh, I thought that was just a fringe theory. Uh, it put forth on one episode of Sleep With Me podcast. And I'd say, no, 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 this is a, like a wide-ranging fringe theory. So you say, there's these, uh, what a better place that would have a lot of dust modes. Oh, it takes place in New York City. So this is at the main branch of the New York Public Library, which is featured prominently throughout the movie, New York City. And it's probably one of the reasons I moved there, because it's portrayed in... Uh, a grand scale fashion and is kind of a character in the movie, like a, not a huge, like, yeah, a bit of a character in the movie. Uh, but so they head to the library uh, where Egon's waiting and, and Egon's like uh, listening to a table or something. Cause they say, well, what places are more places filled with dust motes than portions of a library? And they say these, these, these dust motes have gone sentient and are behaving even anthropomorphic, even. And just like you think, most people say this idea is ridiculous. Uh, but these three are into it, or at least uh, Ray and uh, Egon are into it. And Peter's kind of their friend and a little bit of a, like a capitalizing, I mean, in, a, in an indirect way. Though I think he believes in it because he's studying these parasympathetic vibrations. Uh, so they go down to uh, where they go to the library. They start looking at it. And one of the librarians has seen an anthrop, like a, a sentient, uh, like a dust mode in a human, taking human form to try to communicate and she says, holy cow, gave me, you know, the sneezes. Uh, and they say, well, full, she said, well, it was floating. You know, it was a dust mode. And they say, well, that's what dust modes do best is float or, or drift. So they go down there and you see, okay, this is an investigative movie maybe. So they're investigating the sentient dust modes, which leaves residues and things as dust modes do, especially as it becomes more concentrated. Then they encounter the dust moat. They get the sneezes, so they say, it's so sneezy, we got to get out of here. And I'm pretty sure, like, after that, so we see, okay, we've seen, not just through their eyes, but through our own eyes, that the sentience of dust moats. We've also seen through other characters' eyes. And then we go back to university, and they're fired, I think, is the next thing that happens is... uh they say the university says you lost your grants. You're all fired. You're, like this is a fringe theory. Uh, there is no dust. Mo- you know there is no sentient dust motes. And I think let's see. After that, uh, I, I like uh, 
he thinks there's like a scene with uh, Ray and uh, Peter talking and, and right after they get fired, what are we going to do? And Peter's like, well, we got the world's our oyster now. It's going to be okay. Ray, you know, Peter's been an academic his whole life where Ray's like, I've worked in the real world. It's not for me. And at some point, Peter comes up with the idea. I, think, I don't know if it's right here. There's a lot of well-done montages in this movie. Uh, but so at some point, they come up with it. He says, okay, what about dust busting? And, and they say, like, uh, we could do this as a job or something like that. As a business, we could make money. I think it's when the idea of making money uh, they initially uh, uh, gets uh, Peter, Peter Bankman's attention. And Ray and Egon are in it for the, the love of, uh, of uh, just the conceptually exploring the idea of sentient dust motes. And that there's a variety of them because there's a variety of dust. There's a variety of moting. There's emoting. There's demoting. You know, there's floating. And so then I think starts, a, I don't know if it's a musical montage. Maybe it's just a series of shots or quick scenes. They borrow the money, third mortgage on Ray's house. They uh, rent a fire, old firehouse. Uh, this is in 1980s New York, so it's a little bit more like a p- pictured in a run-down way. The firehouse. We see more of uh, Ray's childhood uh, tendencies. They rent a, uh, an old-fashioned ambulance uh, to uh, use to catch. To, to get, then they're getting their equipment, uh, their uniforms. Uh, in that thing, in those series of shots. Then they're running a television commercial. Uh, they're hiring Annie Potts. I'm not sure Annie Potts' is character, or if I'll remember it. Uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, they, they say, okay, then they get their first job. You think this is how it happens. Now, meanwhile, somewhere interspersed in here is Sigourney Weaver's character and Rick Moranis' character. Two unrelated, for now, New Yorkers. Uh, Rick Moranis' character is an accountant who lives on the same floor in the same apartment building as Sigourney Weaver's character, who is a cellist in, a, in a, I guess, the New York Philharmonic, because we see shots at Lincoln Center. And I, I think she's a cellist. She could be a bassist in a jazz band. You know, she could just be a busker, but I think she's a cellist in the Philharmonic. And what are those characters' names? That's a great question. Uh, Dana and uh, Lewis, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, and you see Rick 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 Moranis's character. He's an interesting. It's really well portrayed because it has some nuance to it. Because he's kind of a little a little bit geeky, but he's terribly outgoing, and I mean in a positive way, terribly positively outgoing, like having parties. Uh, Talking to Dana, I think there may be a crush there. Like he may have a crush on her, but it's not portrayed in a like a like a sloppy way. It's like, oh, maybe he's just super friendly, and she seems to be more introverted. I mean, that could be one way to read it. It's just he's an extrovert, she's an introvert, and he's always trying to get her to hang. I think that is more it because it didn't really have the flavor of romance to me. And she's like, you know what? I just want to go in my apartment and and hang, you know hang with myself. And she actually sees the ad for the Dustbusters uh, at some point, uh, 
And okay, so that's one uh, uh, whatever B plot or whatever. It's not because it intersects pretty quick. But then we also see that they're not getting any jobs. They're running out of cash. Andy Potts is fed up with them. Then they get their first big job at a fancy hotel in New York. I'm not sure if it was a plaza or what, but an old money New York hotel where they go and they go, not only do we have a, you know, a, a giant dust moat to bust, uh, but it's one that's like picked up, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's got like a goo, it's a goopy one. So they say, don't worry about it. We're, we're going to bust this dust. Uh, you know, back off, man. I'm a dust buster. I think they say back off. I'm a scientist. Uh, there was license plates you could get in Lucky Charms or uh, Sugar Smacks that said back off, man. I'm a dust buster. But so uh, what happens? Uh, so they, uh, what happens next? Uh, oh, they bust this dust. Uh, the sl- Slimer, it becomes the nickname of this one. And this character would become a uh, main character in their cartoon and in the toys, like a small part, but really whoever, whatever actor was portraying this uh, slimy dust mode in really advanced uh, special effects because uh, it looked real. You see, that looks like real slimy dust mode, uh, personified even. They end up like making a big mess at this hotel, but they get it done. And at first the hotel doesn't want to pay. They say, hey, we can leave the dust behind, man. It's sentient, by the way. They say no. So we see that they kind of catch the dust in these electronic Dutch dust catchers. We also get exposition that uh, they have these giant dust-collecting beams, like laser pro- proton packs on their backs. Uh, that's from uh, Ghostbusters 2. That's a Bobby Brown song. Uh, but they still did have pro- proton packs on their backs uh, to bust the dust. Like, I think that maybe, I don't know if it was like ionization or magnetization. I don't know of that stuff, but, uh, so they do do that. Uh, oh, but whoa. Oh, so Egan says when they're first using, this is the first time they're using their equipment. He says, don't cross the streams. Cause if you do, it'll reverse, uh, all you'll be de, de, de atomized. So whatever you do, don't do that. And they say, okay. And he says, remember that for the rest of the movie. They say, got it. Uh, bust the dust, but don't cross the streams. Uh, but soon then they end up getting uh, that dust busted or whatever. They they clear out the hotel. They go back. Uh, they lie. They, they, like, uh, do they, they have a place to store the sentient dust motes. The ethics of that is never discussed. But since I watched all that, a good place, I was like, huh, ethically... Uh, what is it, what is it, you know, wh- wh- whom do we owe, uh, I would say. Uh, but, you know, they, that doesn't come up. But so what else? Uh, so there's that. Uh, okay. Now I'm, I'm uh, oh, no, then there's Sigourney Weaver's character, Dana, right? Uh, she goes home from shopping, and she realizes, like, uh, that there's hints of a dust moat in her apartment. There's strange things you know, dust residue, uh, dust whispers is another thing. When they say dust on the wind and they sang that song, they meant it. That was probably about the whole, you know, uh, dust mote thing. But they, she she thinks, is there dust in my apartment, dust motes or sentient dust motes? 
becoming personified. And she's kind of skeptical, but this is like barely to be denied. Because she opens her fridge in this dust mode is like doing some routine about the gozers uh, and saying, do you know the gozers uh, from Fraggle Rock? Uh, they're coming. Like we want to, we're going to work with the gozers. They're construct, they're going to construct a world for dust motes uh, to live. Uh, and she says, well, that's strong. That is strange. I better call these dust busters. And actually she goes in because then we see Ken Ray or, uh, this is right when they need it. They're like, oh boy, we're out of money or whatever. Uh, maybe it's after the first success, but whatever. She goes in, she meets Peter. He goes back, looks into it, but we kind of say, Peter, man, what are you doing? Uh, you're supposed to be dust and bust and not uh, being irritating to your customers. Uh, and so then uh, what happens after that? Then there's a montage, I think. Uh, of the the going up, the story of the, the Dustbusters, uh, success after success after success, and that they keep getting more and more successful. But it does come at a cost. They get tired, and so then at some point they hire Winston, or played by delightful, played by Ernie Hudson uh, Jr. I believe, and they hire Winston. They're, but they're still successful, but they're getting a little haggard. And we start to get this idea that the dust activity is increasing. And uh, I think that's, let's see, I'm trying to think what, what happens next. Uh, if there's like a train, tran, like, so they're on their high point, right? Uh, I know what comes when they, they crest and they start to go down, but I'm trying to think if there's anyone, uh, you know, they get, they're on all the magazine covers, including Omni which was this cool science magazine I always dreamed of subscribing to. A bit like Wired, uh, but before Wired. Um, I wonder if they could get back issues of that somewhere. Um, but so, let's see. I'm trying to think. So there's the montage. There's even Casey Kasem doing countdowns. Oh, we see that uh, Dana had kind of left things, like after Peter was kind of like... Uh, not super professional. She was like, you know what? I'll figure out my dust on my own. She goes, I remain skeptical or that it was a one-time, you know, vent or it was my imagination that it was the dust motes. Yeah. Uh, so then I guess there's two things that happen at the same time. The, the dust activity is obviously going up and uh, the ghost, the dust busters are put, kind of put to their uh, limit. And then... Uh, bureaucracy gets in the way. In this case, it's the form of the EPA who says uh, this character, uh, I don't know what his name is, uh, Mr. Jerk will say. He says, uh, hey, uh, first he goes in with Peter. Peter challenges him. He says, uh, he's not very, he doesn't have good social skills. So he says, I'd like to see, you know, him and Peter go back and forth. And Peter tricksters him, but in a way that leaves a bad taste in his mouth. He says, I need to know what you're doing, how you're storing the dust and the moats. And also he represents the skeptical viewpoint that dust would be just, people could clean their own dust. There's no such thing as sentient dust moats. That's silly. Just with dust moats blowing around and people projecting meaning onto them. So uh, what happens uh uh, there must be something in between. There's like, uh, 
you get to see a little bit of growth in Winston, Ernie Hudson, and him becoming part of the team, and more and more work, and Ray looking cool, and Egan looking uh, concerned. Yeah, then there's one more scene where, uh, okay, yeah, then there's another scene where uh, uh, Ray, no, who's that? Peter kind of makes one more, he says, uh, goes to Dana's work, uh, waits for her when she gets done with practice. He's dancing around in Lincoln Center while other people are roller skating. And he says, come on, like, uh, maybe, he goes, maybe, like, uh, let's hang Netflix. You know, remember when there was Netflix and chill were a thing? That'll be, in he goes, in 20, 20 years, actually, 20, 2014 or 30 years, whatever, how many ever many years? He says, uh, why not do it now? And she says, well, okay. So she says, maybe later. Uh, I feel like I'm missing one other segment. Uh, but we see then he goes to visit her. The EPA comes and they shut down the power for the dust containment, which causes the dust to shoot all over New York City. Sentient dust, moat dust. And not just dust, obviously. Other things gather than the dust. So some of the parts are greater than the whole. And that shoots all over New York. Uh, and then at the same time, I think tr- that's a trigger, a triggering event. Uh, Dana, she gets, she, she like inhales this dust to dust motes and she like kind of, uh, becomes a medium for dust mode communication. Uh, as does Lewis. Uh, he kind of runs around, uh, trying to get away and he's finally, he gets, uh, he gets, gr- gets breezed in the dust and he becomes, uh, the key master and the lock locksmith or something. I can't remember. I think he's the key master. He gets brought to Ghostbusters headquarters. I think before the EPA came and they say, this is weird. We've never seen this. He's a, he's like a medium for communication of dust modes. Uh, Egon does this. He says something big's coming. A lot of comedy in here too. If <laughs> you know, obviously it's not coming across. Uh, so we kind of see these pieces of the puzzle of the mystery being unpacked, too. And Ray's trying to understand what what is it with the building. Then we see that Dana's also become a medium for dust molding. And he says she's the uh, locksmith. And they say, oh, we've got the key master here. So they say, okay, and they live in the same building. So they say, okay, wait a second. This is starting to make sense. Uh, that's when the EPA shows up. Then all the dust goes over all over the city. And this kind of slowly leads, you know, the cards start to fall. Like, uh, then all of the, there's a montage of the reverse of the, uh, the dust busters saving the city from uh, sentient dust motes. And we see sentient dust motes, including Slimer and other ones, run around having a great time. In a way that's undeniable, that it's like uh, real. Then we have uh, uh, the the dustbusters themselves are uh, they get a timeout with serious timeout, but they're still trying to solve the puzzle. They're still on the du- they're still busting dust. So you have a cute scene where they're uh, go- trying to unpack the last phases of the mystery, and then uh, they get called to the mayor's office and. There's uh, an extra scene, I guess, to kind of make sense of to say that this is undeniable. You got the mayor's advisors, you got the cardinal or the bishop or something. 
And everybody's saying, what is happening? There's dust, there's sentient dust motes everywhere, impersonified in anthropomorphic forms. And other things, uh, they say, this is uh, not, and he said, the mayor says to them, can you do something about it? And they say, of course we can. We bust dust. You just got to bust the EPA off our backs. And the mayor says, well, I'm not sure. And then Peter, who is the kind of salesperson, says, uh, if we don't succeed, it doesn't matter. But if we do, mayor, you're the hero. And I don't know who played the mayor, but when I first saw the movie, I was positive it was the real mayor of New York City. Now, looking back, I think it was just an actor. Because uh, probably that might have been, I don't know if that was when Ed Koch was running uh, in New York or a little bit before. Uh, so then we have the final sequence. In this one, it starts off with this victory sequence in a good way. In a really way, the the the, 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 the bookends of this sequence are delightful. I can't imagine shooting them. They're all on location in New York with tons and tons of extras. And it's New York celebrating New York and other New Yorkers succeeding and saving New York from sentient dust. So the Ghostbusters are greeted to a hero's welcome as they go back to Dana and Lewis's building, which is where the Gozers are going to come, or the Dozers or whatever. And if I, well, because the mystery they uncover is that... Uh, the sentient dust motes are working with dozers from a show called, uh, which are these little construction characters from a show called Fraggle Rock. And they, they build stuff and they've, dust motes and the dozers are going to build a world on top of our world for dust motes and dozers to live. It wouldn't leave a lot for us humans, you know. And I can't, oh, Zool's the one in charge of all this, I think. Uh, because uh, and then also there's a sequence that shows before all this happened, uh, the keymaster and the locksmith uh, joining powers to open the doors for Zool, who fully Zool's like the the uh, foreman of the dozers, I guess, uh, fully embodies Dana. Uh, so that happens. Uh, so then, oh, then the Ghostbusters shove. They say, okay, we're gonna dust some bust here. Then as they're about to go in the building, there's like a rock and roll thing. And we think that, oh, the, are the Dustbusters lost? But no, it, it's just a little playing. And then the ch- crowd's cheering them on. Uh, then they go up to the top of the building and they they have to go up the stairs. So, so it's really like uh, slowly fed out to us in a good way. And they face off with uh, the the do, uh, with Zool, who's Sigourney Weaver, I think. Uh, and they say, uh, oh, you know, the dozers are coming. That's it. It's, you're going to lose. And they say, we're going to bust some dust. Uh, so they have like a little bit of a duel with the dust busting and her, her jumping and flipping around. And they're not really effective at stopping. And then, uh, the dozer, uh, Zul says, uh, choose uh, how the dozers are going to come take everything over. What, what is going to be the, uh, the one that does the leveling of the earth, you know, of the human stuff. So we can build the dozer world on top of it. And they say, you could, whatever you think of. And then they say, Peter's like, clear your minds and we'll be fine. But Ray thinks of something and then they play it out for comedy. And it's the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, a bit like the Pillsbury Doughboy. Uh, like a 30-foot marshmallow man starts walking through New York, stepping on stuff. 
ghosts get the dustbusters. They go, you know, back and forth, and they they say all is lost. You know, this is a part of the movie where heroes rise. They say there's no way to, to stop this the bust this dust. Uh, it's become a marshmallow person. They have powers greater than dust. Uh, sympathetic vibrations, the whole nine yards, and the dozers. And they say, well, what's the only thing we could do that would be where we, you know, we're the heroes? Uh, what's the riskiest move we can make? Cross the streams, all four of us. Uh, that'll reverse the polarity and magnetize the dust, and the dust will all just drop to the ground, probably, and we could just vacuum it up, or won't work out. Either way, we're probably, you know, it's not going to work out for us, but we're heroes. Uh, bada bing, bada boom, they do it, uh, and it works. Uh, all the dust gets, you know, kicked up and then drops down with like a whatever ionic charge or whatever, how those things work. Pre HEPA filter this time. And uh, they're heroes. First, you say, well, are they all right? Where's Dana? Where's Lewis? Everybody's okay. Then they go downstairs to another, the bookend, another hero's welcome, all the New Yorkers cheering. Really looked like all the actors and actresses were having a great time. And it kind of ends the movie with these great shots of New York and cheering and the car driving. And uh, the two songs play in, in those different sequences, uh, uh, whatever, uh, Dustbusters and, uh, I don't know, Heroes in, in, I can't remember the other song, uh, uh, but, but, and, and yeah, that's, that's the end of the movie. And I think I've read a lot of stuff about, uh, Dustbusters in the past. It was, uh, let's see, I'll just go through some stuff. Uh, it was, uh, written by, it was directed and produced by uh, Ivan Reitman, written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, uh, starring them, uh, well, we, we know that, uh. Uh, Aykroyd originally conceived the project for himself and uh, John Belushi, uh, them uh, busting dust through time and space, and Ramis, and uh, he rewrote the script uh, after Belushi visited the big farm. And uh, Raymond also said the original version is not financially practical. It was released June 8th, 1984. Positive reviews grossed $242 million in the U.S. and $300 million almost worldwide. It was nominated for Best Visual Effects and Best Original Song. AFI ranked at 28th out of 100 years of laughs. Uh, 100, you know, uh, it uh, was selected for the preservation of the National Film Registry. And it had uh, different animated series of video games in the 2016 reboot. Uh, let's see here. Uh, a development we kind of went through. Pre-production. We went on to casting. Uh, John Candy was also in it, uh, possibly. Uh Louis Tully was originally conceived as a conservative man in a business suit to be played by Candy, but Moranis instead portrayed Louis as a geek. Uh, the Dozers were originally supposed to come in the form of Evo Shandor, an uh, unremarkable man in a suit played by Paul Rubens, uh, but that ultimately went to uh, Slavita Jovan and the voice provided by Patty Edwards. Uh, 
According to Ernie Hudson, an earlier version of the script had his character in a larger role with an elaborate backstory as part of the Air Force. Uh, he was excited and took the job for half his usual salary, but his re- role was reduced because uh, Reitman said the studio wanted to expand Murray's role. Uh, but he could, so he was a little bit let down. Uh, but I think he was just, he, he, I think he was a great character. He added a lot of humanity and excitement from the outside. And actually, he's like, he plays this key thing with the mayor because he says this stuff's real. So he speaks for the audience. Uh, it was filmed in Manhattan in October 20, 19, 1983, uh, at Columbia, uh, and uh, they, they didn't want to be identified at Irving Bank uh, uh, the, in Tribeca, 55 Central Park West, uh, other Manhattan, New York Public Library, Columbus Circle, Waldorf Astoria Hotel, Tavern on the Green, uh, locals didn't like it, uh, but, but uh, they had they had one night to dress the street in one neighborhood. Uh, yeah, so there was a lot of people that weren't happy. Uh, Aykroyd ran into science fiction writer Isaac Asimov, uh, who Aykroyd idolized, uh, and Asimov was not happy uh, about the traffic jam. Uh, but then they said... Uh, Infectious energy was everywhere. Upbeat vibes seemed to buoy the production schedule, and they finished two and a half days earlier, which we could kind of see that. Like, uh, uh, I think it was a love letter to New York and New Yorkers. Uh, that's uh, when we came down covered in marshmallow. There was crowds. That, yeah, that's like the end of the movie. Uh, some things were filmed in Burbank, Los Angeles Central Library, Biltmore Hotel. Uh, so that's it. Critical response was good. Ebert, Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars out of four. Uh, movie is an exception to the rule that big special effects can ruin a comedy. And it's provided many quotable lines. So that's a little bit about uh, that. I just wanted to look into 1984, though. Because uh, it had it like, uh, like, I was like, oh, who's what movies came out in 84? Other than this, it ends up, it was a, quite a year for film. Here's some of the Sunday movie, or summer movies. This is from IndieWire. Uh, from their staff, June, June, June 5th, uh, 2014. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. June 8th, uh, Ronald Reagan went to a London Celtics beat the Lakers. Uh, pressure like Petty at the biggest jackpot. Uh, time after time, time after time. Oh, Dustbusters and Dremlins, another movie about, uh, uh, it's just Dremlins. I don't know. They both came out. That was a week after Once Upon a Time in America, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Fun, uh, then followed by Karate Kid and Top Secrets. So here's the, like, their 30, like Bolero was a Bo Derek movie. I don't know that one. Cannonball Run 2, I definitely saw that on uh, um, more than a few times on HBO when I started the, the late Burt Reynolds. Uh, best best uh, Defense, I never heard of that one. Uh, Eddie Murphy and uh, Dudley Moore in it. Uh, C-H-U-D, I've seen that. I think I've seen that movie. Breaking, i definitely seen Breaking 2. 
pretty sure I've seen Break in uh, Sheena. Uh, that was Tanya Roberts' movie I'm unfamiliar with. Rhinestone, that's uh, Sylvester Stallone. Uh, Dolly Parton. Uh, not familiar with that one either. Oxford Blues. I remember, I don't think I saw this one, but I always wanted to. It was a, a solo vehicle for Rob Lowe, who had just broken out big, uh, trying to win over the woman of his dreams. Uh, so Conan, Conan, the buddy buddy, I definitely saw that also. Because uh, uh, I think Grace Jones was in that, James Earl Jones. Uh, I think, or maybe that was the first one. Yeah, but yeah, I definitely saw that. Grandview, USA. I don't know that one. C. Thomas Hall, Patrick Swayze, Jamie Lee Curtis. Star Trek Three: Search for Spock. I saw that in the theater probably a couple of years later. Uh, but that was a classic. Bachelor Party, Before the Hangover and Wedding Crashers. This was a Tom Hanks movie. I definitely saw that because I wasn't supposed to. Uh, and, uh, Philadelphia Experiment. I don't think I saw that, uh, Beach Street. Uh, I don't think I saw that one. That's a breakdancing movie. Uh, then, a uh, movie, uh, Starter of, uh, Warmth, uh, with Drew Barrymore. Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. That was an 84 movie, huh? That's a, a cult classic. I've seen that quite a few times, but not lately. Uh, Dreamscape, A Tightrope, uh, Under the Volcano. Still, okay, so some of these I just don't know. Uh, Red Dawn. Oh, boy, did I see that movie a few times. Uh, another classic, Purple Rain. Oh, boy. Uh, Muppets Take Manhattan. Now we're talking. Uh, uh, Streets of Fire. I don't know what that one is. Uh, yeah, I don't know that if I've seen that one. Uh, the Natural, that was a very famous. The Bounty. I think I read that book. I don't think I've seen the movie. Last Starfire. Oh, boy. That was another one I've seen. That was a great one when I was a kid. Revenge of the Nerds. I would have thought that was like an 82 movie, but uh, definitely, uh, I mean, I, I've seen that movie and love it. 16 Candles, Holy Mackerel. That came out May 4th. Uh, top Secret. I would have thought this came out in like 90. It's a parody of spy movies. I guess I'll have to re rewatch it. Uh, I really thought it came out uh, much later. Uh, but it was made by the Zucker brothers uh, who made Airplane and a ton of other great, uh, great movies. Karate Kid came out on June 22nd. Wow. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Fun which was the first PG-13 movie. Uh, then uh, Dremlins, uh, uh, that was, uh, that's a classic, Dustbusters. And then Once Upon a Time in uh, uh, America. And this is a Sergio Leone movie. Once Upon a Time in the West is like a, a pretty much like a Western classic. Uh, and I don't think I, I must have to, I, if I've watched this, it's been a long, long, long time. It's headed to Blu-ray or, or maybe it came out on Blu-ray already. Uh, so definitely worth checking out. 
Okay, and I just wanted to run. I guess I won't run through the rest of the movies. It has a pretty good list. There's a lot of other great ones. I'll, I'll include the link. But listen to this Billboard uh, Year End Hot 100 from 1984. When Doves Cry by Prince, What's Love Got to Do with It? Tina Turner. Say, 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 Paul McCartney, Michael Jackson. Footloose by Kenny Loggins. Uh, there is a, a Spotify playlist for this. I looked it up. Uh, Against All Odds, Take a Look at Me Now, Phil Collins, uh, Jump, uh, Van Halen, Hello, Lionel Richie, Hello, Lionel Richie, Owner of a Lonely Heart, Yes, uh, Ghostbusters, uh, or Dustbusters by Ray Parker Jr., Karma Chameleon, Culture Club, Missing You, John Waite, All Night Long, uh, Lionel Richie, Let's Hear It for the Boy, that's my karaoke song, For Real. That's the song I do in karaoke. It's Denise Williams, Dancing in the Dark, Bruce Springsteen, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, Cindy Lauper, The Reflex, Duran Duran, Time After Time, Cindy Lauper, A Jump for My Love, The Pointer Sisters, Talking in Your Sleep. This is the first song I don't know uh, off the top of my head. Uh, Self by the Romantics, Self Control by Laura Branigan, Let's Go Crazy by Prince and the Revolution. Say It Isn't So, All Notes, Hold Me Now, Thompson Twins, Joanna, Cool and the Gang. I just called to see, can you believe this? Uh, I just called to say I love you, uh, Stevie Wonder. Somebody's keeping an eye on me, Rockwell. Break My Stride, uh, Matthew Wilder, 99 Found Balloons or whatever, Nina. I Can Dream About You, Dan Hartman. I don't know that one either. The Glamorous Life by Sheila E. Oh, Sherry. Uh, Steve Perry. Uh, Stuck on You, Lionel Richie. He had a good year. Holy cow. I guess that's why they call it the blues. Elton John. Shebop, uh, Cindy Lauper. Borderline, Madonna. Uh, Sunglasses at Night, Corey Hart. I'll just do the top 50. Eyes Without a Face, Billy Idol. Here Comes the Rain Again, Eurythmics, Uptown Girl, Billy Joel. That was a song for one of our dance recitals. Uh, Sister Christian, I used to sing that to some of the nuns in middle school and get in trouble. Uh, Night Ranger, Drive the Cars, Twist of Fate, Olivia Newton-John, Union of a Swirly Swirl, Duran Duran, Heart of Rock and Roll, Huey Lewis and the News, Hard Habit to Break, Chicago. Uh, the Warrior Scandal, If You're In My Arms Again, Peebo Bryson, Automatic by the Pointer Sisters, Let the Music Play, that's by Shannon, I would have guessed that was Sheila E. too, To All the Girls I've Loved Before, Julio Iglesias, Iglesias and Willie Nelson, it still gets better though, Caribbean Queen, Billy Ocean, uh, That's All, Genesis, Running With the Night, Lionel Richie, Sad Songs Say So Much, Elton John, I want a new drug, Huey Lewis in the news. And so the rest of them are on there too. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, get in, you know, let me, uh, I'm the dream, I'm the sleep duster here. Uh, good night. All right, everybody. It's time for a tale of the tape, uh, which is a style of episode. Usually because it's like, a, it could be, I guess, anytime, but, but movies, mostly movies I saw in the eighties as a child where I saw him a bunch of times, maybe even more recently than the 80s. 
And then I try to remember the plot of the movie because, uh, like, usually I can't barely remember anything. So it just sounds to be very sleepy because they say, huh, what was that? uh, And what happened there? So it's just like a a fun premise. Plus, this particular movie, I think, is getting rebooted or uh, something because the name of the movie is... uh, uh, top gum chewer so uh, top gum for short and if you want to know why it's called top gun all you have to do is picture tom cruise chewing gum with that big smile of his now we're talking a 1980s tom cruise uh so i don't know like what to make. his hair was shorter i think in the 80s this particular movie either he was sweating a lot or his character his hair had a sheen to it, a good sheen. I mean, for him, a good sheen. And he wore aviator sunglasses a lot because he was a jet pilot uh, uh, for the Navy. Uh, and uh, he chewed gum. That was just one of his things. That's one of his things in a lot of movies. But he chews gum in this movie. He's the top of gum. And it's also a thing they use there to say, uh, and this is like a different part of the Navy. You might not have heard of it except for this movie. Uh, acrobatics, aerial acrobatics. And so this movie starts off, uh, so I think that's everything we need to know about the setup. Oh, but but I know it's getting remade or rebooted. I think like Tom Cruise and maybe Val Kilmer. Okay, so the stars of the movie are, oh boy, this okay, Anthony Edwards, Tom Cruise, Meg Ryan, Val Kilmer, this is when uh, Tom Skerritt, uh, Michael Ironside. Um, after that, the, the dude that was in um, Legend of Billie Jean, uh, who, who um, Hubie something. Uh, who else? Uh, Kelly McGillis. Uh, was it John Stockwell, who we'll get to really quick. And even um, Tim Robbins was in this one. So very 80s uh, cast, uh, and uh, it takes place in San Diego, I believe. Most well, parts of the movie do, and it's about being the top gum, which is shorthand for the most uh, aerobic, uh, like uh, the person that has the most uh, aerially, aerobi- aerial aerobat, whatever I meant to say. So the movie starts off with, uh, what I don't know, like... Uh, now, this, okay, this also all took place during the 80s, during the Cold War. And, you know, I think that, uh, it, I don't know, I've never read an article about it, but I'm sure there's been plenty of great ones about how storytelling, the Cold War actually offered, like, easy stakes uh, for your storytelling back then. Because you had, like, a, like in the movies, at least in the simplistic version, like, a good side, good old USA, and a not good side, which would be the USSR. And again, I'm not taking sides. I'm just talking about the storytelling. And then they had stakes because you were raised, I guess, in the 80s to believe that, uh, you know, our way of life was dependent on our, you know, get, get a lot of, uh, you could see where, how we got here today. They said, well, if our way's not, if our way's not the best, then we don't have it, you know. But so... 
so this movie took place uh, with that uh, through that lens, through that cultural window. And I mean, just from a storytelling perspective, uh, well, it's a very simple based movie, and it used that in a very uh, basic way. It did it very effectively, and it was a blockbuster film. Though people might have never, they say, I've never heard of that movie. Heard of another one. I said, well, I'm sorry. Uh, so the movie starts off with, uh, who, who's that, John Stockwell? Now, here's a couple of things about John Stockwell. He was in a couple of movies I liked, uh, and he was someone that never became a gigantic star, which was baffling. I also always thought George Thorogood, who's like a classic 80s rocker, or more of a, um, maybe not a rocker, but I always thought those two people, were they were the same person. So John Stockwell was George Thorogood. Yeah, but John Stockwell was in this one cool movie that I cannot remember the name of. Uh, it was called My Science Experiment or something, where uh, someone has a science experiment at Ben's kind of time-space continuum, and he's the hero that goes back into his high school to shut the experiment down or something. And I think he was the lead in one or two other movies, uh, but in this movie, he's he's just the uh, teaser, the uh, the opening. What do they call that? They call it a not a through point uh, set piece. That's what they call it in movies. And I don't know if this was just a Tony Scott film. I think it was just a Tony Scott film. But uh, so it opens with this set piece of uh, it was the Olympics. Now I guess it would have been like this. It took place in the past. Uh, oh no no, it was the Olympic. Uh, I guess it was more of an Olympic build-up because it would have been the last, like not Olympic qualifying, because the U.S. was competing against the USSR in aerial, aerial, whatever that's called. Like, and you say, Scooch, what is that, and why is the Navy involved in it? And I say, well, there's a version you hear of of jet planes, but most of this takes place just like in um, what's that group called? That the circus group. Uh, Cirque du Soleil. Like, and again, this is stuff that history's just glossed over because it's not as flashy as jet planes. Yeah, but most of the stuff, like when you're, um, you've seen it, like uh, you've got a person in mostly, ba- uh, ideally in a ballet-type uniform, and they're flying around on ribbons. Uh, and it can involve trapeze and all that, but it's a lot of it's artistic uh it's just, you know, gymnastics and uh, uh, dance and, um, I guess, whatever that other one is combined. Now, the reason the Navy's important is because, uh, like, the Navy would use this, uh, again, it just added to the stakes that it was like, uh, this is the Navy's team. Now, the Navy specialized in... Um, what do they call it? Te- like these were, um, what do you call it when there's two people working together? I don't know what it's called, but like, uh, like I'm thinking of synchronized. Synchronized. So this was like, a, it was a little bit different than synchronized because they're not synchronized. Uh, but it was a team sport, a two-person team sport. This was uh, like, uh, again, the 80s, so they were more into the male stories. Which you'd think, well, this is, seems like a softer art. Uh, I see, well, you have to have a hard body to do this soft art. So 
just to be clear, like you see, this is Tom Cruise's body, Annie Anthony Edwards. Holy cow. Yeah, but so, so it opens up with this big, whatever, the international, uh, whatever the most important thing is other than the Olympics for uh, men's aerial aerobic, men's aerial dancing. Oh, acrobatics. Why was I calling it aerobatics? Uh, I think that's like the shorthand for it. To be, to, oh no, not to be Top Gun. Okay, so I think you're with me so far. So John Stockwell's character, whose name I forget, he, he like everyone had a nickname. His was something like Jaguar. For some reason, I remember Tim Robbins' nickname first was Merlin because that was just cool. I said, I wish I was Merlin. Yeah, but so, oh, there's another dude, Barry Tubb. Is that who it is? Uh, okay, just thought of uh, one other kid, like uh, the sidekick to Iceman was in a lot of movies. I don't know if his name's Barry Tubb. I think Barry Tubb might be the dude from uh, Billy Jean. But there's one other character who's an actor whose name I should probably know. Uh, but anyway... Jaguar, whatever John Stockwell's character's name is. I don't know who his partner was. The partner didn't get a lot of screen time that I remember. He goes out there. He's the top dog. Like, in the, they say, okay, like, you're up against, you know, just like in these movies, Rocky movies, Ivan Drago and, uh, you know, Mikhail Baryshnikov are on a team together. I know this is just imaginary. That's not really who they were against. Uh, because the Soviet team had these, uh, like, a little bit like figure skating. They had, um, like, outfits that, that were also part of the show. So they also obscured their faces, uh, which is, again, a message of, like, uh, you know, that the 80s was trying to push. I think right now I'm covering the movie in slower than real time. Uh, but so, basically, John Stockwell and John Stockwell's partner up against the two faceless Russians, uh, and it's a big moment, like, uh, and John Stockwell's the best of the best uh, as far as the U.S. team's concerned. And he gets up there, you know, on the ribbons, on the swings, and starts doing his thing. And it's also done at the same time. Like, it's like this, everybody, you have to see the movie to understand. But uh, it's like a dance, uh, like a dance-off in some sense. But it's an aerobic I'm not doing that on purpose. It's just like a brain trip. But, um, so he gets up there and he decides, like, he's, you know, he's built it up too much. Uh, he has performance, you know, ANX, AX, you know, he performance concerns. And he's never had this trouble. He's been the top dog. And he says, I can't do it. Like, I'm quit. Like, uh, this is it. I'm off the team right in the middle of the routine. I think it was a mess, like a little bit of like, uh, like the Russians kind of like they swung real close together or something. And he said, you know what, this just isn't for me, which you got to respect. Uh, he, like it was like a very, uh, he said, this is it. And, and everybody was in disbelief. The whole, all the coaches, all the other athletes and that. But it also, also serves to show this theme of the movie. Uh, which is one of the themes of the movie, which I think is like mind over matter in some sense, or mind over even ego. Like, uh, 
that there's this like loose focus. If you want to be top uh, uh, air dancer, yeah, that's a good way. Top gum. Like you, you need to. Um, it, it is a matter of uh, not just a physical ability, not just technical ability, but an ability to 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 push push over the edge, uh, or right up against the edge, and that he lost his edge. I think that was it. He lost his edge. And, you know, he, he, so that's how the movie starts. And then what we get next is, uh, uh, Tom Cruise and, uh, uh, Anthony Edwards, who forward will be known as Maverick and Goose. We see that they're like in the, the amateur circuit. They haven't been in the Olympic circuit. They've been in the amateur circuit. They're very flashy. And Tom Cruise is extremely confident. I mean, you've seen him smile and chew gum. Like, imagine him in his 20s doing that. I mean, it's it's actually enjoyable either way. But uh, so he does that. So so we just see them, and they're, like, so flashy. They're kind of, the, like, not Goose. Uh, Anthony Edwards' character is a little bit more of the um, the soul, at least initially, or the heart and soul. But uh, Tom Cruise, um, you know, he just he, he even shows up, shows up to coaches and the other athletes a little bit. Yeah, like, and he's always got catchphrases that I forget, turn to burn or something. And then they get back to to to, to finish their their performance, and they they kind of upset the like uh, one of the not the coaches, but one of the um, referees or something or whatever judges. You know, by doing like something comparable to where they're supposed to do a double indie and they did a quad. And then they find out when they get back, they say, You guys who got called up to the, you know, you'd be normally be in trouble, but the Olympic team has an opening and the Olympics are coming. And, you know, obviously Uncle Sam doesn't want us to be embarrassed and not be the best aerial dancing, you know, air dancers in the world. You know, our, our ability to, con, con, you know, consume, you know, consume things and you, you would be, could, could be at risk. So we got to be the best. Uh, and they want you to, instead of the best, I guess they want you to. And then things probably get fuzzy for me eventually. So they go to San Diego, which is like Top Gum School. So I think initially we get, um, and there's probably some other new classmates, maybe, maybe there's not. But then we get like an overview, Top Gum. And I think this is narrated by Michael Ironside. You know, and they say the history of the school, like a little backstory. But, you know, Top Gum was designed, you know, in the 1950s when, uh, for, you know, we said who's going to be, you know, the whole Olympic buildup of the Cold War. And, you know, U.S. to air dancing dominance, that's the term he uses. Uh, And they say, you know, this is to teach all everything, Uh, even stuff, you know, we're combining techniques across the globe uh, in this one place. You know, but the question is, can you take, you know, can you do it? Can you graduate? Uh, So it's not only an Olympic training program, but it's like uh, you got to get through the training it to be top gum and then make the Olympic team. I think, even though they are the Olympic, and I don't know. Some of it's a little confusing. 
Oh, that's what it is. Like, eventually you would want to go pro, I think, is what it is. So then it gets set up a very, uh, a couple of themes get set up. One, one theme is, uh, and this will probably be out of order, but we see Tom Cruise's relationship with Tom Skerritt, who's like, uh, I don't know what his nickname is in there, but he's, he's like the, the big, the, the principal. But for Tom Cruise, he's this father figure, which Tom Cruise is like, uh, we, we kind of learn like Tom Cruise's edge is related to his relationship with his father a little bit and his need to prove himself. And Tom Scarry kind of tries to take on this role of like, uh, they care about you, but you're kind of a D-I-C-K for the most part is what he kind of says to, to, to Maverick, uh, like, this is a, like, a, your ego's too big. Yeah, and I know you think you're the best, and maybe we could make you the best, uh, but we'll see. Uh, so there's that. Uh, so there's that theme running through it. Then there's the theme of, um, well, there's Tom Cruise and Go- Group Maverick and Goose's relationship, which is one of fr- friend friendship and love, but also of, like, different stakes, like... Uh, Tom Cruise's ego constantly impacts uh, Ma- uh, Goose uh, because Goose has different six. He has a family, and he really needs to make it eventually to the pro league because uh, if he doesn't, then, um, like, what, what would he, like, uh, he wouldn't, you know what I mean? He he, he needs the money. I mean, he, that's, like, a good way to make a living is pro air dancer. I mean, come on, look at Cirque du- like the, nowadays we see it everywhere. I mean, all the, all the air, constant air dancer interviews. So that's another theme. Then there's the fact of what Tom Skerritt said with his other classmates. Tom Cruise definitely has, and he's able to carry it out in a um, likable way, uh, which is probably not, there's not many people capable of pulling that off. Uh, where he's kind of a superior to his classmates uh, and a bit of a, you know, a j- a j- a jerk or whatever. Um, yeah, but he also is almost the best. Uh, so, I don't know, there, there's kind of a little tension within the class. And then there's also the actually top student, the top performer, who is played by Val Kilmer. His name is Iceman. And his partner is is like Gordo or something like that. And Iceman is known for being super cool and chill, and like precision oriented, you know, very uh, detached and emotionless. Uh, but also plays within the rules, and he doesn't like uh, Mavericks, not just his attitude, but that he pushes things over the edge. Uh, like uh, Iceman says, you know, I can be the best within this creative constraint, and that's what we're here to do. Also, this is like an Olympic sport, uh, so we don't want anybody, like, spraining anything. It's just ridiculous. And he says, eventually you're going to sprain an elbow or something, and, you know, or what if Goose does? So there's this competition which actually makes it more, you know, because you say, well, I don't think I like Iceman. He doesn't chew gum like Tom Cruise. He chews it in this more chopping, uh, tense way where Tom Cruise chews gum like a handsome, chill dude. 
and again, I think just an example of like this uh, form of movie storytelling. Uh, so then what happens? Oh, so the- I'm talking about themes, I guess. Uh, what other themes? Then there's Tom Cruise versus the system, I guess, or Maverick versus the system. So we see over a series of scenes uh, in class and outside of class uh, where Tom Cruise is like, a, like a, I know better than even the instructors. And I understand things better than things. And the whole purpose of the school, I mean, in a military context, uh, is to kind of break your ego, right? And to, to remold you. And, uh, but, but uh, like, uh, so, so it does make it for another interesting small con- source of conflict. Uh, then there's the love story. So Kelly McGillis, uh, so, and this is like one of the more famous scenes in the movie. Like one of the first nights in town, uh, they go off and they all go out. Like a bunch of the classmates go out, and so we see them outside of their class, outside of their class, in their dancing roles. And Tom Cruise fancies himself quite a charmer. And he, I mean, I mean, who are we kidding? Uh, so he sets forth to uh, charm this uh, person he, he sees there, and he sings her an Everly Brothers song. Maybe he sings it with Goose for a little while and then takes over. And we see, like, a romantic connection. And I don't know if it immediately translates. Uh, I don't think, I think it's just like a, a romantic connection and flirting. Where, you know, Tom Cruise says, look at me, chew gum. Like, come on now. And I believe that Kelly McGillis's character says, you know, I got work to do. Or I got to leave. You know, I'm go- going home to go to bed. Uh, so I think like there's a, yeah, so I think then we learn next day that she's one of the instructors. So you say, oh boy, uh, you know, again, it, it like it adds to the builds on the theme yeah, that Maverick just can't play by the rules. He's a Maverick. I mean, come on. And I guess Goose is a Goose. Uh, we also see like training sequences where they get up in the dancing and they're dancing against the best. Like they dance against Michael Ironside. They dance against uh, Tom Skerritt. Uh, who, they have nicknames. They can't remember. Je- no, Je- who's Jester? Did I already say Je- Maybe one of them is Jester. Merlin is, but somebody's, but so yeah, I think uh, maybe Tom Skerritt is Jester. And we learned that those two, Michael, if you've never seen Michael Ironside air dance, holy mackerel, uh, look it up on YouTube or something. Because uh, you'll, you'll be you'll be changed forever. And so the, we learned that uh, Tom Cruise still has a way to go and that he's willing to bend the rules. This kind of has played out already, but uh, so there's one time where they have to do a dance-off against Michael Ironside and Tom Skerritt. And, uh, like, uh, Tom Cruise and uh, Goose, Maverick and Goose, do their dance, but they do this move that's not sanctioned by the U.S. You know, the Olympic Committee. So they bend a rule or break a rule uh, to win, but technically they don't win. They say, well, we won because we outperformed the two of you. And they say, no, but you, that last swing you did where you put your hip out, like that's an Olympic, it's not allowed within the constraints of the Olympic system. 
And so then they go back to, and everyone is in the locker room and they say, oh boy, we all got beat by a jester and, uh, in the sloth or whatever. And Iceman says, not us, man. We, we beat them fair and square. And Tom Cruise says, we beat them too. And he goes, no, you didn't. You, you, uh, you, you technically lost, uh. And there's a reason you can't kick your hip out at that moment. You know, according to, he pulls out his Olympics uh, uh, air dancing manual and says, look at here. Uh, so we have all this rising tension. Then eventually tension, the first piece of tension to break, I think, is uh, Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis. They end up, end up in a romantic situation, which I think somehow then they end up... Uh, uh, Maybe he, you know, maybe like, uh, I don't know, somehow they end up in a romantic situation, which is probably the first time in life, uh, life I ever saw French kissing with uh, an actor and an actress uh, against a silhouette. Uh, so they just, that's burned in my mind. Yeah, so they have, they do kiss. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, also there's like a scene where, and I think this was just popular because all the dudes were shirtless and they were all in jacked-up shape. But uh, actually, this is before he goes on a date with uh, Kelly McGillis, which I think the date was at the principal's house. So we also have these scenes, again, where Tom Skerritt kind of says, Listen, man, like, uh, your dad was the best, uh, but you can't keep chasing memories or something like that. Your dad was the best air dancer I've ever seen. You might be better. But you got to put your mind, you got to get your mind right. You know, but Tom Cruise just still isn't having it. Uh, then, okay, there's the great volleyball scene, which is basically Iceman and uh, Gordo or whatever decide, hey, we want to play you, um, Goose and Maverick, shirtless beach volleyball. And I don't, I don't think anything happened. I don't know who won, but it was just like a, a, a popular sequence. Uh, you know, it gave me something never to attain. I said, well, if I could have one of those four bodies, uh, everything would be great. Uh, so I don't, know if it was, I don't think I could play volleyball either. Uh, then at some other point, there's like a point with the stakes for Goose, because Meg Ryan is Goose's wife. She comes for a visit, uh, I don't know if they like they had kids and the kids came, or they just talk about their kids, or they're planning and having kids. Uh, but at that moment, like uh, she's also close with Maverick, uh, it, it comes out like uh, I think Meg Ryan says something, and then later Goose says something like, "Listen, man, like you're gonna get us kicked out of school if you keep messing around," which is like he's gotten so many demerits or something like that. And Goose is like, seriously, like every single, like it's not you versus, if it's you versus system, like I'm caught up with you in all these like outside activities and, you know, you being a hot shot, uh, it all culminates. And then it's a slow building again to uh, like, uh, um, like, the, um, I guess it is the Olympic, like a building to the graduation in the Olympics, um, but uh, I don't know. I guess they get a little hazy in there. But I think yeah, like there's a. So I don't know what happens first if they graduate. Like uh, 
or there's a graduation finale or it's before the graduation. There's like the, like, uh, one of the last big performances. Uh, I would think, I do think actually there is, yeah, I think what happens is once or twice, like as they're studying, they do have these, uh, at least once they have, um, uh, like, a maybe a non-sanctioned air dance off with the USSR team. And, uh, I think that's it. Like, uh, so they have like, maybe they have two of them. So they have one and Tom Cruise and Goose to showboat. And I think again, that, uh, maybe that's like, uh, maybe that was, uh, was that, or was that in the movie? at the beginning or was it later? I don't know. But at some point they have like one competition and uh, Tom Cruise and Goose are really good. And I think, uh, so I don't know. There's like one or two scenes throughout the movie where they're again, going up against the USSR team. And at some point, and I don't know if it was, I guess it was probably like a one with the USSR team because that would make sense as far as stakes go. But uh, Tom Cruise and Goose are pushing the limits, and and like uh, like they Tom Cruise just pushes things so much that Goose uh, like uh, overstretches something, and that's it. Like uh, like they say, you're over this overstretch. Uh, you can't possibly be perform or graduate. Like you'll never air dance again because you. Uh, you know, it's just a, a, a like a, like freak freak stretch, uh, and it's it, it it wasn't Tom Cruise's fault exactly, but he feels bad for it. And Goose says, "This is it. I bet my whole life on being a professional air dancer." He, well, he can't even speak to Tom Cruise. He just leaves, uh, and Tom Cruise has to face uh, Meg Ryan, his wife, uh, who's just devastated. She says, this is it. This is where our dreams were built on air dancing. And now they're gone. Thanks a lot. Uh, and Tom Cruise is like, well, I loved Goose, you know, and I love you. And, and she goes, well, this is the cost. Uh, maybe it's time for you to reflect on everything, especially the deeper message of like, uh, you know, mind over matter or whatever, you know, dance over my, you know, dance or dance beyond the ego. And there's also a movie or a mu I don't know if there's a, how many song, big songs there are. There's, um, who's it? Kenny Loggins, I think, uh, the famous song for the movies, highway to the danger zone, riding, dancing through the danger zone. And I don't know if there's any other, you never, once you get a hold of that ribbon, you get a taste for the air dance. You get to chewing up some gum and you put on those tight air dancing pants. Uh, and so that's kind of the lyrics of the song. It's about like the danger zone, which is what they call it when they're up there dancing on those, like swinging on those ribbons. There may have been one or two other ones, but that one, you know, you still hear it on classic radio. So, okay, where are we? So Goose is gone. Goose is no longer a student. And every actually all the air dancers, they know that it was a, a, like a, it wasn't really 100% Tom Cruise's fault uh, that it was just like this ribbon slipped. Uh, 
and that maybe it was because Tom Cruise pushes things too hard or maybe not, but they know the emotional impact of that, uh, goose leaving the team and goose is, you know, it kind of being time that Tom Cruise was taking the, the, the feelings at least for like goose's career being gone. And so he feels, you know, even Iceman says, listen, man, yeah, sorry. Uh, that's rough. Uh, and I think like that's like right before the Olympic trial. I think it's right before the Olympics because then they still have to have like who's going to qualify. And like it was based on points for graduation. Yeah. So ice like the top gum, that team is like the top U.S. team. Then the second place team would have been on the Olympic team. Maybe the top three teams get on the Olympic team. And then maybe there's an alternate. But then Tom Cruise goes back. He has to, like, work with another dancer. And he's lost his mental edge. And Tom Scarrett tries to, you know, be like, you just got to get your edge back, kid. You got to be able to focus on the dance. Uh, now, maybe, like, maybe this was the push, the deflation your ego needed. I don't know that he says it that on the nose, but, uh, I mean, basically it comes down to you know, Tom Cruise, uh, can't get it out of his mind that, uh, and he's like, what, then he's also like, what if I slip? Or what if I never air dance again? You know, what is it like? He's overthinking everything. And a lot of times he says, talk to me, goose. Now there is something that left out that's important for the whole movie. And, uh, it's the idea of the wingman in this movie, which is, uh, like, so you already had this, this, these pairs, right? Tom Cruise and Goose, Iceman and Gordo, or whatever his name was, I don't know. Yeah, but then there is also this open floor competition. That's why they do pick three teams, which is like six and six, like three teams versus three teams. Uh, so that's like kind of like when Olympic gymnastics, there's also the team competition, but they don't have this. This would be like if it is Olympics gymnastics, uh, they had a floor competition where everybody was on the floor at the same time. And the wingman in this case is like a team kind of like spotters, basically like, so you so it's a secondary role, like for the lead team in this case, Iceman and Gordo. And, uh, uh, like you're supposed to like you're while they're doing a move, you're supposed to like run interference so that no one would like interrupt their line of sight and throw off their move. And so at some point in the movie, Tom Cruise and Maverick and Goose are supposed to be Iceman and Gordo's wing people. Uh, but at the same time, like everybody's accumulating points for, for the team and this, it's, they're not on the floor, you know, they're up in the air, but it's very similar, just easier metaphor to think about Olympic four exercise in this case. So they're getting ready to do their biggest point number, Iceman and Gordo and Tom Cruise, they say, we need our, we need our monitor or whatever, uh, cause we're going to do our, you know, quad Lindy. And Tom Cruise says, okay, okay, we're watching, we're watching. And then Tom Cruise sees like an opening where they could do like something like a triple sow cow or whatever. And he says, listen, I'm not going to watch, like you guys can handle it on your own. I'm going to, we're going to do so then we could get more points for the team. 
we're going to do the sow cow because there's just an opening right now. And Iceman says, that's not how it works. Like, that's not how protocol and Olympic team work. work. Uh, there's no I in team, Maverick. Uh, but Maverick can't hear it. That's in the middle of the show. Yeah, but you never forget that, uh, like, that that's important. And at some point, I don't know if it's at the end of the movie, I guess it's at the very end of the movie, it pays off. Which I think we're like here to like is basically like uh, it ends up at the end of the uh, the movie climaxes with like uh, I mean unless you consider that a climax with the goose stuff is like uh, uh, Tom Cruise and Goose they had so many points uh, that they either came in second or third Iceman and Gordo came in first I think they were top gum. Or maybe not. Maybe Maverick and Goose were so far ahead. It doesn't really matter because Goose was uh, off the team. And Maverick's just trying to, he's, he's just uh, hes just hanging on. And they say, uh, like, so they say you're graduating. And uh, they say they moved up the Olympics or something. Or they moved up the date of the, when our competition is. You know, I don't know if Maverick had so much found a rhythm with his new partner. And so what happens is, uh, like, uh, they say, well, we've got to go. Like, uh, and they say, Maverick, are you even going to go to the Olympics? Uh, like, can you even focus? And I, I don't know what the debate is there. And that leads to the Olympic finals, uh, which uh, they kind of skip over and they just kind of uh, go into and they say, like, all the points are tied, and this is the floor competition. And they kind of really do it in a, like, a very slow, deliberate way. So there's the three teams for the U.S. I think, like, uh, you know, it's Iceman and Gordo and another team. I don't know which team it was. Uh, and then Tom Cruise and his new partner versus the Russians, who are, again, in there, like, uh, you know, artistic garb, but again, it makes him kind of faceless. Uh, you know, the whole, like, uh, like we said. And what happens is, like, the, the group four starts, and Maverick gets started, and then he, he goes cold. Like, he says, I can't even compete. I don't think I can even climb up my ribbons. Uh, and they say, like, they need, you know, they need all the points, but they also need... You know, it's like uh, there's not the floor spacing's all off. I guess the air floor in this sense. And Iceman says we need you, and he says never mind. Yeah, but then ends up like uh, Iceman and uh, Gordor doing really good, and the other two teammates uh, to where it's still competitive. But then they get to the point where they have to do. You know, there's also just like in ice skating, figure skating, you have like required. You have to complete, complete complete these different things, especially if you say it has to be judged on them or whatever. So they need this floor spacing to be able to complete these last things. They need their wingman, and they like they end up like like because the other teams are like using blocking, like almost like picks in basketball to rack up points. Uh, and they say, again, this is it. Like, if, we're, if we lose this uh, symbolically, we'll have lost it all for the U.S. of A. And so 
Tom Cruise is like, I can't get it. You know, I can't get it. I could talk to me, Goose. Uh, and then something rings true to him. He says, wait a second. It's about mind over matter. It's just about focusing, a loose focus and a joy of air dance and chewing gum. And then he starts to chew gum and it's perfect. His teeth are like chiclets almost anyway. He smiles and he gets up there with his partner and he starts, they start to like, uh, they start to da- air dance and then they, it changes the floor spacing and they actually find more floor spacing available because two of the three Soviet teams were uh, using these blocking techniques and I think it was hard for them, however they wrapped the ribbons around themselves uh, to get out of these blocking techniques. So then, uh, you know, Maverick and his partner and uh, uh, Iceman and Gordo really start to shine. And it ends up that, uh, I think, I don't know who, like, ends up having to do the big, you know, quadruple, you know, combo with the toast, you know, those ones where it's like two twists in a row. Yeah, but they do, and they win, they win the gold. Uh, and they're so good that they say... This is the first time in Olympic history that your performance outshined the other performance so much uh, that we can't even give them a silver or a bronze. And then that dude, like, uh, who sings that song uh, that they play on the 4th of July, like, picnics, uh, forgot his name, but, it, like, uh, proud to be an air dancer, he sings. I think that maybe they imagine that part, but uh, I'm proud to dance in the air for the U.S. of A., you know, that, that type of song. And then it ends with, like, Tom Cruise and um, Val Kilmer or Iceman saying, you could be my wingman. No, you could be my wingman every time. And I think that's it. I don't know if there was any other, um, like, other than them putting their, you know, getting their gold medals, uh and chewing gum, if uh, that's it, you know, that, uh, yeah, I don't know if there's any other, there's like a epilogue or anything like that after. But that's basically a movie, and it was, a, I believe it was a summer blockbuster. I have no idea what year it came out. Uh, I would guess the later 80s, uh, like maybe 88, but I don't have any idea. And it'll be interesting when it comes out again. Um, like what'll what, like uh, it'll just be interesting to see. Um, so I don't know. Like I mean, if that's this summer, or next summer. Also, oh, this is another reason I've been thinking about Top Gun is because I've been seeing the trailers for Miss Marvel or Ms. Marvel, and uh, it looks like the start of that kind of has this Top Gun feel. And that's just a movie I think is going to be cool. So I'm looking forward to seeing that with my daughter. But yeah, that's a little bit about the movie Top Gum. And you say, well, I thought it was like, yeah, a lot of people did think it was about chewing gum or making gum. But then, you know, you saw it and you said, well, no, it's about air dancing. And that was like also the big air dancing peaked in the 80s uh, where people actually thought it was cool. And like, like started getting into it in droves and that created the foundation, uh, for like Cirque du Soleil. I mean, I don't think anybody's ever told that story that like without Top Gum, there wouldn't be Cirque du Soleil. 
you know, reason, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, no, Scooch, you don't know what you're talking about and totally unrelated. And it's a really, really, like, uh, uh, you know, well, so just picture to Tom Cruise or uh, Anthony Edwards or Tom Scared. You know, I prefer to think of Michael Ironside up there, you know, swinging among the stars, chewing gum. Also probably was like an Olympic regulation. You couldn't air dance and chew gum at the same time. So I don't know how, like I think Air Dancer, maybe there was an already movie called Air Dancer. That's why they didn't do it. Uh, they had to come up with another thing. But yeah, just another movie that was part of my life that I kind of barely remember. Top Gum.